Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be everyone on this weekend before our full moon on March 7th, at exact at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. And I believe that we are celebrating Rainbird's birthday that day as well. So what an auspicious time. So blessings to everyone. Let's go into our heart center and do our ascension work. Take a nice deep breath going into the heart portal, the heart portal to all that is. As we settle into the heart, we call forth the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, our holy Christ self, and all of our multidimensional beings through to our God presence, our goddess presence. We see ourselves in a pillar of light. The pillar of light is filled with the most beautiful soft frequencies of pink and lavender, filling us and surrounding us, bringing in such exquisite frequencies of divine love and the purification of the violet flame in a very gentle fashion as well. See, sense, and feel this energy around you as it floods directly from source through your pillar. And your pillar is anchored directly into the heart of Mother Gaia that we might share this with all as we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. We call in everyone across the planet to join us in this work. As we say the following prayer, please affirm with me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And feel yourself expanding, your pillar expanding. Feel your heart expand, connecting to every man, woman, and child, heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart. All connected to the cosmic heart of all that is. So we invite in for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all to receive the benefits of all that we receive. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward. 
our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the deity kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature. The whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome as well all of the realms of the angels. from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome all of the ascended master realms, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones. All of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, all ascended master healers and healing teams. And we welcome at this time all of our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Charon, and from Venus, We welcome all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 times, 999 trillion times in divine order in alignment with divine will and divine law, both individually and collectively for each one. We call forth all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian layer of our work seals multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. Get all in divine water for each being. And we call forth at this time the easy and effortless digestion and assimilation, grounding and anchoring, integrating, integration and embodiment of these frequencies with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, and love and light and laughter. And we ask at this time to call forth all those in our circle of support. From the very first name that created it, to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every business, every corporation, every institution, every nation, every military, every government, 
the legislative aspect of each government and all lawmakers and laws, including those being considered, and all of the executive branch of each government, all of the leaders, all of the department heads, all of the cabinet posts, the presidents, the prime ministers, all those who make decisions, and all of the judicial aspect of each government on national, state, and local levels, all court cases, all judgments, all judicial decisions. And we call forth all of the weather patterns and all of the extreme weather situations that we've experienced, be it the drought or too much rain or the heavy snows and the ice the tornadoes, the hurricanes and typhoons, earthquakes, all of the climate events, the weather events that have been taking place, and all of the situations across the planet, whether it's um, violence or racism or a lack of food or lack of water, in any situation, in any place across the planet. We have that all included. As our purpose is to hold a vision. Mother Mary is here to help us hold the divine blueprint for heaven on earth. As we go ahead and focus on creating that in our own lives, and we hold that vision for every single being upon the planet, every single location, every single situation, holding the vision of heaven on earth. And we call forth all of the attention to all of these events and all of these weather situations and all political events and um, planetary events and the upcoming full moon, the upcoming spring equinox here in the northern hemisphere. All of the events and um, upcoming eclipses, we call forth all of that energy into our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet. That everyone might realize who they are as a divine being and their role, their purpose, their mission in creating heaven on earth. And we invite Mother Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, multidimensionally, through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every portal and vortex and monument, the sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up the spiral of evolution, along with Mother Gaia, as she takes the rightful place as freedom star. And we give thanks for being able to be here on the planet at this time. We're going to call in the highest of ascension energies and activation. We're going to do an actual, one of my favorites actually, uh, spiritual activation. 
again, asking that we receive it individually and collectively at the level that is right and perfect for us. And then we're going to focus on some prosperity work. Beloved Mother, Father, God, company of heaven, all that we've invoked, we humbly request to be taken to Lundus's ashram and placed in the ascension seats there as we do this work. And we call forth the combined help of Lundus and the Wamas, Sanat Kamara, Joel Kool, Kutumi, Lord Maitreya, Sai Baba, Metatron, Melchizedek, the Mahatma, the Cosmic Consultant, Babaji, Archangel Michael, the Arcturians, Christ, Buddha, and the Divine Mother energies of God. We call forth the full anchoring of all 352 levels of the Mahatma into our four body systems. Just breathe and receive each of these activations. We call forth the full anchoring and blending with Sanat Kamara and the Lagoic plane of consciousness. We call forth the full merger with the nine dimensions of reality and those aspects of self that are already realized at those levels. We call forth the full and permanent anchoring of the cosmic heart and the connection to Shambhala. We call forth an axiotonal alignment. We call forth cosmic integration and cosmic alignment at the highest possible source level. We call forth a full and permanent opening of our ascension chakras, a full opening and activation of all our brain centers, leading to full brain illumination at the seventh initiate level as soon as it is our highest and best. We call forward to Archangel Metatron for a 500% light quotient increase that continues to build all day and all night long. We call forward to the great central sun, to Helios and Vesta, our solar logos, to send forth and fully activate our ascension healing module for full seven-degree activation at the highest possible level of God realization that is available to us at this time. We call forth to Helios, Vesta, Joaquil, and Boamas for the full and complete firing activation and integration of all the fire ladders and key codes within ourselves and within our ascension healing modules for, for the full realization of all 12 dimensions of reality. We now call forth Archangel Metatron to spin the mini Merkabahs for our entire chakra column to cleanse, open, and balance our entire multi-body system. We call forth Lundus to now magnetically remove all etheric mucus from our four-body systems with his golden hands. For Wamas, we call you forth to sweep through our energy fields with your golden hands and remove all alien implants, negative elementals, and any all balanced energies that don't belong there. We also ask that Vuamas and Archangel Michael place a golden dome of permanent protective light around us at all times 
to create an impenetrable shield from all negativity. We also ask that this shield be reinforced nightly while we sleep by Archangel Michael and his legions of angels. We ask for this not only for ourselves, but for our family members and loved ones <clears throat> and for all of the family of humanity. Lord Michael, please cut all cords of negativity and bring forth the violet flame of St. Germain to burn off all dross. We now ask that our bodies be prepared for the full installation of the seventh dimensional chakra grid and full anchoring of our 36 chakras into our crown chakras. We call forth at this time the removal of any and all unbalanced matrices in our four body systems that are preventing us from achieving full God realization at the seventh initiate level. We call forth the anchoring of the 12 strands of DNA from our etheric vehicles into our physical vehicles as God would have it be. We call forth the many tornadoes to now descend to help us fully anchor and blend our higher bodies within our four body system. We call forth the greater flame to fully merge with the lesser flame at the 98% light quotient level as soon as it is for our own individual highest and best. We call forth the perfect monadic blueprint spinning of all our electrons in their perfect seventh degree orbit. We call for the light shower from Archangel Metatron, the Mahatma, Melchizedek, Lendus, the Wamas, and Akamara, the Arturians, and Joel to raise our light quotient to the highest possible level we are capable of integrating at this time so that we may be of the greatest possible service to all sentient beings. We ask that this light and love shower continue 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, until our 98% light quotient levels are stabilized so that we may serve at our highest capacities. We call for the spinning of our Merkabahs at the 92 to 93% level and the full anchoring activation and actualization of our 30-second chakras into our crown chakras so that we may be of the greatest possible service as Ascended Master. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. The following is a Huna prayer from Joel Cool for Money. We have used it before. We're going to say it once again as we call forth our divine inheritance as we call forth full abundance and financial freedom for one and all beloved presence of God God is all that is we hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and mind for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success we are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. We say this section three times. We're going to say it 
two more times. Beloved presence of God, God is all that is. We hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. Beloved presence of God, Goddess, source, all that is, we hereby ask and humbly pray with all our hearts and souls and minds and might for divine abundance made manifest through personal fortune and success. We are willing to move beyond fear in order to fulfill God's plan on earth and beyond. I personally pledge to open myself to financial wealth in order to fulfill my group and individual service commitments. In God's name, we accept our divine heritage right now and thank thee for the timely answer to this prayer. God's will be done. Amen. Our beloved subconscious mind, we hereby ask and lovingly command that you take this thought form prayer to God along with all the manna and vital force needed and necessary to manifest and demonstrate this prayer. Amen. So we breathe this prayer to God. And then after 10 or 15 seconds, we affirm, Lord, let the rain of blessings fall. Amen. Please breathe and receive the energy coming from God back to you. Soaking it in. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Allow yourself to be totally receptive. (laughs) And with your heart connected to mine, I will say for each of us, And for everyone, as we invoke this prosperity and abundance, for everyone, we call in the golden light, the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance to fill us and surround us and fill the planet, surrounding the planet. God is lavish, unfailing abundance. Breathe and receive the rich, omnipotent, omnipresent substance of the universe. This all-providing source of infinite prosperity is individualized as me, the reality of me. I lift up my mind and heart to be aware, to understand And to know that the divine presence I am is the source and substance of all my good. I am conscious of the inner presence as my lavish abundance. 
I am conscious of the constant activity of this mind of infinite prosperity. Therefore, my consciousness is filled with the light of truth. Through my consciousness of my God self, the Christ within, as my source, I draw into my mind and feeling nature the very substance of spirit. This substance is my supply. Thus, my consciousness of the presence of God within me is my supply. Money is not my supply. No person, place, or condition is my supply. My awareness, understanding, and knowledge of the all-providing activity of the divine mind within me is my supply. My consciousness of this truth is unlimited. Therefore, my supply is unlimited. My inner supply instantly and constantly takes takes on form and experience according to my needs and desires. And as a principle of supply and action, it is impossible for me to have any needs or unfulfilled desires. The divine consciousness that I am is forever expressing its true nature of abundance. This is its responsibility, not mine. My only responsibility is to be aware of the truth. Therefore, I am totally confident in letting go and letting God appear as the abundant all-sufficiency in my life and affairs. My consciousness of the spirit within me as my unlimited source is the divine power to restore the years the locusts have eaten, to make all things new, to lift me up to the high road of abundant prosperity. This awareness, understanding, and knowledge of spirit appears as every visible form and experience that I could possibly desire. When I am aware of the God self within me as my total fulfillment, I am totally fulfilled. I am now aware of this truth. I have found the secret of life, and I relax in the knowledge that the activity of divine abundance is eternally operating in my life. I simply have to be aware of the flow, the radiation of that creative energy, which is continuously, easily, and effortlessly pouring forth from my divine consciousness. I am now aware. I am now in the flow. I keep my mind. I keep my mind and thoughts off this world. And I place my entire focus on God within. It's the only cause of my prosperity. I acknowledge the inner presence is the only activity in my financial affairs. As the substance of all things visible, 
I place my faith in the principle of abundance and action within me. And so it is. <coughs> and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we affirm through all levels of divine consciousness, I now decree. I am, I am, I am. The eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. In deep love and appreciation for my glorious gift of life, I consecrate my heart and soul to be the open door for the patterns of perfection from the causal body of Mother, Father, God until the new earth is fully manifest and all life evolving here is wholly ascended and free. It is done and so it is. Beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am. And thus we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we ask for Guy and Sandal Vaughn to assist us in, again, the highest assimilation and digestion and grounding and anchoring and integration and embodiment of these frequencies. <coughs> So I thank you for your divine service here today. And we invite you for further divine service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. Hopefully my voice will be cooperating better tomorrow. In the meantime, we'd love to have you join us. Again, we, we meet every Sunday and Monday starting at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greeting. We have about uh, a 20 minutes of an update from Tara and Rama. At 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth <clears throat> with our ascension work. 
This is the teleconference line, and um, we are suggesting a new main number. So let me give you that number right now. It's area code 480-660-2224. Again, 480-660-2224. I like this number because of the 222 in it. Carries the frequencies of both ascension and resurrection. The code is always the same. It's nine four six seven four four one pound. Nine four six seven four four one pound. We'd love to have you join us and let us know where you're calling from, especially if you're a new caller. But we'd love to hear everybody's voices because we get to uh, connect energetically that way. <clears throat> And every week is, is unique. Going to have some March updates uh, tomorrow night and some further full moon work as well. So uh, we have updates, we have meditations, we have activations, like we did the activation here today. I haven't done uh, really high activation on these uh, programs in a while, but we do them on the um, Ascension calls. So please plan on joining us for, your, for further service work. And we're going to take this time to thank Tar and Mama for their service work, as I thank you as well. Uh, but they've been doing this service work for so long and um, deserve our appreciation. And we want to thank Rainbird for her service as well. And, um, yeah, we'll be celebrating her birthday this week. and. Uh, um, I'm trusting she's going to be doing greetings for us on Monday. <laughs> so thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And with that, um, oh, let me just say that if you want to, um, if you want further information, either about the phone numbers, there's further phone call numbers to dial. There are um, international numbers. There's a way to get on for the, from, from um, online as well. And uh, I can send you that information. And if you want the prayer, the Huna prayer for prosperity, you can contact me for that too. My email address is Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. Put on their um, <clears throat> ascension call or abundance prayer, and um, we'll get that information out to you. And so I wish you a most uh, beautiful, beautiful full moon weekend here and week ahead. Infinite abundance and prosperity to us all. Have a glorious week, and I'm going to pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird, and with um, wishes, infinite wishes for infinite blessings. And um, this talking stick has that amazing golden energy. It has the pink lavender that we started with in every other frequency imaginable and the blessings of all the fairies and, <clears throat> and the gemstones and such angelic energies and, and so on. Just lots of lots of golden abundance as well. So with uh, much love, I pass this abundant talking stick to you, Rainbow. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. And yes, thank you and so have much. Have a wonderful birthday week. Well, thank you. I will.
And uh, I, yes, I'll see you Monday night on the for greetings too. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much, dear. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Blessings to everybody. Yes. And so I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listener supported radio program. All of us that make it happen. And um, so let's get started. What we need, what we need for BBS radio this week is $325. And um, as each of us can send a little in, I'm sure that'll make it happen. So let's uh, see how we do that. First, go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com. And click on Radio Station 2, and you'll see the menu for Radio Station 2 on that um, that page. So as you find the listing for this program, The True History Hersey at Nisera with and Archaeological Origins with Tara and Rama on Saturdays at the 1.30 hour. That is the Pacific time. And as you click on that, that'll take you directly to our account at the state. Click on the icon there, and that'll take you to our account with BBS Radio, where you can use your bank card to make a donation in any amount. Our other two programs are on Radio Station 1 on Thursdays and Fridays. At the 6 o'clock hour on Thursday, you'll see a listing for a night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon there, and that takes you to our account where you can make a donation and then the uh, Friday night program, Hard News on Friday nights with Tara and Rama at the 6 o'clock hour is the other other program we have there. So, yeah, any one of those three work great. So thank you for taking that action and keeping us afloat here as we um, keep up with what, what our bills are each week with DBS Radio. And we'll be picking on the bills for that we're behind. And, they're tolerating us being late, which is very generous for February. So just know that we, we're needing to keep up, most importantly, and then we then we need to catch up. So um so there's lots happening there. Uh so dig deep, thank you a lot for your generosity. And uh yeah, and thank you for all the ways you show up in your lives. So we're also assisting Tara and Roland with their needs. And this week they need $500 to cover the bills that are due this week. And then they also need $400 to finish paying off for the car repair. And uh, lots of gratitude for the mechanic being patient with that. And lots of gratitude for all of you to pay attention to that. <laughs> then they need a couple hundred dollars for their personal um, you know, food and and gas and all those other things that show up during the week that you got to have the money for. Um, so that's what that's about. And again, thank you for your generosity. Here's how we make a payment to Rama's PayPal account. There are two ways. One way is to go to our web address, which is a great place to go and look up all kinds of things. So here it is, rainbowroundtable.net. And as you get to that homepage, there's the menu grid there. You click on that, 
that menu drops down, and you can look at all the stuff that you can find there. But near the bottom of that list is the Donate button. So as you click on that, that links you to Rama's uh, or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And uh, or you can make a donation in any amount. And the other way is to access the friends option, which you do by putting in Rama's email at that account. And that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And there you go. Either way is perfect. Just put in the amount that you're gifting when that as you as you enter it that way. And it goes a little further. Either way is perfect. We're grateful, grateful, grateful for your donation and for supporting Tara and Rama with what they need. We are so grateful for their service. And I believe this is their thirteenth year of doing this on the radio. So We've been keeping it happening all this time. Let's just keep it going like we do. And so much gratitude to all of you for supporting us in this way and supporting ourselves and paying it forward and and tapping into the magic of paying it forward, that increased abundance coming your way. May many, many, many blessings come your way. Um, So what else? Yeah, as you're sending something, let Rama know that you sent something in his email address for that, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. Just let him know what you sent when you sent it, and uh, that way he can plan his day. And then the other thing, if you need it, is his mailing address, and it is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz, B-E-R, K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. And I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it. All the information you need for making those contributions. Thank you for paying it forward like that. So much gratitude and many blessings to you. Um, yeah, 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life and no evil. And I'm going to pass this talking stick and you know it's got all those beautiful rays on it. The <clears throat> and the violet flame and the pink ray and the lavender ray and the golden ray. And, and uh all these frequencies of the gems and then lots of fairies and lots of abundance coming on this talking stick. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. Happy full moon coming up. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. Rainbird. Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, uh, we just heard that tomorrow, Sunday, is the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in oh. Selma, Alabama. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. 
I just got to think about this. How old am I? <laughs> Play supply with fire. There are many things going on. <laughs> oh, it's just outrageous. That was 1973, right? Yeah, and I, oh, somewhere along the line, I heard that um, the album, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, is over 50 years old as of this weekend. And that's a big deal. I saw them lie do it. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's how many years ago? 50. 1973 as well? It could have been 73, 72. I thought. Yeah, I don't really remember. But the energies, um, I could just say, are barreling in. I got a message from Mr. X saying that the there are X-Class players now coming in, and I saw a couple M-Class today, and he just said that big one, uh, a.k.a. the Solar Flash, could be at any time. I don't know. I do know the energies are as high as uh, we all can take. And... Um, this is opening us up into the fifth dimension, and all the kingdoms, queendoms are here. And I have a story here, it's 17 minutes long, about Archangel Ariel, who took the form of a fairy in the beginning of this story. Way, you know, like a throw Genesis and the whole story out there about whatever you may have heard. Because um, this is about these beings that I keep talking about, and it's not fairy tales, it's real. The archangels, the seraphim, the cherubim, the ones that sit before Mother, Father, God on that throne, and I could say this is real. The kingdoms upon kingdoms, queendoms in the higher realms. When an archangel comes down and takes on the form of fairy to help bring about creation, it is a really big deal. And this story is about Lemuria and the subsequent events afterwards. And I can just say I was touched by this um, because these, these are the real beings that help us interact with earth, air, fire, water, ether. And as we want the elements to calm down, I mean... I saw on the Weather Channel this morning, there are people in California where they're having to helicopter in cords of wood for these people to stay warm because the snow is so deep. This is a climate change, climate disruption. And Greg Braden talked about this. Three things, climate disruption, consciousness being raised to the highest level, and conflict, and we got it all.
going on right now. And as we talk to the elements, all the kingdoms, all the queendoms, and um, they're just as real as you and me. They eat, they drink, they are part of the circle of life. And, and um, as we get to know them, they help us out. And it's not just uh, Harry Potter and Mary Poppins. <laughs> um, um, I was going to just say, this is another subject, but I think it was an important thing. It was this afternoon, the Supreme Court hears arguments on student loan debt forgiveness. Wish you could, could you grab that, Rama, and bring it a little bit forward? Mm. And Justice Elena Kagan, uh, she says, Supreme Court questioned Biden's student loan forgiveness. Uh, Congress could not have made this much more clear. I mean, Congress didn't say exactly the circumstances in which it wanted the secretary to use this authority. Of course not. This is a bill about, like, what happens when you have an emergency. So what Congress said is what happens when you have an emergency is the secretary has the power to take care of emergencies and it has the power to take, uh, it had, and it has that power by way of waiving or modifying any provision and adding others in lean of them, in lieu of them. So, I'm just going to let that sit, and we'll see what happens. But Rama had a message today. I'll just read it. You, you were saying, but I'll read it. I received a text message from Mr. X at 12.30 p.m. this afternoon. He said to me, Lord Rama, I am in Istanbul, Turkey. I am to have words with Mr. Erdogan. That guy's a lovely little traitor dictator. There are many blaming him for the lack of immediate aid to the earthquake victims. The X-class flares are getting bigger. That big one, a.k.a. the solar flash, could happen at any time. This is not about extinction-level events. It is about moving fully into the fifth dimension. There are great things afoot. Focus on the light and the love coming in. This is the prescription for Mother Earth. All the kingdoms and the queendoms are here to restore Mother Gaia. The gauntlet is in our hands. See you in the light of the most radiant one. Satnam, namaste, blaze the light of the fire. Is there anything more you want to say about that, Rama? Just that in this story of um, Aurora the fairy, uh, they speak about the fire dragons, the water dragons, the various five elements that come into play here as earth you know, was formed, and uh, 
you know, they I don't go into. I'll just let it speak for itself. <laughs> Are you, you okay? Yeah. So let's let's play the podcast from Aurora of Lemuria. Yeah. Seventeen minutes, everyone. Yeah, maybe you should read that. Okay, I'll read this little piece first about that. In February 2023, I was guided to visit Mount Shasta. I am a deeply spiritual person, so this was not an unusual request. Late that night, I reached out with my consciousness and heard, quote, Welcome home, Aurora. This is how I began communicating with Aurora and my Lemurian guidance team. Right now, you may very well be asking, who is Aurora? (laughs) She was a fairy who acted as the guardian of the natural world during the time of Lemuria. Aurora and my guidance team have asked me to create a podcast that will bring her life and teachings into the light. The first episode is available. And isn't that this? Yes. Okay, let's listen. 17 minutes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Aurora of Lemuria, Guardian of the Natural World podcast. I am Carol Weekland, your host. I am so excited about this new, new podcast today. I'd like to begin by just basically giving a little bit of background about who I am and how I came into this. I am an author and very deeply spiritual person that literally about two weeks ago, while I was writing a book, heard from my guidance team that I was to go to Mount Shasta after I finished writing that night. And so I did. And as I approached Mount Shasta, I heard, Welcome home, Aurora. Well, this was a surprise to me. You know, I've been doing a lot of uncovering, as so many of us have, of our past lives. But Aurora had never come forward before, and I really had no idea she was there. So this was extremely fascinating for me. Now, what I am being guided to do in this particular podcast is to give you an idea of how everything came about on this earth. Since Aurora is the guardian of the natural world, she would like me to share with you basically the origins of Earth to begin with. And to do that, I am going to start simply by going back to the very beginnings of creation of the Earth. And this is coming through now, not only Aurora, but the highest aspect of Aurora, who is Archangel Ariel. Now, many of you may know that she is the angel of nature. And so it makes very much sense that when she incarnated, uh, she would incarnate as a fairy, which is a nature spirit. Now, she wants to go back way before Lemuria, to the beginnings of Earth. And what many people would consider to be 
the creation of Earth. Now, this will be different than, you know, what you hear come down from science or from the Bible. This is coming through an archangel and then into Aurora, who is, of course, as I said, uh, a fairy. And this is the creation story. And she's saying right now, it truly is Archangel Ariel who will be telling it because she was present at the moment of this Earth's creation. And so what she would like you to do is relax all memories of what you have heard before regarding the creation of Earth. Try not to think she's saying in any linear frame of mind. Originally, when God, source, creator, wanted to create a new place, a new planet, basically a throne angel came forward, who is what we know as Gaia, to embody that planet. And in order to do this, God, source, creator, called out to the elementals, especially to begin with the dragons. Now, if this is new to you and you don't think of dragons as being real creatures, you think of them as being strictly from fantasy novels and films, once again, this might be a great leap of faith. I personally, Carol Weekland, work with elementals. I teach about them. I write about them. So for me, this makes perfect sense as Archangel Ariel tells the story. So God's source creator called in the dragons who are of earth, air, water, and fire and started off with dragons of the air element to create air around the earth so that the beings of earth would have the ability to breathe the air. So these dragons of the air were literally breathing in with their dragon's breath, the actual air element. Now, this might seem, once again, very strange. People think of dragons as having a fiery breath. And indeed, fire dragons do. But right now, we're talking about air elementals. And that breath is very much air as it comes out. And they started creating the atmosphere the air, the cloud formations around Gaia. At the same time, the earth dragons were coming forward to create the earth around Gaia as well. Now, with this, they are breathing in the actual dirt, the rocks, and such, the crystals, and the fairies, who are also elementals, are coming in to create the individuality of the dirt particles, the crystals, the rocks. And all of this is being built around Gaia, who is holding the energetics of Earth within her being, the codes 
of herself as Earth Mother, connecting in to the Divine Mother Presence. Now here, Aurora, and indeed Archangel Ariel, have me pause and bring in that the Divine Mother and the Divine Father Presence are aspects of God's Source Creator that split away in an earlier time frame. And when Aurora and Ariel were just mentioning this, how Gaia was holding the mother template and codes within her, which she still holds to this day. It's just so many beings on earth were not listening to those codes. And basically Gaia's voice for millennia, you know, you might want to say. Now, we were talking about the dragons breathing in the earth around Gaia. You also had dragons and fairies creating large impressions within the actual earth itself so that we would have coming up the beautiful oceans, the seas, the lakes, the ponds, the streams, the rivers, and anything that might be affiliated with water and the water element. And once those impressions were created, then you had the beautiful water dragons come forward, and they began at this point to breathe in the water element. Now, please realize, as each of these elements are being brought in, you have the fairies that are working within that element, along with creator beings that come in and create the different creatures that live within those elements. And we'll break that down in greater definition. So I mentioned that the water dragons were breathing in the water element and into the beautiful seas and the oceans. This took quite some doing, as you know, because they were very, very deep. Now, once the waters were coming in and the water dragons were using their breath to create the waters, We had a need also for the fire element and for light. And this came through the fire dragons. And they literally brought in the sun for this particular solar system. And the sun is another beautiful, beautiful angel that has an entire beingness built around it of flame. Both the sun and our earth have worked together before as angels. So they had a beautiful working relationship as this process was occurring and now throughout time as well. So the fire dragons are working on creating the magnificent sun that provides light for the earth. 
now at this point, you have each of the elements in their rawest forms. And you have the fairies coming in and creating within each of those elements the different beings that they become guardians for. For instance, tree fairies are creating the trees and they act as guardians to each tree and they make each tree individual, even though some trees will all be maple, some will all be oak. They are all individual unto themselves, just like every human being is individual to his or herself. Now, also within the earth element, uh, you have the fairies creating the plants, the grasses, the flowers, and they are making each of them unique in color, in scent, in texture. This is a very beautiful, intricate process that they are creating. Fairies of the earth also, as I mentioned, had to create the particles of dirt so they are unique. The rocks so that no two are the same. These are all tinted with fairy magic to make them very individualistic. And then you also have the fae creating the crystals which have such power on this earth plane. And indeed, I'm sure we can have an entire podcast devoted to the crystals and how Aurora worked with them in Lemuria to power the stargates when I'm rushing ahead of myself. Now, at this point, we also have the fairies of the waters bringing in and creating along with creator beings the different beings of the waters, such as fish and the crustaceans, the mollusks, all of these water beings along with the water plants. Now, at this point, Archangel Ariel was very much on the earth plane creating. She helped to create all the animals including, this would be the fish, the insect, the insect kingdom, also the birds of the air, and every creature in the natural world. She was one of the very great creator beings that came forward to do this. And all this is happening at the time of Earth's birth into being. So you have all the animals being created, you have all the insects, all the birds, everything coming into being at this point. And all of them have a sacred job that they are here to fulfill. They have a unique purpose in being, just like each of us. This is very true to this day. So that's something we all truly need to remember in this time of ascension. Now here I will pause because Aurora is mentioning that 
some people listening for the first time here might not know what is meant by ascension. And so we will go over that at this point. The earth right now is undergoing a massive transformation. And I'm sure everyone listening is very much aware of this. Although we might not understand precisely what is happening. Earth is changing from being a third dimensional planet to a fifth dimensional planet. Now, what does that mean? It means the energies of the earth are shifting from being a very dark, fear-based reality. And we can see this on the earth plane if we are truly watching what is shown to us through media such as television and any kind of world news. However, if you are truly tapping in to the spiritual aspect of what is going on right now, this darkness is actually giving way to a higher vibration on the planet. And the more you embrace this, the more you are able to move from third dimension up into the fourth and the fifth dimension, which is no longer fear-based, but all based on love and unity and oneness. And that is what God, Source Creator, is all about, helping us to live in a state of love, very much what is known as the Christ consciousness coming back throughout this entire earth plane. Now, we were talking about the birth of Earth. This, as I said, was a very different process than what we might be thinking uh, if we're familiar with science or indeed looking at the way the Bible presents it. So Aurora and Archangel Ariel would like you to feel into this to see what kinds of truths you can take from what was just shared. They deem it as very, very important. Now, Aurora would like me to stop here at this first podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in for this first episode. And I look forward to relaying what other information she brings forward in future podcasts. So once again, this is Carol Weekland with the Aurora of Lemuria Guardian of the Natural World podcast. Thank you for tuning in and have a great day. Okay. (laughs) So now we're going to go to Amanda Ellis and Her presentation is called March Quantum Leap. You will land just fine. I think that says it. So we'll just begin. um, I'll read a little bit while Rama's finding it. Okay. Safe passage to new beginnings and free-spirited wild breakthroughs. You will know when it is your time to leap this month. 
be it in mindset, opportunities, relationships, work, or anything else. There may be something to sacrifice as endings close out. She wolf energy. What a month March can be. The 11, 11, I rise energy has completed. And now you stand ready for the moment to shift into new thinking, new ways of being. Letting go of obligation, overt obedience. Whoops. And always say yes to what about me? Feeling alive versus the hamster wheel. What gives your heart a smile? Energy of the rising warrior and divine masculine. Healing heart wounds. Unicorn energy preview. Oops, wow. Filling dry pockets within. Guidance on those not prepared to do the work and hunting us down. They won't succeed. Power animal for the month is the bull. Taurus. Steady, grounded, and powerful. Yes, Taurus, Taurus, Taurus. The ability uh, to both make money and spend it. Yes, indeed. Okay. They won't succeed. Power animal for the month. The bull. Have a great month. All right, let's do it. Okay. This is one hour and six minutes. Here we go. Commercials. everyone how are you doing this is amanda i do hope that you're well today is march the 3rd 2023 and i thought what we would do is a general reading for the month ahead so we'll get to that in a moment uh, before we do that uh, i thank you for all of your support and love as always i also just thought i would maybe uh, go over some of the subjects that i'd like to do videos on soon uh, let me just grab my pad of paper and some of the signs I've had of various beings around me, members of the heart squad that want to come through. To be honest, I don't have enough time in the day at the moment, it has to be said. But uh, this is what I'm sort of working on bringing through within the next couple of months. I'm just going to say couple of months, so you're not expecting it tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, so on my list of things to do, I'd like to do the second Lilith video. And well, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one that I want to do. Um, I have been asked by one of you to read on the Murdow or Murdoch, not sure how you pronounce it, trial in America. I, I've held off from doing so. And I think I'm going to hold off from doing so until actually the verdict comes in. 
because I'm not really interested in doing a reading on did he do it, didn't he do it. I mean, I have my own perspective. I think he did. But it's not really about that. It might be quite interesting to look at that family and look at the dynamics within it and pull out some pithy aspects of learning for all of us. Because it's a bit like when I was looking at or some of the videos I've done on the royal family, you can pull out aspects that are happening, which might be reflecting in your own family to a lesser extent, maybe, but still might be there. Um, whether that be, I don't know, adultery or greed or anything else. But certainly that family in US wow, it is just like a toxic mess, isn't it? And of course, yes, two people have sadly lost their lives. But yeah, I, I might come back to that. I'm still mulling it over. Also, an email that came in from one of you. Thank you, Megan, um, in particular, talking about do particular places and pieces of land have energies which need clearance. I mean, you probably said it in a better way than that, but ultimately that's what you're saying. And of course, yes, is the question. You're talking about the Idaho area. Also, there are other places around the globe. I don't just want to focus on America, but maybe you could drop some comments below um, where we could shine a spotlight onto them more to see what is the energy that they're holding. And in particular, places that need a clean up. So without wanting, and also I don't want this to get all political, but one of the other areas that I have on my radar is Little Rock in USA. I know, you might know that I've done the video on Palestine and the clean up that's needed there because of the chemical spill. But I believe there was also another explosion in a chemical factory or chemical plant. And from what I understand, there was a group of uh, employees on a plane that flew from Little Rock who all died, basically. This was in the last couple of weeks, who were going to investigate that particular explosion. Now, we could do a video on that as well. But actually, it's more about... What piqued my interest was the mention of Little Rock again. Uh, feels infamous for all sorts of reasons. So what is that land holding? Let's forget about people for a moment. Uh, I don't mean the people that died. I'm just saying, you know, let's not make it about personalities. Let's go back to the land. And what has the land maybe absorbed in particular places? How can we help uh, to clear these spots upon the earth? stains upon the earth I'm hearing um, which want to become abundant and beautiful again uh, they're holding trauma or Metatron's saying it's as though they're they can be excuse the pun launch pads for a form of darkness to maybe grow in our world but yeah give me some other examples from around the world um, but I'm not going to get into personalities or anything like that linked to it so Idaho, we all know why we're looking at Idaho, the Brian Koberger case, but I'm wanting to look at the land. So that, I think that could be a really interesting video. What else have I got on my list? 
Um, there are a few that I haven't done that I said I was going to do months and months ago. I never forget what I've said I'm going to do, by the way. It's just that sometimes things come in and then I lose my enthusiasm or the energy's just not there anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm just being honest. But uh, one that keeps coming back is the video I promised on rhesus negative blood. I'm rhesus negative myself, so I've got like a vested interest in that one. Quite like to look at that. Um, I'm seeing a lot of signs of, from this guy. Some of you will know what this refers to. Uh, if I see any more single black gloves just everywhere, I'm going to scream. I know he wants to come through again. Michael Jackson is the reference there. Uh, lots of you asking for Alan uh, Rickman in February. February's gone. But, you know, time isn't linear at the end of the day. Could do Alan again. Bob Marley. And uh, to my left, you can't see it, but I've actually got a little altar set up for the second JFK Jr. video. And I want to bring through some more straight channeling on that because I had to introduce the whole subject in the first one and it's going to be much more about uh, tell me about Camelot, tell me about what Camelot stands for, t talk, tell me a little bit about Avalon and getting into that whole sort of mythical time energy. Um, those of you that don't follow me on Instagram and Facebook, you will have missed that I'm also picking up energies linking into uh, the twin flame energy with regards to JFK Jr. and Carolyn. But he's then also led me to Linda McCartney, Paul McCartney. Linda McCartney somebody that I think would be fascinating to channel. I know there's um, International Women's Day coming up quite soon, isn't, isn't it, on the 7th? I don't know whether I'll have time to do it by then. I'm not promising it, but uh, it'd be good to do some sort of powerful woman around then. And... Uh, yeah, other stuff. I can't remember off the top of my head what the other stuff is, but <laughs> I know there's other stuff. Right, let's get to March then. Let's get to March's video. See what wants to come through. Oh, by the way, thank you very much to Bracker Goldsmith, who sent me a copy of her Palladian Oracle deck. Um, Shall we start with one of those? Let's just do that. So thank you very much, Bracker, for the deck. Um, nice little note in with it from Bracker and the Peas. She channels the Palladian energy, of course. So these cards are all examples of her artwork. She's quite a prolific artist, isn't she? And uh, all beautiful colours. You know I'm into all of the colours. So they're all rather lovely and they've all got a message with them as well. Um, I'm, I assume she's also using them on her channel. But thank you very much, Bracca. Very lovely. Thank you. I appreciate the gift. Let's um, let's pull let's pull three to start with, shall we, for March, and then just add to it. How am I feeling generally about this month coming in? I feel as I was quite glad to get February done. It has to be said. <laughs> Not that anything terrible happened, but it just felt as though it was a little bit heavy, certainly towards the latter part of the month. And March has come in with a fresh new energy. So I'm feeling relatively optimistic and uh, let's hope it continues, hey? Let's uh, let's make it a good month. Okay, three cards then from Bracker's deck for March and the month ahead. Okay, two have come out together. And one more, please. Okay. So 
So um, the third card that came out is this one, which says celebrate the earth, which I think is a bit of a nod to what I was just saying about the work that I feel we need to do to clean up the um, accident spots in our world and the trauma spots in our world. And I know many of you already do this work, but I think if we can combine our forces uh, in a single video, which acts as a portal and a clarion call, that's really going to help. So celebrate the earth um, because when you are healing the earth or trying to, it's very important, a bit like when you're healing your own self, it's important to keep in mind the healthy, well version of yourself post-recovery rather than identify too strongly with just the unease or disease within the body so that you become that even more than you already are. So it's a difficult one because at the moment we're seeing so much um, devastation, to be honest, across the planet with regards to the abuse of Mother Earth. And I do believe we all have to take better care of her uh, to leave her in a better state for the next generation to come. That's the task or should be the task of every generation. And we can become very despondent and jaded and focusing on everything that's wrong, everything that's harming her. But in a way, we then are helping to manifest even more of that. So needing to remember that this is a beautiful earth, um, to celebrate her, to celebrate her ability to be able to regenerate and rebirth every year. You know, it's March here in the UK. We've already still got, we've got a little daffodils trying to come through uh, the crocus crocuses are coming through uh, bird song appearing you can really feel that spring is about to birth itself in another probably month or so not out of winter yet but you know celebrating what mother nature does what the earth does so let's see what two cards came out together Right. So the first one, I'm really all for this at the moment. It says simplicity is the secret and it comes with tune into the rhythmic pulse of life. Uh, I think that's a very powerful message because the rhythm of life, the heartbeat of the earth is steady and strong and sure. The pulse of God, universal light, whatever you want to call it, is, st is strong and steady and sure. Constant. It isn't always going into drama and being distracted from that very beautiful rhythm. Day in, day out, the sun sets, the moon rises in the sky, etc., the waves come in, the waves go out. Even when there is disruption, nature has this way of always being able to find a harmony again, to bring itself back into balance. But yet as human beings living upon her, we find that really difficult to do. So we need to take the lead from Mother Nature here and to come back to simplicity um, letting go of that which is not required, focusing on what is actually truly important, focusing, I, I feel so strongly at the moment, the desire 
to just focus on our own journey, focus on our own journey. We're living in this 24-7 society that's wanting to pull us down, distract us, um, zap up or any energy that we've got, whether it be via technology or anything else. And, of course, media, which is trying to pull us into this story, hook us into this story. I think so many of us have got really wise, particularly in the last couple of months, to how they do that. And even even if we think we sort of, well, we know that and we've always known that, I think we're now starting to see the stories that come in and they're put in our front of our face and they try and hook you in. And then you realise you're obsessing about that to the expense of other things, the expense of yourself. Come back to yourself, simplify it all. Um, so those are the messages that I get with those three cards. I think I'll pull a fourth because today works out as a four numerological day. Three, three, twenty, twenty-three adds to thirteen. One and three make four. So let's have a fourth card. What is the fourth wheel, basically, <laughs> that we need in March? What is the fourth wheel that we need in March to keep us feeling steady, please? What is the fourth wheel? Take a quantum leap. Interesting. Take a quantum leap. Because what I'm being shown is, put it this way, you take a leap into the unknown when you have a degree of certainty that you're going to land back on your feet or back on the four wheels, okay, you're not going to fall flat on your face. The feels as though there is this, I'm picking up a very Taurian energy, and I don't know if there's anything going on with Taurus at the moment in in March. Is March the energy of Taurus? Sorry, I'm not an astrologer. Let me just... You can go to Bracca for that. But let me just have a look. When does Taurus season kick in? I'm suddenly feeling very strong Taurus energy. Um, I should know this because my daughter's a Taurus and I think I'm too early because she's in May. Taurus dates are April the 20th to May the 20th. No, so I'm a month early. But hey, you know, I, I don't tend to operate on linear time. <laughs> uh, I started this video by saying I thought it was May the 3rd. Uh, and then we did it. And actually, if you look at May the 3rd, I think Pluto has just gone retrograde on two days previously. So I already feel like I'm there. I already feel like I'm delving into or going back to have a relook at the shadow within myself, within the collective, etc. I don't know. I'm picking up a very strong bullish energy, uh, grounded energy, because this card about take a quantum leap. You know, normally that would be like, oh, my God, just take a leap off the cliff and symbolically and like, where the hell are you going to land and have trust and have faith? But I'm not really feeling that. I'm feeling this is basically saying, no, take a leap because you know it's going to be OK. You know it's going to be OK. You know that you've got two feet. You're going to land on them, um, etc. So the security within this quantum leap, I feel there's great security you know, the colour red, the colour of security, base chakra, security in this leap. Let's have a little bit more of a look at this quantum leap for March. Um, let's go to some other cards as well, just to weave different energies in. 
let's go to this deck, which I had out uh, to use. Wisdom of the House of Night by PC Cast and Colette, Karen, Colette Baron Reed. Slow down, Amanda. Right. I'm being shown this quantum leap now. I'm being shown a long jumper. You know a long jumper when they run up and they run up and then they, they do. They Somehow they manage to usually land on their feet, don't they? That's sort of what I'm getting that we're doing this month, that we can propel ourselves further than we think is possible. We can propel our body further than we think is possible. And I've got a bit of a wry smile here because end of the month, I'm going to Switzerland. First time I've been to Switzerland for decades, actually. And where we're going to be, I've got a view of the Eiger, uh, the mountain outside my bedroom window. And I just know there's going to be all sorts of magic happening. And of course, you know, the desire to climb the mountain. And I went into total panic last night. I know I'm deviating a bit, but I think this is relevant. I went into total panic last night. I thought, my God, you've got 20, 20, 20 odd days to get ready, lose a bit of weight, get fit, to do all this. And I thought, no, I'm just going to, you know, what's that expression about let the mountain come to come to me? <laughs> Somehow I'm going to be crawling up there. I have got two feet. I will make it. Maybe not all the way to the top, but some of it. There's definitely a lighthearted energy to this quantum leap. It's going to be easier than we think it's going to be. <laughs> I've seen the long jump, though. It's like what feels impossible and that you can't do. How can a human being who's five foot ten or whatever or six foot, even if they're tall, how can they get from there to there just by jumping in the air? But somehow they do. Um, so it's also about power of the mind, isn't it? <laughs> right. Quantum leap. What else is there to say? Let's focus on this quantum leap. What do these cards have to say? So March's energy for the people watching. March's energy for the people watching. Conclusion. Something has ended for something new to begin. Pretty clear, isn't it? Something has ended for something new to begin. It's a bit like when you do read a book and it's been maybe it's been a really good book. You've really enjoyed it. You've got to the end of the page and you're like, oh, what a shame that's over. Or it's an author that you've read all of their books. It's like, oh, I haven't got anything else to read now of that particular author. Well, it's about finding a new author. It's about finding a new book. It's about writing a new script. This feels very final, but very grounded. It feels very safe. I've read so many times, and many of you will have seen many of my videos where we talk about endings and beginnings. And often the energy has felt really quite shaky and vulnerable and a bit fearful and frightening and all the rest of it. But this feels as though I'm not picking any of that up with this. It just feels it's ended. Something else is about to begin. You're going to take a leap. We are going to take a leap as a collective. It's going to be okay. You're going to land back on your two feet. Tell me more about the energy of conclusion, please. 
going to go to the Metatron deck because I'm feeling an energy of karma completing as well. Um, some karmic cycles completing. Tell me about conclusion, please, Metatron, for March, for the people watching. What is concluding? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, uh, those of you who've been with me since November, we did that work about raising our Kundalini energy uh, on 11-11. We had the mantra, I rise. Well, it feels as though we have um risen our energy to the degree that is needed to complete the quantum leap i rise i rise i rise the energy has been building within ourselves, like the runner like the high jumper who has to get themselves into a state of readiness to psych themselves up to do it go back to what i was just saying about me being in Switzerland and the blinking mountain, oh my God, I haven't lost the weight and I haven't done this and I haven't done that. doesn't matter. I am actually ready. It's my shadow side that's thinking you've got to be a certain way. You have, you know, you've got to be a certain way to approach this. You already, you, you've, you've got what you need is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, you've got what you need. Now, I'm saying this knowing that the awakening process at the moment is creating big energy slumps and big energy highs. Two days ago, I literally, I sat at this desk and I was just like this for the whole day. I couldn't do any work. I was tired. I should have just gone to sleep. In fact, I did sleep for 10 hours that night. Woke up feeling much better. But I'm very aware that, you know, there are some days where it's like, really? Have I really risen to the degree that I need to make this jump? Because I just feel shit. But the thing is, we're in time frames now where things are changing very, very quickly. And actually, without naming or shaming anybody, because I put a little video up on Facebook on the day that I felt so flat and tired. And I basically said, I feel very flat. I feel very tired. This is also um, a time where we need to be resting and receiving. That's where I am today. And then the next day I posted a new video or something and somebody said, hold on a minute, I thought you were resting and receiving. And I said, yeah, I did. A 10 hour sleep. I feel great now. Because what I wanted to say was we can shift our energetic states quickly. So don't get too despondent if you're in that slump. And it's like today I just feel like, you know, if I stagger downstairs and get a pot noodle, not that I eat pot noodles, that will be an achievement. Um, the next day, you might be full and fizzing and ready to go. It's like the runner who runs the race. It's like the long jumper. You're preparing for a particular moment. And it's the moment that matters. The moment is the moment where you're about to take the quantum leap. And in that moment, you have the energy that you need. You've concluded the build up. You've done the training. However that looked. Even if you feel as though you haven't necessarily been in training, what the hell is training anyway? Life is one big training journey. Okay, it's about how you, the thing about Kundalini energy as well, you, you can do various techniques and, you know, um, to, to, to help with that, whether it's yogic techniques or meditation or visualization or working with all sorts of different things. But ultimately, the way that really you raise the 
frequency in the body and you tap into, whether it's Kundalini or any other helpful energy that you have, is via who you are and how you react to people, how you react to situations. It's the day in, day out, breathing and living and how I'm responding to that particular situation. And have I been able to respond from a place of love? Have I been able to respond from a place of forgiveness? Have I been gentle, including to myself? Okay. It all adds up every single second, every single minute, every single hour of every day. It's as though there is this universal energy uh, watching as well as your own higher self energy, just observing how you're doing. And I think I'm being given the assurance that many of us, I can't say for everybody, but for many of us, we've done the work between November and February and we're now entering March and March there's going to be a lift off. There's going to be a lift off. So quite exciting. And I also can see that many people have been doing the work because the conclusion is I rise, I have risen, I've done the work, I've gone within, I'm concluding that chapter and now I've got this energy which I can now use for action. March feels like a month of action positive action. Look at her face. She looks pretty happy to me. She looks pretty content. She looks glad to be out there. Okay, let's carry on. March's energy. March's energy for the people watching. I'm laughing because it's so dualistic energy. On one hand, we've got the energy of this feels very, I think I'm right in saying I watched Steve Judd's video. I think as Steve said, Saturn is going into Pisces. This feels very Saturn going into Pisces energy to me. Um, Saturn, the hard taskmaster, you will obey, you will work, you will do as I say. Um, you will create structure, um, you will learn, you will be taught, you will sit. <laughs> and, but there's this energy, this Piscean energy of just, I just want to float and swim and play and be like the dolphins, you know, I just want to blow bubbles. And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how this is all going to play out. But it feels as there's a bit of a push-pull with the energy of work and play. But also it's linked into this thing about obedience. Let me just check into that. Obedience and play. Let me have one more card. Obedience and play. So there's a few different ways I could go with this. Just want to see what, wants, what the cards want to say. Obedience and play. March for the people that are watching. What, what are we trying to say? Obedience and play. Yeah. Okay. There's an energy of other people's demands upon you that you have to do this. You have to look a certain way. You need to do it now. 
And then when you've done that, you need to do it again. You need to do more. Demands, demands, demands upon your time. You will obey. Okay. This could also be collective, like a clamping down on the collective. But I also think it's just individual. It's people in your life. It's it's the energy of givers and takers. If you're a giver like me, there's going to be a lot of takers who are just like, well, why can't you do that for me? And then when you've done that for me, can you do that as well? Oh, can you do, can you pick up the, on the way back as well? All this type of stuff. Okay. But there's this spirit within you, which is just like, nah, don't want to play by that old game anymore. I want to be more free spirited. We've got the cards of individuality and confidence, individuality and confidence. I like the fact that this card here, she's standing beside a horse. It is a horse. I mean, I know it's a horse. I'm just saying it is a horse because I've been writing about the unicorns all week. They've got some new unicorn sprays coming out in the next week or couple of weeks. Hopefully not too much longer. We're just waiting for one more bottle. It's going to be three of them. So I've been writing the words to two of these unicorns. And the thing about them is I've got a very Saturnian energy. Okay, I've got Saturn on the midheaven. Um, it's always been... It's been a great teacher, the Saturn energy for me. But uh, there's part of me now, she's like, ah, come on, I've had enough of this. I just want to go and play now. I want to have some fun. I want to go and run up that mountain. <laughs> I want to eat the fondue <laughs> with it dripping down my chin, all of that, you know. Um, but it's the unicorn energy that really sort of gives permission to not be so adult the whole time. You know, this obedience is very adult. I talked about adulting in the unicorn channeled words that are going to be coming soon. I was really feeling that the energy of uh, adulting versus being the free, the free child. And we all have got that free spirited child energy within us that just wants to play, that wants to fight. Again, it's like being the, the youngster again, finding out who you are. Who are you? I mean, I've got teenagers in the house, so it's a, such an interesting age because just coming out of their shell, trying to work out who they are, what they want to do, um, all of it, you know, how they want to express themselves. But the thing is, it doesn't stop just to age 19 or 20 or younger. We all have opportunities in our life to be inquisitive in terms of who the hell am I actually? And how am I ever going to find out who I am if I'm just, you know, everybody else's whipping boy, basically? Um, errand master is what I'm hearing. I'm just everyone else's errand master. Um, what about me, basically? What about me? So there's an energy coming in here of confidence to be me, to be the individual, beautiful version of yourself that you are. Who are you? So you're being asked to look into that mirror and see that and take a ride, really, into this more mythical land, this more mythical time. This other timeline, you know, the, the horse, the unicorn energy, wanting to help you learn more about yourself um, and much more less of this, you know, much more less of this. Yeah. Anything else to say before I move on here? Feel there's one other message with regards to this obedience. Obedience. It's not coming out there. Uh, let's go to Metatron. Metatron deck. The obedience card. Okay, it came straight out. Oh, yeah, perfect. The card of the heart. So this is 
What is my heart telling me in March that I want to do? What do I really want to do? And what is actually feeling like it's just a sense of total obligation? I've said I'm going to do it, so I'm going to have to do it. But do I want to do it? You know, these are the questions that are going to be going through your mind this month. Follow your heart. Follow the joy. What's your heart? What when you tune into something and you think, I really want to do that, it's coming from this place within your heart. It makes you feel alive, whether it's linked into travel, whether it's about seeing somebody, whether it's about doing something, um, whatever that is. And some of these things might be things you haven't done for a while, pastimes, hobbies, things that you put down. They can even be memories. It, can, it doesn't have to just it doesn't always have to be about you've got to do it. It might just be remembering things that make you happy. Really strange, a strange example. But I was watching some sort of antiques program yesterday and they had um, the Hornby, the Hornby train set. And it was all set up. And there were these couple of it might be Michael Portillo, actually. I like Michael Portillo. I like his shows where he goes around the UK and he visits all the place. Really like his show. And uh, I'm sure when I get older, my kids are going to be, God, she was always watching Michael Portillo shows. But anyway, the point is, I think yesterday they showed this model railway and it instantly it took me back to a memory of my childhood. We used to live in a lovely house and it had a big loft space. It was all you could a beautiful, big loft space. And my dad had uh, and brother were into Hornby Railway and they had it all set up with all of the little people and the, the trees and the moss and the signals and it had sounds. And I don't know whatever happened to it. I think it just got sold. But the memory of it just brought such a smile to my face. Not that I'm about to do it myself, but you get my gist. What what gives your heart a smile? Okay. What gives your heart a smile? I don't know. Because this doesn't, you know, just keeping on saying, yes, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Um, I guess into that, the colour green is also about boundaries. Boundaries is it's okay to say no to what sometimes you don't want to do. You don't have to do. We all have a sense of duty and responsibility. I'm not saying become some irresponsible, you know, idiot that just walks away from the person who genuinely needs you to care for them, look after them. But somehow carving out some time in March is important. Okay. Right, let's now go to um, a spray, I think. And I've got the Archangel Michael spray out, so I pulled this colour for us for March. Rather lovely. Let's see what energy Archangel Michael wants to bring through this March. To stand in your light, to stand... To stand proud. I'm getting this energy of just to stand proud. To, um, to, it's this energy of rising up, to not be so hunched and so, um, hiding in the bushel, you know, your talent, your skill, who you are. Being proud to show up and show your face. There's a card in this deck that I saw before I started which is the energy of the warrior. And I'll just get it out because I think it's appropriate um, for this this time. Where's it gone? Did I already pull it? No, hold on. I'll just pause the camera. Yeah, this card. I saw this card earlier and it was really calling me. The energy of the warrior. 
And I don't know whether it's showing on the camera, but it it reminds me a little bit of a an old painting that's been um, re what do they call it when they clean them, and they have to be very careful not to wipe away the paint or any of the details. Restoration, I say, it, restoration, restoring an old painting. But it reminds me, it's got like a, a watermark there, almost as though some of the paint's been wiped away. It's just an arty-farty sort of expression, I guess, of whatever. But it reminds me of looking into a mirror. And when you look into a mirror that's slightly dirty or covered in dust, you have to wipe it until you can actually see what's really there, i.e. you. So there's an energy here of you being able to truly see yourself more as the warrior, as the warrior. Um, and this isn't from a place of need or fear. It's from a very sovereign place. It's from a place of feeling very sure about who you are. So I definitely feel as though this march is bringing in some energy of assurance, steadiness. I'm, and, and that might, doesn't mean that there might not be challenging things that happen in the collective and in our in, individual lives. But there's just this bedrock of growing sense of self, security, and it's really lovely to, to feel into this energy. I wonder also whether it's linked into the increasing rise of the divine feminine and the divine masculine coming a little bit more into balance with each other within ourself and individually. I was watching the news this morning, actually, and I nearly turned it off. I was just having breakfast, wasn't really listening to it. But it was story after story of sort of examples of toxic masculinity Men who've, you know, killed their wives or partners or done something awful. And I was about to switch it off because I just thought, oh, I just don't want to see any other mugshot of some horrible bloke who's done something horrible to a woman. I'm about, I, was, I was about to switch it off. And then it flashed into, uh, I think it's 500 words day today in the UK. It's World Book Day where you champion writing and reading. And they went to um, an, a headmaster, a male headmaster. And he was sat with his kids. And this guy just had a face like an angel. He, he, he was exuding such goodness, such goodness. He looked like such a good man and such genuine love for his subject, i.e. teaching English and reading and writing. And these little kids were all around him. It was such a beautiful antidote, really, to all of these other examples of toxic masculinity that had just been on the news. And it made me think, actually, there are so many decent men out there, and we we need to be singing their praises more as well. But I also feel as though, you know, we're being fed. Again, it's interesting, what we're being fed by the media, we're just being fed more and more examples of this toxic masculinity. But yet, what about the really good men out there? So I feel as though there's going to be more of a rise of the good men. We're going to, they're going to become more visible. They're going to become more prominent. And indeed, they might be in your home anyway. They might be in your family. You know, a good partner, a good husband, a good father, etc., a good brother. It's time to celebrate that. But equally, the aspect of ourself, the masculine within ourself that is good and true and honourable. A lot of the work that I want to do with JFK Jr. next in the next channeling 
is bringing, I know he wants to talk about these codes of chivalry and honour. And it's very easy to knock him and think, well, hold on a minute, you were like this in your life and you did this. That's just you and us wanting to project and point the finger because we're not wanting to do the inner work. Remember, souls in spirit are still working on themselves in the same way that we're still working on ourselves here on Earth. It never stops. It's always a process of continual evolvement and enlightenment. So when you have like a divine masculine figure such as John coming in wanting to teach us, let's grasp that with both hands and say thank you. Because by him trying to better himself, he's also helping us to better ourselves. Okay, so yeah, the energy of the warrior. Let's just pull a card that goes with the warrior. See what we get. What goes with the energy of the warrior for March, for the people watching me, please. We have Grove. Grove. I'm going to look up the meaning of that card. I mean, I know what a Grove is, but I'm just interested why we have it here and what I'm missing. Secret Grove, a secret place, a hidden place, a place of refuge that we can go to to reclaim our inner masculine, maybe, the the true masculine. It says, this, this deck, by the way, is based on Nyx, the goddess of the night. So it says, I, Nyx, the goddess of night, invite, <laughs> excuse me, invite you to my grove to heal your wounds and mend your heart. Now is the time to apologize to anyone you have harmed Make your friendships whole again and choose healing over anger. Choosing my beautiful grove is a powerful sign that, it, that you are at a wondrous and strong period in your life. Show compassion and kindness to others. No one is perfect, yet imperfection is perfect as it is. If you are hurting, know that it will pass and that I will watch over you. It's interesting that we had the card of the heart earlier. And this is about healing the heart, going into the ref a refuge, a sacred place. This might be a physical place. It might be somewhere you know where you can visit this march that actually soothes your, soothes your heart, soothes your soul. Or it could just be a place in meditation or dream time that you're taken to. But again, the wounds that our heart is carrying. Because if we go back to this earlier card about you will obey, you will do this, you will, you will, you will. Um, it's usually coming from a place of pain. It's coming from a place of unhealed trauma. Uh, it's coming from an old pattern, an old archetype that you might be carrying within you. That maybe, you know, life isn't meant to be fun. Life isn't meant to be good. Um, it's just about work. You work till you die all of that type of thing, you, you know, you can't play. This is all coming up to be healed this this month. Uh, a much lighter spirit is wanting to come in, but it just feels so beautiful that we've got the unicorns coming in. I am going to use one of them, I think, here. And at this point, this isn't yet ready to go in the shop, but if you come back in a week's time, it should be. Uh, this is going to be, this is the healing unicorn, and it says rest and receive. So let's just bring this energy in, the pink and the yellow. Rest and receive. Thinking about your energy of your heart.
giving yourself permission just to stop for a moment to receive the help, the high vibrational light, the unicorn's energy, which just, it really feels like it, I don't know what you're sensing, but I just feel it really fills me. And it, it comes in and it fills me in spaces that I didn't even realize were empty. That's what it feels like. It feels like it's coming into places that I didn't even realize were empty. Places where maybe I haven't been able to feel joy or carry the energy of laughter or play. Coming in and filling that, receiving that energy in. So let them do that to you now. The places, the empty pockets within yourself, which feel barren for whatever reason. I'm also hearing the the words dry socket. That comes to the eyes, doesn't it? Where we haven't been able to maybe see beauty or see joy or give ourselves permission just to have this lighter vibrational energy that guides us and leads us into uh, what I call a playground. It's away from this very serious, you know, business-like professional area. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're always in that energy, it can become very ten of wands. It can become very burdensome. It's a month to put down some of your burdens and play. So, yeah, I love the vibration of that unicorn. It's really lovely. They're really going to help us, I'm sure. Okay, uh, right. Let's end with three other cards. And let's have a see what help is also wanting to come in, as well as the uh, the uh, unicorn. I'm going to pull a card from the Angel and Ancestors deck by Kyle Gray. Let's see what we get here. I am feeling a lot of ancestral energy this month as well. That's coming through because, again, as you heal, your family line heals as well. So if you're carrying an energy of finding it hard to not be so intense and so serious all of the time, that's probably in your family line. So you're going to have your ancestors queuing up for a bit of what you've got, (laughs) passing it on, passing the baton of joy on. Okay, so March. Let's just see what energy wants to help us. Yeah, exactly. We've got the energy of She-Wolf and it says unleash the wild within. It's this free spirited energy that I'm really feeling. And maybe this is the quantum leap. Maybe this is what this is all about. Aided by many beings, including the unicorn energy, to help us leap into um, a more free spirited time to let go of the shackles, which are often self-imposed that we can't do that, or we can't be like that, or we can't say this, we can't do that. Maybe you can. Maybe you can. If it's coming from love, it's coming from your heart, how can it be wrong? And we have the card of enjoy growth and reap rewards as well. And I don't know who that's supposed to be, but to me it feels quite Garden of Eden-like. She's got the apple, she's got the tree. Um So together, two very feminine cards there, unleash the wild within. And this one is linking into the moon that's coming through as well. And we've actually got a moon in Virgo, I believe. Yeah, full moon in Virgo um, on the 7th. So it's quite an interesting message to come in with Virgo because 
I don't know. I, I don't know a lot of Virgos. I've got Venus in Virgo and I do know it likes things a certain way. <laughs> it likes things a certain way and it likes things in order and it likes things to look nice and all of that and decorum and refinery. But this feels as though this is saying, no, come on, just lose. My battery died, but I'm quite glad it did because it's given me a chance to have a look at what it says in the book about this card, She-Wolf. And there's actually quite an important aspect to it that I hadn't picked up that I now want to talk about. So I'll just read it first and then we're going to expand on other people trying to bring us down. Um, Okay, so it says the she-wolf is a powerful shamanic soul who is half wolf and half woman. Ow! (laughs) Such is my sense of humour. She is the alpha female. (laughs) <laughs> that's so funny. I've got, do you remember that T-shirt I've got, which says Alpha Female? My daughter said to me last year, she said, Mum, she said, you can't wear that. It was like one of those cringe moments for teenage daughters where they look at their mother and they're like, oh, my God, you're not going out in that, are you? And uh, I was rebellious. I, I nearly put, I nearly threw it away because they were like, no, you can't wear that. Uh, I thought, no, I bloody well am going to wear it. So I've still got it. I'm going to get it out this summer. But anyway, here we go. She-Wolf. Half wolf, half woman. She is the alpha female who is not afraid to stand out from the crowd. Or in this case, the pack. She is wild, unfiltered and unfettered. She encourages you not to be trapped by the limiting factors of weaker members of the pack or those who are trying to hunt you down because you have gifts they don't like or understand. Mm. She represents the energy of the wilderness and the unknown and encourages you to be free and unchained and go beyond boundaries. We are at times, my friend, friends, there's more than one of you, there's plenty of you. If you're at the place where even if you're wobbling and even if you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure I can, we're going to be taking a quantum leap this month. There's plenty of others out there who aren't even going to try, okay? And what they do is they try and bring you down. And how many times have we experienced that in our life? And I guess we just have to come back, for example, to, you know, the energy of humbleness and humility and compassion and forgiveness. But it is difficult. It is difficult when people constantly try to bring you down. And this is actually hunting you down because you have gifts that they don't like or understand. We're in such split energetic times now. The ones of us that are doing the work, who are trying our best, we're not perfect, we're flawed like everybody else, but we're trying our best to raise our energy up, to be the best version of ourselves that we can, slipping up occasionally, but then getting back on the horse. There are plenty of people out there that aren't even attempting to shift. Don't want to shift. Um, and we are triggering them like crazy at the moment. So March is also going to be a month where that happens more. So let's look at what we can do with regards to that. And I guess the guidance is in the card, isn't it? To be like the she-wolf or the (laughs) he-wolf, you know, to to be unfettered and free. To Michael's, uh, Archangel Michael's energy here about the worry about standing proud now. Doesn't that make sense? to stand sovereign it's to just do you I know I keep saying that in videos but it's so true to just do you and pity pity is a sort of lower vibrational quality that we don't really want to 
put onto others. But I'm trying to think of another word that is maybe slightly nicer. But I must admit, sometimes when people come at me and really try and bring me down, I there is a sense I'm looking and thinking I'm I pity you. I, I pity that you're doing that because I wouldn't want to be where you are. I honour where you are. I honour where you are. I honour the fact you don't want to shift. I honour the fact that you want to point your fingers and judge and blame and project. But I, I pity that I pity you that you want to stay in that because it's so much better if you can try to raise your frequency or in your vibration and be better than that. Because we've all been that. We've all been in that energy. But we don't want to go back to it and we're not going to be going back to it. So these are very, very powerful days. Uh, anything else to say with regards to being um, unfettered and free? Well, we had this card, didn't we? Lady, enjoy growth and reap rewards. Yeah, you're basically just being assured that if you take this quantum leap, you are going to land on your two feet. OK, you're going to be OK, but it's going to bring in great rewards uh, like the apple on the tree, it might not be immediate. It might not be in March that the reward immediately comes, but very bountiful fruit to come, a good harvest to come. And it's as though the best harvest comes by you being uniquely yourself, not following the crowd for the crowd are lost, being uniquely who you are. And what you were meant to be. You're meant to break the mould a little bit. We're in such extraordinary times where fortune is favouring the brave. And there may very well be examples this month where you're offered things to do or opportunities come in. And you can feel your shadow side straight away coming up, wanting to sort of say, no, I don't think I can do that. But step into this aspect instead, this more free spirited, wild part of you that says, yeah, what the hell? It might just lead to this. And indeed, I think it is going to lead to this, because why would it not in a universe that actually loves me? A universe that is actually abundant and with the tribe behind me, my tribe, my people. I know there's plenty of other people out there who maybe can't stand me. I'm talking about all of us here, not just me. <laughs> OK, it's true, though, isn't it? The more that we take a step away from the crowd and the mainstream and do something a bit different or something that's new. What's that saying? What? First, they laugh at you, then they ridicule you, then they try and put you down, then they eventually agree with you or something and get on board. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. So it feels to me a very, very positive month. Let's end with one of uh, Bracker's cards again. OK, let's see. What is the end message, please? Yeah, perfect. Wait, watch. Oh God, sorry. Wait. <laughs> so professional, my videos. 
well, it's just me. I'm being uniquely me. I couldn't be any other way. I couldn't be one of these people that come on in a very professional studio setup with the light here, the light there, action. No, I'm just me sitting in my room. <laughs> Surprised Bella hasn't barked. She hasn't barked in a while. She's probably sound asleep. But anyway, let's get to this. Wait, watch, you will know when. Go back to the runner about to run the marathon. Go back to the person about to do the long jump. You're ready. You will know when it's your turn this month. You will, you'll just know. You're going to know when it's the time to leap and leap you will. Okay. And you're going to find that you can leap higher and, and faster and further than you thought you could. Okay. So you can't force this. It's just a natural rhythm that seems to be coming in. This month, um, it's exciting. It's exciting. Anything else to say on that? Wait, watch, you will know when. Wait, watch when. Okay, I'm hearing another W. Wait, watch when. I'm also hearing why. You don't need to know the reasons why. In terms of if you're given an opportunity to jump and do it, whatever the hell that means. And that can also just mean shifting mindset. It doesn't have to be a big thing in terms of I'm suddenly going to move house, move relationship, any of that. It can just be a shift in mindset. But it's a big quantum leap. It's you evolving and changing in some way. You don't need to always know the whys and wherefores because your heart is telling you. Your heart is telling you. It's a feeling. It's a sense. The mind is going to go, hold on a minute, but, but hold on. But what about X, Y, Z? For, for this month, just try to go more into the heart. I mean, you know, don't be totally ridiculous and switch off the mind completely. But you're not going to have all the answers is what I'm trying to say before you jump. That's the big mystery. That's the big surprise. But what you are guaranteed is you will land on your feet. I hope that helps, my friends. I'm going to get this uploaded now and then I will come back and try and get another video done in the next couple of days. Take great care of yourself. Have a good march. Have a good march. I'm just wondering if there's an animal that would like to come in at this point. And I'm sure uh, there is. OK, the animal deck that I found, which I have to hand, is the Divine Animals Oracle by Stacey DeMarco. So let's just end this video with uh, an animal to inspire us, guide us, teach us this march. Let's see what wants to come through. So which animal in particular needs to come through this march? Oh. Can't make this stuff up. Wow, how powerful is that? I didn't even know this was in the deck. The bull. What was I saying earlier about the bull? The bull. Okay. Um, it actually says sacrifice. Interesting choice of word. Let's just have a little look at what the book says. My gut feel is it's linked into taking this leap and what we have to sacrifice in order to do so. We always have to let go of something 
we had the card of conclusion, something ending, for something new to begin, something has to end. It says all, let me just put the card up, it's so powerful. All worthwhile things mean we must sacrifice something. Martyrdom is rarely a good choice. It's good to trust your tribe, have faith that all will be well, reciprocity and offering to something bigger than you is a powerful act. Yeah, it's about we're being driven on to something bigger than we've known, bigger than we are. It's about saying yes. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to go too much more into the energy of sacrifice here other than to say it's about letting go of something to achieve the new. It's the old version of yourself. It's also maybe letting go of the crowd, letting go of other people's opinions, other people's demands that you be a certain way. It's about following your heart. It's about something bigger than yourself than that you can see that is guiding you on. And ultimately, that's the energy of the heart, which is huge and expansive and wise. And your heart isn't going to let you down. Okay. I'm going to leave it there for now then. Take great care. See you again soon. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Mm, that was good. That was really good. Mm. Okay. Well, that was an hour and six minutes, and this next one is also an hour and six minutes. thought that was interesting. Uh, this one is called Pyramids asteroids and the ancients and this is an awakening conference with Johnny Enoch our private companies from earth mining the asteroid belt in our galaxy author and researcher Johnny Enoch presents a vast array of information at Awakening Conference in Blackpool, UK. Spanning centuries and topics from black budget projects and unidentified uh, para- UAPs. Yeah, unidentified aerial phenomena. Aerial phenomena. There we go. To ancient Egypt and theosophy learn secrets secrets of the ages and explore these historical and cosmic connections stretching across time and space as Enoch reveals his research in dedication to the friend and mentor the late great Jordan Maxwell alright let's do this How's everyone feeling? I appreciate you all being here this early. When you get up this early in the morning, you get your coffee cup out, you say, make it a black pool. 
So, <laughs> what? But today we have a very interesting subject to discuss with all of you: the gods of Babylon and the return of Nigashida. And I know you're all probably thinking, "Well, who's that?" We're going to get into that today. But I always enjoy coming here to the UK. I love it, and especially when I come out here to Zohar and I work with them. Steve Mara is always so friendly. Uh, just as you know, the show attention to detail with all of you here at this wonderful conference. He knows that I always love the cheese and onion sandwiches from Marks and Spencers. So <laughs> there's always a fridge filled with those sandwiches. So when they were first announcing this conference, he said, "Johnny, if you come, I'm going to give you a cheese and onion sandwich." And I said, "Steve, what do you think I'm worth?" I said, "Come on, man." I said, "Make it a meal deal. Throw in a pack of crisps and a Lucasade, and you got yourself a deal." It's a true story. But anyhow. I'm Johnny Enoch. I got this funny sounding name and no, there's no relation to the guy in the Bible, but I have been trying to call the publishers for some sort of kickbacks and rights since 325 CE and they're not picking up the phone. So it's not good. But I got interested in this subject, much like all of you that are sitting in these seats or those watching at home on the other side of the screen. When I was at a very young age, I was having these incredible experiences that maybe some of you can relate to, where sometimes I'd be floating above my bed, looking down at myself. And at other times, I'd be thrust up to these multicolored, hollow fractal energies in the universe looking down at the earth. And I was trying to get answers. Maybe that's something that you've had happen to you before. And when you start asking questions... No one seems to know what really is going on. And you try to get answers everywhere, but you have to go out on your own. And it's a lifelong passion. It's a lifelong quest to look at these things. But we have to go deeper if we want to look at the mysteries. When we go back to Allen Ginsberg, the poet, he said, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of the night. Well, When we look up at the night sky, what do we wonder? We wonder where we come from. Each one of you here, you all have a piece of the puzzle. You all wonder about where you come from. You all have an amnesia. But we can solve these mysteries together. Point in fact, when we wonder about the universe, the macrocosm of the universe is under your nose right now. You are the center of the universe. You existed before all of this. And we start to learn when looking at these mysteries, that our whole universe is a digestive system. It works on causal mechanics or a peristasis. And what does that mean? That means that there's all sorts of oscillating thoughts and that your reality is happening through you and not to you. And this is one of the most magnificent of secrets you begin to learn. In fact, now when we look at our universe, our scientists are saying there's more than 40,000 alien civilizations in our galaxy that they believe. Well, that's a very interesting number. That's what the Diary of Astrophysics is starting to say and starting to publish. Gets us wondering all the incredible stuff that Steve Mara is talking about. All these UAPs, Luis Elizondos. Everybody's scratching their heads saying, what are we looking at when we look up at the night sky? But this idea of space and where we're going, you might say it's a great part of our destiny. What a really incredible thing to think about, that there are more planets in our galaxy than there are grains of sand on all of our beaches on Earth. And if you go 10,000 light years in any direction, 
away from here, you know, you're going to find over 20 million solar systems Mm -hmm. capable of harboring life. It's a rather astounding thought, isn't it? You know, we're located in the back area, you know, the outback, kind of like the black pool of the universe. (laughs) We're out in the middle of nowhere, really. It's kind of neat. Many people, few people are aware of the stuff that's kicking around our universe. You know, it's very strange. What if I were to tell you that there was a crashed craft on Mercury that you didn't know about? Runes all over our moons, solar systems, 25 foot whale like creatures swimming on the outside of the watery surface of Europa. Yep. What if I were to tell you that we have settlements in our asteroid belts? Here's another strange one for you. I don't want you to think about this one. I'm going to tell you today because it's going to sound very strange. What if I were to tell you right now that there are folks on this planet, very wealthy folks, that have food on their dinner table that's not grown here? What if I were to tell you that there's private contracting companies that Elon Musk only has a peripheral understanding of that are mining out in space as well as agricultural experiments with food that tastes a hell of a lot better than the stuff that's grown here and that is brought to Earth in certain cargo places? Have any of you ever heard of Diego Garcia? Oh, yeah. All right. This is in the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Right outside of Mauritius. What if I were to tell you that eh, maybe there's these caisson stone sort of areas that form an underwater tunnel system and transportation system leading off into Australia where the cargo from up there goes outwards. And there's other places like that in the Atlantic, other places like that in the Pacific. And that's not even the end of it. It's much further and stranger and deeper than that. So. You know, when we look at the Earth here, all the good stuff starts about 10 light years from here. And if you start going at about 5, 10 light years, let's say Alpha Centauri, let's say Sirius, and we go even further than that, you go 50 to 100 light years away from there, it starts to get pretty busy. And then you go 1,000 light years out of here, it's extremely busy. It's extraordinarily developed. And this is according to some of my sources in the unacknowledged for special access programs. They're absolutely sure of it that were involved in these things. But you know, when we think about all these ancient visitors, we start to wonder about places, about who's been in here and who's been here in our past. This is, this is me uh, overly enthusiastically standing in front of the Assyrian reliefs of those men with bags at the British Museum. And we get to wondering when we look at these ancient kings, who was helping them? Where were they interfacing with? But you know, before we can ask that question, We have to look at the kings in our modern time. (laughs) Didn't think I was going to take it there, did you? (laughs) This is the king of rock, Elvis Presley. And uh, I'm not going to do an Elvis impersonation because I'll leave that to George Norrie. He's an incredible Elvis singer if you've ever been to his shows. That man loves singing Elvis songs. (laughs) So many of you may not know this, but when Elvis Presley was growing up, He had this blue light coming over his house. He had a stillborn brother. He had these beings of light showing up. And in fact, Vernon, his dad and others had witnessed this. And all through his life, he was absolutely obsessed with the color blue. He even said prayers with the blue light may come over him. This caused a lifelong obsession with this. He wrote over 15 songs of blue in the title, you know, blue suede shoes, blue moon, indescribable blue. Thank you very much. And in 1950s, 
in the 1950s, he had an incredible encounter of a giant mothership in the sky, and it completely caused this absolute fascination with these things. Another interesting thing about him is that everywhere he went, he was trying to contact ETs. He carried around all kinds of esoteric books, his spiritual advisory, lined up outside of the Philosophical Research Society in Las Feliz, California, to try and meet Manly P. Hall to get an autographed copy of his book. He was fascinated with this stuff. He was always talking about Ezekiel's encounter. And you know what book he carried around with him the most that you can find in Graceland to this day if you visit it? Chariots of the Gods. Oh. There at Van Donneken. Mr. Van Donneken and I were having a talk about this the other night. And it's interesting that Mr. Van Donneken, who we're so fortunate to have with us, over 70 million books sold. My God, this man is a legend, the most successful nonfiction author of all time, over 3,000 lectures in 25 countries. And we have him here. Incredible. And he started us talking about all these things. But tonight I want to pay, or today, not tonight, well, tonight also, but I want to pay tribute to my dear friend, Jordan Maxwell. I know Jordan's with us. I know he's listening. So I want to say, Jordan, we love you. Jordan, we miss you. Jordan is the godfather of all of this, this genre, for over 60 years, talking about secret societies, hidden symbolism, etymology and one of the last great projects he worked on was on Gaia so if you want to find out about these things you can go on there but Jordan over the years became a great friend of mine a great teacher a great mentor I learned a lot from him that's us standing in front of the Philosophical Research Society we didn't have to wait as long as Elvis Presley to get in there but Jordan and I we talked about many things on all the road trips and places we went on to all the fascinating people he knew he knew movie producers and rap stars and rock stars who would sit at his bed and try to take notes on things. And we learned, we talked about many of these folks. And some of the interesting conversations we had was about George Lucas and Michael Eisner. How many of you know that George Lucas was almost stopped and prevented from releasing Star Wars? How many of you know that Michael Eisner, the president of Disney and George Lucas were involved in very interesting conversations about disseminating information to all of you about these subjects in a very careful way that wasn't going to be too shocking or overwhelming. And these subjects were taken very seriously. But another interesting fact was a famous movie made by George Lucas. Have any of you ever seen this movie? I know some of us, when we go to these remote areas, we get that music playing in the back of our heads. We, we feel like we're Indiana Jones. Dun, 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 you know? Well, how many of you know that Indiana Jones was based on a real character? This man doesn't get enough publicity. And after today, I want you all to go home and look him up and find out everything you can about him. Incredible. This is George Hunt Williamson. This man is a legend. I'll tell you, well, not only was he an anthropologist, he was a professor at the Colorado University, which it wasn't far from Gaia. And he went on these adventures into temples, into the jungles, doing all these amazing things. And on top of that, he was the real life Indiana Jones. He was also an esotericist. He was an alchemist. He went by the name Doriel. And that's when he was one of the first to translate the Emerald Tablets into English, which is very interesting. But on top of that, he was an ET contactee, a profound ET contactee that was talking about the 12 planets, Marduk, ETs, long before anyone else. And are any of you familiar with who George Adamski is? Yeah. All the hardcore ufologists are raising their hands, two hands over there in the front. 
Adamski, when you go back into the 50s, he had these amazing experiences. How many of you know that it was George Hunt Williamson that introduced him to Orthon in the desert? And one year prior, he was getting ET communications on a radio. Pretty amazing stuff. Was also guiding his work in secret places of the lion, like the Sphinx and the other tongues of flesh. Well, it's interesting when we talk about these emerald tablets and what they mean to the mysteries. Here's my friend Billy Carson. Uh, you guys saw him last night. He wrote this great book. You guys should all run out and get it if you don't have it. The Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. And in there, there's all kinds of great wisdom you can look at. In there, you can learn about the fact that all of you are coming from this one mind. You're coming from the mind of the universe, just as we are talking about. That's how it happens. But in there, there is a very interesting piece of wisdom. It says, I toast the Atlantean who's this fellow over here. We'll get into him in a bit. I told the Atlantean, I built the Great Pyramid. No one else, not those schmucks on the side over in the back, not those guys. I built it, he said, as he held out his great tablets of wisdom designing this. And he encoded into it all the great mysteries of the earth and everything else around it. But what a lot of people don't know, that the Emerald Tablets are also a great alchemical text, and many were fascinated about them, even the likes of Sir Isaac Newton and others, and what they tried to look at the ideas. That in there you talk about ascending and descending to heaven. That's the condensation and distillation of alchemy. You have in there the ideas of the mother and the father, the sun and the moon, the gold and the silver. All these things are the keys to alchemy, and this has been written about and lectured about by my dear friend, Timothy Hogan, who is not only the grandmaster of the Knights Templars, he's a Masonic and alchemical author, and he's demonstrated all these principles in a laboratory. In fact, the Emerald Tablets don't get caught up in that name. Don't, don't even look at that. What that is, that's part of the process. This is really the Book of Toth, the Book of Hermes. This is part of the process. You get these little emerald-like pieces, and they're called the green line. You have the green line. You have the red line. You know, Barry Fitzgerald. Steve Mara has some very interesting alchemical work that they're doing right now over in Ireland. They're looking at some ancient secrets. But if Toth built the Great Pyramid, as we believe in the Emerald Tablet, if he truly was the one that built it, why are we told that it's a pyramid built by Khufu or Cheops, a 25-year-old king that couldn't even tie his own shoelaces? Well, who is Khufu? Who is Cheops? In the fourth dynasty, we're told that he was desperately looking for the book of Toth himself. Because if you looked upon the book of Toth, you were said to have magical powers. But he was also looking for it to find out the secrets of how the pyramids were built. So that's kind of funny, isn't it? But in there, we learned about something I like to call the Khufu deception. Where did that come from? Well, there was a time uh, when there was these, uh, I want to say, gunpowder archaeologists. They were visiting Egypt. You know, we got the likes of August Marriott in 1850, went to the Serapeum, blew a hole in this thing. You got this lovely fellow over here, Colonel Vice. Well, he comes with the British, 1836. And there's a fellow over there, Giovanni Battista Caviglia, and he's doing some work. Has taken about a couple of years. And this fine fellow over here, he says, let's get this guy out of the way. Uh, I, I want to take charge. He comes in there and he starts running things. And after a while, he's not finding anything. Of course, he's not. He's probably having a few cheeky whiskeys every night and uh, sleeping in. 
And uh, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go back to what I do best. He was a forger. He did forgeries all the time, and he takes this red ochre paint. Maybe you heard the brilliant uh, Maria Wheatley yesterday talking about red ochre. It's kind of a clay that you look. And red ochre paint, the best thing about it is you can't carbon date it. You can't trace it. So he does this, and they even make mistakes. They misspell Khufu's name. I don't know about you, but I don't misspell my own name unless I'm signing it in that dark corner with a Sharpie that runs out. But... This guy, he comes in there and he puts this name on the wall. He goes, oh, look at me. I'm important. Give me more money. Look at I found this name up there. It must belong to Khufu, the 25-year-old king that built this thing. Well, that's kind of interesting because when you look at the Great Pyramid, it's absolutely magnificent if you visit it in person. If you want to see it in person, I'll give you a shameless plug. You can join me, Muhammad Ibrahim, and Nassim Haramine this October for the Resonance Academy. Come out there and see it with us. But if you look at the Great Pyramid, two and a half million stones, granite, sandstone, and limestone. It was built like a Faraday cage. And in fact, could it have been a water pump system? Of course. Could it have been a power plant like the great Chris Dunn says in his Giza power plant hypotheses? Of course. Have you ever thought about the fact that it's a polynomial tetrahedral structure that can be turned into a sphere using transdimensional mathematics? It's magnificent, an incredible edifice. It's a sermon in the stone that if you look upon it, you're mesmerized, especially when you go in it. But the idea that it came from the fourth dynasty is really quite amusing. Here's Jujana over here, and we're at the Nubian Museum, and she's pointing out this interesting pre-dynastic art where we see these pyramids on it. But uh, Egyptologists say, oh, I'm sorry, those are mountains. Lots of mountains on the Giza Plateau, aren't there? And uh, they're very clearly showing. This is an interesting piece. It's at the Cairo Museum. Have any of you ever been to the Cairo Museum? Very good. We have quite a few people over here. Well, they keep telling us the big new gem museum is coming, but I guess if they have a few more grand opening parades one of these days, it might actually open. But um, over here, we have more of this art. But you see what's interesting next to the builders of the Great Pyramid? I'm not saying it was aliens, but where's Giorgio? Might be aliens. Well, here's an interesting story for you. This, again, is our friend Timothy Hogan. I was just there with uh, Jay from Project Unity. We were just out with my friend Timothy Hogan. And um, if you've ever been up in the King's Chamber, you'll notice that once you move up the Grand Gallery and you go to the back, there's a fan in the wall that they've blocked up that hole. And if you were to remove the fan, you'd see something interesting. Rudolf Gattenbrink in 1993 goes up into the Great Pyramid. And when he goes there, he brings with him a very interesting robot with a camera inside of it. They move up into the Great Pyramid, up into the north side of the chamber above it. And what do they see? They see a mysterious writing on the floor in red. And guess what? I'm going to tell you something very interesting about this. The writing that you see on the top left, it resembles nothing that we know. All the top Egyptologists and experts come out and they say, I'm sorry, we have no hieroglyphics like this. They bring my friend Timothy Hogan in, who's an expert on ancient languages and mysteries. He couldn't decode it. He was at the meetings. The meetings were so controversial that the antiquities at the time said, we don't want to even touch this because it says that a civilization older than the Egyptians may have built this thing. He was at this meeting. Gattenbrink walks away from this. He's like, this is way too controversial for my career. I'm getting the hell out of here. The Egypt's antiquities, they say, we better make a press release quick saying these are probably numbers they put on the floor for the building of this thing. (laughs) Could this be what the ancients used as their 
hieroglyphic languages like the Solak Small, yep. the antediluvian pre-cataclysmic languages. Could this be the Senzar? Or could this be similar to the ancient Chinese or the ancient Hungarian that we find connected to the Denisovan people? Let me give you a little hint today. Could the Great Pyramid, the part that you see today, the top part, have been built at a later time? The Sphinx is far older than it. The casing stones in the basin were there already. And everything that you find under there is greatly classified. There's a lot of stuff that's been found under there that's classified. All kinds of moon temples and structures underneath the entire Giza Plateau. You're just seeing the outer epidural layers. But who were the gods of Egypt? If we're going to talk about this cheeky fellow over here building the pyramids, who were they? Well, Plutarch, he says, the gods of ancient Egypt were the antediluvian or pre-cataclysmic kings who were deified or made into gods after death. It's kind of like if one of us did something really important. But these gods, they go back a long way. We got all kinds of different ideas. People have all sorts of different theories about them, don't they? We talk about the Anunnaki, those who came from heaven to earth, people say. Some will look at this and say, hey, this is one of these kings showing them about agriculture. Yes, it's a plow he's holding in his hands. Others will say these are extraterrestrial visitors teaching these fine folks about all kinds of ancient things in the Shimmerian world. We have a planetary system with 10 to 12 pieces there. You say, well, we count the moon and the sun. We have all kinds of different ways of looking at this. And this fellow over here, do you guys know who this is? Zachariah Sitchin. I want to pay tribute to him today as well. Yeah. What, a, what a, a wonderful man he was. And today there's all kinds of armchair critics at home that like to criticize him and say, well, I know better than him. I'm going to dismiss what he says. Uh. Well, he was quite a figure. He's a really interesting guy, really all self-taught. He went to the British Museum a lot, and he pondered over these things. But he also knew Jordan Maxwell quite a lot with these theories that he had. So I just want to play this clip for you to show you something that he had said to Jordan Maxwell. Well, I do very much appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure uh, to uh, be interviewed by someone uh, who knows uh, almost as much as I do. <laughs> I leave a little for myself. You are a giant. It's almost a pleasure to be interviewed by someone who knows just as much as I do. A lot of people don't know this, that Zachariah and Jordan were business partners of the True Seeker Company. He was the first to publish his works. Important fact, he talked about a lot of the incredible knowledge that we got from places like the Epic of Gilgamesh. Not only is it a story about immortality, but we have the creation story in there. We have all sorts of ancient texts that have been buried in very interesting places. But you get this story also in your Bible. When you open up the Bible, you look in Genesis 1-2, we have this interesting part of the Bible. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but it says that the earth was created or formed from tohu vabohu. Another way of saying it is tohu wabohu. And a lot of people like to say in the biblical academic scholarly field that are into hermeneutics, they say, well, this means it was void and without form. There was nothing there. It was created. A point in fact, if you talk to any rabbis or people with this sort of study, it doesn't say that. It says the earth was being recreated. And it doesn't say there was a God, a singular God there. It says there was the Elohim. And the Elohim is a plurality of beings that we were created in their images, says. And you've all heard this before. 
I'm sure that there's a lot of shows back there on the wall that have taught this in the past. But point in fact, if you open up the Bollinger Study Bible that was put out there by Dr. Bollinger, the Companion Bible, and I urge you to have that on your bookshelf if you're interested in these subjects, he references Jeremiah 4.2.3 because this is great. You can see another place in the Bible where this is used. So let's look at the context of Tohu Vavohu and see how it's used. In Jeremiah, if you flip open your Bible, you see there's Jeremiah, nice guy, minding his own business, much like all of you, trying to enjoy your morning. And he's just pulled up over on top of the earth, and he's looking down at it, and he says, that doesn't look too good down there, does it? He sees Zion, the cities on earth, and it says they weren't built by man. Well, who, who built them? The gods. And it says these cities became tohu vabohu, waste and desolation. They were destroyed. Well, I'd ask you, first of all, that doesn't sound like there was nothing there. And secondly, who the hell took them up there above the earth to look down at these things? It was very interesting. We get a lot of interesting clues. But a lot of people, when they talk about Zachariah Sitchin, they'll criticize him. And they'll say, Zachariah Sitchin, you know, this guy... Uh, he was using the cuneiform, and uh, modern dictionaries came out after he had passed away. And when after he had passed away, the dictionaries had a much broader use for the words of the cuneiform, but he was using a much earlier form of cuneiform, okay? And the much earlier form of cuneiform is kind of like if we take old English and compare it to the English we're using today, but an even more dramatic effect than that. If there's one criticism that people could make of Sitchin, I think he got his dates off, his years off. I think you could add 20, 30,000 years onto his dates. But essentially, his story was that the Anunnaki were coming here about 500,000 years ago. That's not to say that we haven't had many, many groups here, many groups before that, groups that were here 600 million years prior, 70,000 years ago, all sorts of things. You know what's interesting about Sitchin? Here's something Jordan Maxwell told me I could share with all of you after he passed away. I know you knew Sitchin well, uh-huh. Do you think that uh, between what you gathered from Sitchin and what you think yourself and in, in your spirit, do you think these Anunnaki were uh, reptile people or were they humanoid like us? Uh, you know what? I'm not sure. And I wish I would have asked. I wish I would have asked that. I didn't stop to ask that kind of a question of him. Oh, I, I know. I know that he was, uh, you know, on a one on one relationship with them. Yeah, oh, for sure. Oh, no, I know that for sure. He told me he was. It's amazing. That he talked with them one-to-one, face-to-face. But uh, but um, that's another thing, you know. I, <laughs> I could cause quite a stir on, on, in, the, in the community around the world if I went started talking about the people I know and what they've told me in private. Holy smokes. It would, that would start a big fire. I'll go on if I go on the on a radio on my own network radio show and talk about Zachariah Sitchin <clears throat> and what he said to me in private that nobody knows. That's you amazing. Wait to see how quick that gets around the world, boy. That's the thing. I mean, the thing. As you can see, a couple parts had to be bleeped out there for Gaia, but. When you look at people like Sitchin, or many of you, you get help. You get a lot of help. Sitchin was a contactee. People don't know that. I've had it confirmed from folks that were close to him, including Jordan, that the Anunnaki stepped into the room with him and were talking to him. These beings we call the Anunnaki, of course, they went by a different name. This is what we call them. 
But here's uh, Paul Tice, who was Jordan's personal videographer. He was his cameraman. He was helping publish his works. And he and I have talked about Sitchin a lot. And he said independently, you know, it's not a surprise that Sitchin was talking about the Anunnaki because guys were talking about it in the 1800s. Christian O'Brien, the great author, independent of Sitchin as an academic, said the same things as him. So the general thesis is correct. We did have visitors. These were the folks that we're talking about in the Bible that that were coming at different times. These were the folks on this planet that were looking at us, the human race. And the story that we get is that they came here from their planet, you know, with Nibiru and all the stuff that went on. Because, well, some will say they were looking for gold. They were mining. That's why they were coming here. And they would they would be in orbit with us. And we have this very interesting story in these star maps. In fact, we get an idea in these creation stories that our planets, just as Emmanuel Velikovsky says in Worlds and Collisions, kind of had a bit of a pool table situations, different mashups. And what if one time, at one time, Mars was in our orbit that would smash into us? Could that be why it's called the God of War? You know, we have this very interesting story that comes out of this. To the Hungarians, they have the Tao Tosh of the shamans that have this map here that you see. And this is a map that they have of a migration from Mars to here for where the giants came here. That's an interesting thing to say, the giants that came here. But, you know, uh, when we talk about these different folks that have been coming here and all the authors that have covered this over the years, so many people have touched down on this. In fact, Bob Brown over there, he's the godfather of UFO conferences. I don't know if any of you know that the biggest UFO conferences in the United States for so many years, UFO Congress, UFO Megacon, packing the seats just like all of you. He's brought a big collection of DVDs talking about this in the back. Some of them are so rare and filled with this information that just absolutely impossible to get your hands on. So I'd suggest you scoop up as many of those as you can. Well, we get lots of stories about flying machines in the ancient world, don't we? In Ethiopia, we have a story about Solomon flying around. If you go yeah. to India, yep. where our friend Vish is from, he's well familiar with the Vedas, the Vedantic texts, or my friend Sid Goldberg over there, lived there for nine years. We have these ideas with Mar- Arjuna and the Ramayana going up in chapter five, going up to the various heavens. You have the idea of going into the Samarangana Sutra Dara in chapter 31. It's talking about these robotic AI-like females. It's talking about Vimanas. Think about Vimana, Shamana, the mana that we take. Very interesting. If you go into the Persian Zoroastrian text where your Mazda symbol comes from, it's very interesting. You get in the Avestan literature, Fravahi or Fravasha, Fravaha, that is the one that we see the man in the flying disc. We also see a connection to this over and over again in our Shimmerian depictions. It's really quite interesting, isn't it? You guys ever thought about the idea that Obama took a very interesting field trip with his friends up to Mumbai? They all stopped in Afghanistan around 2012. You ever hear about that? Yeah. Wouldn't that be interesting if they're looking at an ancient Vimana? Yeah. Just like the field trip those other folks took to the Antarctica to see those runes that are millions of years old. Remember hearing about how Buzz Aldrin got sick? That's weird to take a private trip up to Antarctica, all these famous guys. I guess they were looking at a couple of icebergs and some penguins. <laughs> we find this over and over again, though. Again, Ezekiel cylinders within cylinders. The Lord comes down, these bipedal peens, and they have these thousands of little blinking lights 
or eyeballs with lapis lazuli. The Lord steps out of them and talks to Ezekiel, takes him in the commander chair up to a mountain. You got the idea of Moses. There's a pillar in the sky with smoke moving around. Very interesting stories again and again, including Enoch. But in the Anunnaki story, we hear about the Agigi or the Watchers. 300 of them, in fact, that came here. Sitchin said they're from Mars. They were the workers that had to do the mining. And these guys, they were mining on Earth and getting involved in things that really weren't that important. Not as important as they're made out to be. But they come down here and they set up shop over in places like Pumapunku, Tiwanaku, Bolivia, Peru, and those areas. Very interesting places when you go up to those areas. 12,500 feet above sea level. The Andes are relatively new mountains. We might ask ourselves, how'd they get up there so fast and build walls around the place? In Lake Titicaca, we have fossilized seashells and seahorses. That's Brian Forster and I over by the H-blocks. This is a subterranean complex near there. And we see these very strange alien-like faces and different groups that have visited here. Strange stuff up there. But you know, when we go to this depiction, we find very famously of these folks, you have the man with the flying wings of the disc above there. And there's many interesting interpretations we have here of this. My friend Andrew Goth has some incredible work he's done on the honeybee and the pollinators that these are symbolically, there's many layers to this when we turn the key of the lock. We find that these these could be folks that are carrying around pollen with them. It could be monoatomic gold. It could be a lot of things, but it could also be a pine cone in their hand that they're awakening. The folks with the wings behind symbolically, the folks from the heavens are awakening the kings on earth, awakening their pineal glands, giving them knowledge, upgrading their chromosomal structure. Looking at that as like our DNA. That's one way you could look at this, that this was a great experiment. But in this story, what we see that's very important, we had these ancient cities on Earth before the Great Flood, we're told. We have eight rulers. We have five cities, 241,200 years. And these were very much like immortals that held and possessed certain keys, maybe alchemical keys, you could say. Maybe they were eating a white powder of gold. Maybe they had all kinds of ancient ways of preserving themselves. We have Eridu. We have Baba Tabir. You know, we look over at Demuzi and all those others that were there. Sipar. We have these great, incredible places on earth. Then we start getting into this pageantry of these gods. Very interesting stuff. And they've gone by many names throughout all our cultures. You can look at all the cultures that come down from these original gods, whether it's in the Norse, you know, Odin, Freya, Baldur, Thor, Osiris, Isis, Horus, moving into all these different pantheons. But we start off with this story of Anu who's the ruler and the father of uh, the grandfather of all these groups. And he's the leader of the Anunnaki. Interesting that we have a connection to the Japanese with Anu as well. We have Anu and we bring in Inanna. And you see these two folks being the main players. And they're very much interested in power and dominion, all the... uh, dramas that you might expect in a good Hollywood film of sex and action and strange relationships and all that sort of stuff. But our, our main characters that we bring into the story are in Leo and Anki. So in Leo, we learn about him as a scientist. And Anki, he's an interesting figure. He's coming to Earth and he's exploring. He's really into looking at the seas and, um, and go, going from place to place and helping them. And some people might look at this as these two streams beside him, a fish moving up this, that he's sort of like a water god, isn't he? He's sort of like Poseidon from Atlantis, if you think about him like that. Mm -hmm. You could say, 
Could this be why the Pope wears that meter on his head, the mitre, that fish hat? Could this be why you see that connection to Dagon, Nimrod, Oannes, all those folks? Some might say the two streams of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. But then we bring in a very interesting character, Nigashida. Mm-hmm. Nigashida, he's portrayed with two serpents. Have you ever seen that before? The two serpents, it might give you a clue to who he is and why he's been important to this role. But we can't leave this story without Marduk. Now, in Leo and Anki, we're told that they're two brothers. These are two brothers, sons of Anki. And one interesting thing about this is when you look at a lot of our founding stories, even from Rome, have any of you ever been to Rome? Mm-hmm. A few in the front. You ever heard about story about Romulus and Remus? Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard about they have stories in Bolivia, the two brothers? We get that over and over again in our ancient stories. Well, then we start bringing in a character called Demuzi. And the story goes on and on, but why we're bringing in Demuzi is that Demuzi is one of these gods, these folks on earth that came from another place. They had longer lifespans. To us, they were, we'd see them as the gods. But at some point, Inanna falls in love with Demuzi along with all her other lovers. He's a shepherd, a good guy, likes to mind his own business, writes a few poems, brings a few flowers home. Nice guy. He's a romantic. But then she gets an idea that Marduk decides to kill him. She goes, that's it. He's on my bad list. Going to come after him. So Marduk, in this story, he doesn't really get a fair share at things. He gets no crack at things. Have you guys ever heard of the American comedian Rodney Dangerfield? Yes. You remember Dangerfield always said, I get no respect. No respect. That's him. <laughs> he gets no respect. There, there's stories, according to Sitchin, that he's kind of pissed off. He says, everybody else says these great cities, Eridu, Mesopotamia, you know, that basic form of Egypt. He goes, you guys are all doing these exciting things, but hey, well, where's my city? He's not even allowed to be ruler in Nibiru. He's, he's not even allowed to rule any of these other places. And he's kind of kicked out everywhere, becoming exiled and a wanderer on the earth. Said he spent some times with the folks up on Mars for a while. So the story goes is that he was very jealous at the time. And if you look at this story as these characters fitting over into the Egyptian story, you might say that Ptah is Anki. You could also look over at the idea that he is Amun-Ra. Remember, Ra becomes Amun. He's the hidden one. That's why you say Amen at the end of your prayers, to be kept hidden, to be kept secret. Amen in all three Abrahamic religions. Well, the story is that he was kind of a little bit jealous is that Nikashida or Toth had built the Great Pyramid and that his face was originally the one on the Sphinx before it was changed. But he goes up and he builds Babylon. Babylon is an incredible place. We hear about this Tower of Babel, a communication tower, a place that he sort of symbolically builds that gets destroyed. But Babylon is a very interesting place when we look at it. They call it Mystery Babylon in the Bible. or Sometimes it's referred to as the Horror of Babylon. It's not a very nice name, is it? Well, Babylon is magnificent. Over a hundred gates, eight have been found. The Ishtar Gate is over in Berlin. You get stories in there in the Bible. Very interesting one. One of the presenters on Gaia TV, you can look up William Henry. He likes to say on shows like Ancient Aliens that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a burning furnace there. And somehow a mysterious visitor came in there and ushered them out. Now, could have that have been a stargate? We get a story about these hanging gardens that were magnificent. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 
You learn about the later rise of Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great, the great Macedonian conqueror falling to his demise at 33 years of age in Babylon. Here's my friend, cheeky Colin Wolford, uh, standing in front of one of these magnificent statues or guardians that you'd find in front of Babylon. And I can assure you he's not a time traveler. That is at the British Museum. Let's just, just show you how immensely incredible these places were. But we have these many faces of all of our gods. As mentioned, this character that we see, Nigashida, he was also going by the name Toth. Why does he look like this? Why do we personify him like this with the head of an ibis bird? Well, the ibis was a very wise bird. The ibis knew when it was going to rain, where the worms were going to be. It almost did a sort of a meditation with a stone that it would place in its mouth and it would meditate and fall asleep until the stone fell out. That's why we personify him like that. He's also personified as Jehoti, the baboon, to seek wisdom. Toth is born wise. That's where you get the word thought from. He also goes by the name Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus with the caduceus of the double serpent. We know him as Quetzalcoatl. We know him as Kukulkan. He goes by many names. In fact, in the story, we get that after the fallout came with Marduk, according to Sitchin, he was sent off over to the Yucatan. They said, hey, you know what? Get the hell out of here. We're tired of these problems. Just get out of Egypt, get out of Dodge. You can go have, you know, South America, all these sort of places, have the Yucatan. Let's just call a truce. There's a lot of fighting and things going on at the time. When we look over in these places, a lot of people talk about Chichen Itza that it's significant. It's it's like classic period. It's really it's really just a, a nice site that tourists can go to, but there's there's much more ancient versions and pre pre-classic places. I was just there a couple months ago, and this is Iqbalam. Isn't it interesting in Iqbalam, you see Egyptian-like writing in boats. You see these elongated headed individuals that are portrayed with wings at the top. Just 10 years ago, this place was under rocks. They just dug it up. Pretty incredible, eh? Get a lot of interesting stories there. Well, when we think about these places, a lot of us wonder, well, what could be there? Is there anything still there? Did they leave behind any clues for us? Well, one night I was at home. Over in Budapest, Hungary, it was last year, around December, and, uh, you know, trying to warm up. It's a bit cold. And uh, this guy contacts me, and he'd been in contact with a couple of people from behind the scenes, like Linda Moulton Howe. He was recommended to me by someone, and he was at a very interesting point of his life. He was going through cancer, radiation, chemotherapy treatments, in fact. And he says, I have been involved in unacknowledged and special access programs. And there's folks like that you do talk to when you put yourself out there. And he said, I want to come forward and I want to tell you some things. I'm going to get them off my chest. And so I tell him, you know, I'm going to come visit you. And he tells me that he's way out in this place near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which uh, it's compared to here. Even it's not an oil painting. (laughs) And so. I head out there, that's me in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with great excitement to arrive. And uh, we show up, and these two fine gentlemen, they're very nice guys, actually. They they were telling me they're two friends. They've both been involved in these programs. They want to come forth. But he's a little afraid because he says that all of his friends have faced sort of fears, and they've even had death threats and everything else. And uh, this gentleman over here, he says, look, 
He even retrieved a baby extraterrestrial from an underwater craft. We're going to release a video of this soon. And he said that he took it out of a jelly sack with his parents. The two grays had been eaten on the outside. And when he brought out the baby gray, it was transmitting into him an emotional feeling of being afraid and losing its parents. He could see in his mind and through his body the craft crashing through our atmosphere and down to the earth and what he missed. And he became emotional with tears streaming down his face as he, many have talked about these things. Do you suppose the governments and departments you work with are ever going to come forward with what, what they know? Well, they have been for the last year and a half releasing information that when I was in the military and intel division, I was warned if I was to ever disclose anything like that, I would go to jail for 20 years. Mm -hmm. wow. Now, they're releasing that right out into the public to kind of prepare the public for something that's coming. That's interesting. Now, these two fellows, that's Chris on the left, who's undergoing the therapies. Even that day, when I went and talked to him that week, he was going for radiation the next day. And ever, isn't it interesting that the place that he goes for these treatments, that when he goes there at the VA hospital, there's two special agents that take the samples from him and remove them and get them out of there. It's really interesting. A lot of people might not realize this, but when you've expo been exposed to extraterrestrials, your atomic structure changes, your circadian rhythms change. And a lot of folks in the earlier days show up with all kinds of problems. They can't produce cortisol anymore. They have all sorts of issues. And you can tell when they've had radiation. Just ask Rick Doty about this. He can tell you all about it, right, Rick? But this guy started telling me something very interesting. He says, look, i got to tell you something that's really important to me. He says, when I was involved, I know we went to Iraq. You want to know what we took? He goes, I was involved. He says, when we went to Iraq, we extracted a Stargate from there, used by the extraterrestrials that were there. I said, that's interesting. Tell me more. And it's interesting because my friend Daniel Brinkley, who many of you may know, he uh, directs a show with me. We were traveling together. He is very famous for being a near-death experiencer, if any of you have ever seen him. Daniel Brinkley... He was assigned a mission. He was assigned a mission over in Baghdad at the time when he was traveling. And he even traveled with Sitchin, by the way. They went to Syria. They had stuck in certain places, certain passport issues and uh, very strange stuff. The, the agencies, let's just call them that, gave Daniel a bunch of throwaway cameras. They were very interested in what Saddam's brother was doing at the time, going to Sweden and Switzerland and other sorts of places, getting back things for the Baghdad Museum. Uh, Daniel said they gave him several throwaway cameras, and he went into Baghdad on a mission when he was already out there and was photographing everything for them to bring it back. They were scoping it out. And believe me, the weapons of mass destruction they were interested in is far different than what you think. That's right. Well, he starts to tell me something interesting about the cities of Ur and Uruk, where we start to bring the scenarios down with those folks we are talking about called the Anunnaki. It was in the city of Ur, in the tomb of Gilgamesh, and it was a part of a machine that his father created thousands of years ago that allowed Gilgamesh to do interdimensional travel. I saw with my own eyes the results of what this piece did. They brought it over to CERN, Switzerland. They plugged it in the CERN collider, and over there they're a lot more freer with information than here. So I went to their newspapers when this was happening, and I read front page on their newspaper exactly what they were going to do. They gave the day and the time 
They were going to take this part and put it in a collider, and they said it had to be at 3 o'clock in the morning, the hour of the devil. So it said in their newspaper. Now, everybody was ready for it. Um, all the people, they knew the exact day and time, and CERN is underground. It's like over 400 feet under the ground. It's about 17 kilometers round, okay? And uh, they turned it on. And these people were all there with their, their cameras and all. You could see the beam coming from under the ground up into the upper atmosphere, opening its first portal. And when you look, though, at what was uh, put together, um, Hollywood picked up on it best a few years ago and came out with that series and movie, Stargate. So can you imagine Stargate, this, these yes. doorways that were left on Earth that were perhaps active at one time yeah. that we may not understand today, but they were used for this sort of science to be able to go to other places. This is Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein, he believed that he was the reincarnation of King Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. He had this in his art. He made portraits of this. These are the bricks. He had rebuilt Babylon into a perfect place for the UNESCO uh, World Heritage Sites should have declared. He said, this is Saddam Hussein, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. These were on the bricks that he built into this thing. This is what it looked like. He rebuilt this thing, the hanging gardens, everything. The word on the street was that our friend Saddam was getting communications and had technology and tapped into things because under these ancient cities, they left records, they left cuneiform. We only have a fraction of these tablets that they had given us back then. Most of these tablets outside of the British Museum and other places exist in private collections. You know, how many of you know that the... Some of these families and folks around the world, they're not bad people, but they have in their private collections some very interesting things that reveal parts of our stories. Maria Wheatley and I were just talking about this yesterday. Some folks that are coming out with this to help everyone. So if we go to the city of Ur, we found out something very interesting. What we learn is that there was a stargate inside of here and it had been reactivated and as soon as they found out that that was there, they said, let's buy the first ticket to Iraq and get in there quick. They didn't do anything else. They left expensive laser cutting tools on the ground. They went in there and they stormed that place. Does this look like they're looking for a military threat? Isn't it interesting that we built the largest U.S. embassy in the world on top of that? Yeah. So we didn't want people to find what was in there. But according to Phil, he says that we moved it over to CERN. Well, CERN is an interesting thing. We can find out the fundamental Functions and actions of, you know, we go down into subatomic particles, quarks, neutrinos, hadrons, leptons, gluons, bosons, all these funny sounding little things. But the real purpose is to tap into the secrets of the universe, to activate these things, to find out what's happening. And the reason is, is that this stuff is far stranger than you think. It's far weirder than you think. According to these two gentlemen, all the stuff you call paranormal, all this kind of talk, there's divisions in these programs that study this, that have a science of this, that are operating in this world. Here's a depiction of what it looks like. Some of the last known depictions we had in the 1850s of what these gates look like and what was there. Very, very much like that show Stargate. You know, even the symbols they use. We have the symbols from Gilgamesh. We have other connections to this that they're trying to tell you. If you look at Freemasonry and the York Rite, you might say that this is another little connection and in masonry, I, I don't want you to think that masons are walking through stargates because they're not. The average mason doesn't have a, maybe even an appreciation of what they've inherited unless you really have a classical education in the seven liberal arts and sciences of decoding this book. We have something called the Royal Arts Degrees. 
with the ancient Sumerian and Royal Arch. And in there, this is a sun gate. This is just like the arch you find in St. Louis or the arch of McDonald's. It's the horizon that you find. And what do we have here? One of these cheeky little Anunnaki walking through the door. We find these false doors all over the world. In fact, one good example I'll give you of this, and I want you all to do your homework. Don't just say this Johnny Enoch guy was walking around on a stage talking about Marks and Spencer sandwiches and Stargates. And what does he know? He didn't show us any proof. Go home after you're done and look this place up. This is in Egypt near Abu Sir, Abu Ghraib. It's called Zayet el Aryan. In the Arabic, we call that the naked place. I don't think anyone there is naked, though. And what you find over there, we have these pyramids. And nearby, the kings that are involved in this, they have the name Stargate in front of their name. Very interesting. The pyramids near it is called the Ba and the Ka, which are names that you have in the parts of the soul. We have in there, according to my sources, a subterranean complex below it, the size of New York City. This is Egypt's Area 51. You can have aircraft coming and going without anybody seeing it. And you might be very interested to know that the fellows in antiquities that have had dinner that knew about this stuff, and nobody can go in it since the 1950s. Our militaries are there. Not their militaries. Ours are there. Mm. Isn't it interesting? They said these aurora borealis colors come up out of the ground. They don't know what the hell to do about it. (laughs) This is the last active Stargate, you might say. What do the Egyptians have to say about this? All over the place, we see the depictions of stargates. You see that down there, the mouth above the stargate? That means you need sound to activate it. Look over here. This is at Kamombo. The tour guides, I have to listen to them all the time saying, the walls have ears, the walls have ears. Really? What about the gate to the netters? The gate to the gods have ears. The cosmic. This is where the gods came from. This is the door. In fact, over here to the left of me, again, at the British Museum, you'll see... Then we have these folks stepping through stargates again and again. Here's your ears. They need sound to activate them. Over here, you see them pointing up. You see the Templar cross. You see the stars. You see the places of Nibiru where they could go through a gate. What's really interesting about this, we see again and again Hathor being used. Hathor is associated with sound, with a rattle, with resonance, with vibration. We see this opening up. Why is that? Why is sound so important to this? Because our universe works like a symphonic construct. Have you ever seen these great, all these celebrities gathered when Adele is singing? Adele has got this beautiful voice that they're swaying and they're mesmerized to the beautiful harmonies of John Williams in our favorite movies. We love it, don't we? Maria Wheatley over there, she was talking yesterday about the connection to sound, vibration, and the folks that Stonehenge that could have been hearing these things. And that brilliant lecture that she gave that was so important. Wasn't it what sounded to the water, what sounded to all these places? Well, if you look at these great parasynthetic harmonies and constructs, why do cathedrals have sound? Why do the Buddhist monks use it? They're unlocking these particulars in the universe with the chromatic scales and the octaves. And this is what's important in our secrets to resonance. Well, here's a photo that, you know, Jay over here, he was behind me and I said, Don't photograph my ass as I'm crawling up in here, trying to crawl into these places. I got got access to these new areas that we are at Hathor's Temple in Dindar. We were just there last month. That's one of the cool parts about this job. You get to go to Egypt a lot, and uh, you get food poisoning a couple times here and there, but it has its benefits. (laughs) But um, one of the secrets you'll find here is that Hathor, who represents sound and resonance, has a gate above her. She opens it up. Here's the netters. 
If you go to Hatchet Suits Temple, I was very lucky to go there during COVID. It was all shut down and you get better access. What's great is the sign says absolutely no access, no photography. You can't go in there. Do not go in there. Do not step into this place. The guard will not let you in there. For five American dollars, when no one's looking, you can go in there. Yeah. <laughs> There's Eugenia pointing out the Stargate. We have Memkef from Ra, topmost the third on the left. You step into the back. It says do not go in there. The guy goes, secret, secret, don't go in there. Here's another $5. In the back, we see a gate. Can you imagine the gods walking down those stairs at Hatship Suits Mortuary, the top star gates in the areas? In the gate, you see over there, there's a cartouche on the wall. On the left, it looks like it's filled with stars, or is that the gate? On the left, we see the netters walking through the door to instruct the people, the gods, the folks that were visiting. And again and again, we see the mentioning of stargates. And this gets us to asking questions like, is there a cosmic Atlantis? Today, if you ask someone about Atlantis, what comes to mind? Never mind the story you get from Solon and Sanchez, Edfu, pyramid, pyramidal texts. We can go back to the ideas that people think that Atlantis was behind the Atlas Mountains. They talk about this in a very interesting way. Uh, well, we, we could get into that story a long time if you want to talk about Morocco and those places that are underwater. Moving out into the West, we can move out into the story of how the Rock of Gibraltar was really the pillars of Hercules and the Azores and Canary Islands with the mountain peaks of Atlantis. But what if Atlantis was a great continental diffusion of culture, a dissemination of these cultures that spread across the world with the many pyramids you see in the various places? 140 pyramids in the Azorean Islands, pyramids on both sides of the Atlantic, pyramids in the Yucatan, pyramids in China. They're all over the place. So what if these stargates bring us into a cosmic Atlantis, an Atlantis that spanned all over our solar system and the various galaxies and places connecting them like one giant web? Well, this fellow that we talked to here, let's come back to him. How you doing? He's uh, been busy writing and he's got sometimes a staff, sometimes a measuring stick. Sometimes it was said that he helped measure and put together the pyramid at the same time he was helping with our DNA, with Anki, giving us an upgrade, helping us and evolving us. Well, we hear that he's returning. That sounds all right. Hopefully he doesn't return here when the, uh, to the lolly shop. Tell you, he might turn around. Um, but uh, what with this, we got to look at these Anunnaki if they're returning. All joking aside, could it be that they're returning in another form? In an evolution of our genetics, an evolution of who we are through us? We're changing. We're coming to this maturation point. This is the age of Aquarius. We have the Anunnaki story, the Nigashita story, all throughout our ancient stories. With Attis from the Phrygians, who was Adonis, we have the story brought into Osiris, the resurrection of these things, the return of an ancient Messiah. It's a very old and ancient story. And, you know, if you know this man, Randall Carlson's absolutely brilliant. You find him on Gaia and these places. He's looking at the procession of the equinox of the Yugas. And what he's talking about, he's saying that, hey, look, you remember that time where we had the Sphinx in the age of Leo? Do you remember that time? Mm -hmm. Well, in the age of Leo, this is when we would have seen Nigashida. Look on the opposite side of that. All kinds of strange things happen on the earth when Leo's here. According to Randall Carlson, we see these cycles that we're going through. Well, right directly opposite to that, we see Aquarius, where we are entering into the age of Aquarius. Strange things are happening on this earth, and we're getting help at this time. 
You might say that we're going to go through an evolution over this next decade with everything that we know about our lives. From the way that we interact with each other to our medicines to the way that we travel, the way that we harmonize with each other. You might say that there's folks watching us, and in some ways they're waiting for us to get over our tribalism, and there's some uncomfortable things we're going through, growing pains, in fact, but we will make it. Many have talked about a galactic federation on shows that were on Gaia like Deep Space. We've talked about that, haven't we, Sid? Now, it's my opinion and that of the folks that we talk to that the idea of a galactic federation, quote unquote, isn't as nice and pretty as it sounds. And, you know, those shows like the Star Treks and everything with our brilliant Gene Roddenberry and others who have put together these concepts. But we have a whole bunch of different groups that have been influencing us and coming here at different stages. And they're all... So the tampering with us, there's a cross-pollination of realities, in fact. That's why I really love the show Cosmic Disclosure for these folks over here. Do any of you watch Cosmic Disclosure? That new season that Sid Goldberg and Rick Doty had on and those folks like Tim, the tactical advisor. I was blown away when I saw that. Jujana said, you got to come, come quick, watch this, because some of the folks I was talking to, they were telling me that what these guys were saying was very similar to what I was hearing. So I picked up the phone and called Sid. I said, this is unbelievable because I'm hearing the things that he, he was learning about from Tim and Rick and the other guys on the show. And that is that when we look at who has been interacting with us, especially the ones that those folks that you guys call the greys, it's not as simple as calling them greys. And the Ebens, the extraterrestrial biological entities are not the same as the other folks. You have one group that might be 200 or 400 years ahead of all of you. And then you've got another group that's hundreds of millions of years ahead of them that have gotten rid of their biological selves. They're a time traveling species. They're interacting with us through a type of quantum multiplicity. Therefore, we can look at this thing called lineal subjugation assessment on how we might be able to find folks that could come backwards and forwards in our history, interacting with us, inserting narratives and changing this like a Japanese sword maker, putting one tip on top of the other to perfect it. Very important show. You want to keep paying attention to it. But lots of folks have been lots of folks have been saying amazing things like this. So I want to leave you with a gift. One of the. Insider folks I talked to gave me permission to share this with all of you. I want you to research this. Don't just take this as infotainment. Take this as something you can research. I want you to research transverse sound waves as opposed to longitudinal sound waves. Okay? You're going to learn all sorts of interesting things where you're going to go and what you're going to find out about this decade. It's going to blow your mind. You're going to have modifications to your cell phones. We can modify your cell phone right now. So that that phone in your hand that you have right there, you're not going to have to charge it for 10,000 years. Go home and look up what a nanocarbon diamond battery is. And that's going to blow your mind how close we are to that. Uh, but you're going to find out that we have a way to travel into space. If we look at these sound waves, just like we were talking about, you're going to find that some can go faster and reveal a type of sound wave that can transform waveform propagation. All right. The future of our space travel is going to use this. We're going to use a sort of resonance propulsion system or harmonic oscillation to take all of these properties that we are talking about. We're going to take time, gravity, and lineal proportional distance, and we're going to transpose them. We're going to fold them in on ourselves to reconfigure them like these messenger pigeons that went such a long way. 
And as we look at all of this exciting stuff that you're going to be going through, we're going to use this technology in the next 25 years for the first of all of you to go out in space. And it's going to happen a lot quicker than you think. We have some things that we have to go through first. But I promise you that there are folks watching us in this progress as we go through this. I want you to know that today. You're not alone. None of you sitting in these seats are. And just like the dinosaurs who came before us, they wore out their time on their planet. I want you to think of this as sort of a great zoological experiment. We're sort of a ant farm for the folks up there. And they're waiting for us. we got to go through some things. And I want you to all think about this great light that you carry as we go through this. Have you ever seen that experiment that Sir Isaac Newton did when he had the prism that the light came through it? And when the light came through it, it turned in all the rainbow colors. Do you remember that? Think of those rainbow colors as all the manifestations of this world that are in that light. The light that you carry. The light of the mysteries. All right? So to get through this, we really need to be more loving to one another. And this isn't just some sanctimonious thing, I'm telling you. We really do. We have to move through this period. We have to have tolerance for one another, in fact. We have to show kindliness. It's very important. You wouldn't believe the importance when I talk to near-death experiencers about you walk down the street, you smile at someone, you show them a little bit of kindness, you buy them a lolly at the shop outside. Have more forgiveness. Thank you, Mick and Lindy, for sitting through this. Please forgive me later. They had to listen to all my bad jokes. We have to be more generous. But be generous without expecting anything in return. And most of all, show more compassion, not only for each other, but for all the creatures on this planet that are dwelling with us. I promise you, if we do these things, it's going to make it a lot easier. And most of all, attempt to do no harm. As a very wise friend of mine and teacher, I call him Jack from the Outback. He tells me, that we should attempt to do no harm. And why is that? Because no matter how hard we try, we always harm ourselves sometimes, don't we? And it's very easy to do. So we can only do our best. But we should attempt to do that at all times. And I promise you, if we do that, we don't have to fear the future. We can create it. And with that, I hope that we can all go on more adventures and solve these mysteries together. I'm Johnny Enoch. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. It's all true. Oh, this is a good one. Wow, that was good. Okay, well. Oh, my goodness. Well, 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 well. Um, let's take a quick look we're going to have a look at the stars and talk with our brother Richard and let's just uh, look at where is it yeah Tanya Gabrielle lots of sevens here Five sevens, Virgo full moon, spirit of calling is calling. A momentous full moon in Virgo with the sun in Pisces is unfolding now and will be exact on March 7th. Today's the fourth, right? Mm. Tuesday. This is the sixth consecutive full moon with the sun and moon at 16 degrees. 
16 reduces to the single digit 7. In fact, it unleashes an extraordinary quintuple 77777 code. Okay. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. All good children go to heaven. That's that right? Mm. <laughs> a full moon is a great time to let go, to release. With Pluto at the final 29 degrees of Capricorn, anything that is a reminder of your past an old identity that you have outgrown, old attachments. Let it all go. Use essential oils and crystals. They are especially aligned with Virgo. Maybe you can put that thing on, Rama. Oh. Yeah. With it? Oh, that. Yeah. Um... Only surround yourself with things, scents, and sounds that fill you with love, with joy, with gratitude, with beauty. Mars is fired up by a T-square to the sun and moon, giving you that extra fire and passion. Mars also creates a beautiful sextile to Venus. And while Mars' magical fire ignites the Virgo full moon, while Mars also creates a lovely, harmonious uh, transit to Venus, it's a wonderful time to discover Venus and Mars' tremendous impact on humanity at this time. It's all revealed uh, in this masterclass, Venus and Mars balancing the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. You discover the beautiful five-pointed star of Venus, secret meaning of the letters V as in victory and M as in mother. <laughs> Uh, the shift from aggressiveness to assertiveness. Thirteen phases of Venus. Origins of the Mayan calendar. And so much more. Love and blessings, Tanya Gabrielle. And I'll read this other one too, since we've got the moment here. Did you get Caroline somewhere? Mm-hmm. Only you have it somewhere. We welcome you to the fifth dimension. You are about to embark on an adventure that will take you into higher consciousness and assist you in connecting with your true self. The Galactic Federation, we welcome you to 5D. Each person has a past, and this forms their current reality Yet as you want something different in your life, you have to leave this place behind. Yes, you heard that right. (laughs) You have to drop. You have to drop your whole past. Yikes! It's the only way to leave linear time and enter the fifth dimension. 
You can compare ascension with floating and becoming lighter and lighter in water. Achieving the lightness of the soul is like leaving behind your past and throwing it into fire or drowning yourself in water. You will see that ego will then disappear. The ego is the continuity of the past. Everything you have have done, everything you have accumulated, all of your all of your karmas, conditionings, desires, dreams. Holding on to the past is the equivalent of doing the same thing over and over again. Like the Republicans. <laughs> and expecting different results. Whatever you do, unless you are willing to let go of the past, your life will follow the same pattern. People cannot just come here with their human baggage and expect to move into the higher fifth dimensional plane of existence. This place is different. Mm -hmm. You have to be vaporized (laughs) and reformed. In the third dimension, as you know it, time is a straight line. In 5D, there is no time. There is only the now. The fifth dimension is not a movement of time rather a movement of consciousness consciousness is the present awareness it is the pure witness of what is happening this moment consciousness is the eternal part of you it does not accumulate anything it is always new and fresh it is not concerned with your past or your future Rather, with the now. The now is the only time that exists because it is the only time that is real. In fact, as you are reading this right now, you are probably living in the now. The ego is created by your past memories. Who you are. Where you came from. To whom you belong. Your country, race, religion, family, tradition, all the sorrows. The wounds, the pleasures that have happened to you in the past. This must be fully recognized. Your ego is nothing more than a memory of the past. It isn't, however. You, you are surrounded by your ego. However, at the core of your being, you are pure consciousness, free of any ego. When you let go of your past and your ego, you are climbing from 3D to 5D at the very same time. This is what the resurrection means. That is why a child appears to be the most curious, fresh, and vital. Because there is no past, no karma. No ego in a child. It's a state of mindlessness. A child consciously moves from one moment to the next. You will never grow old as you let go of your past. You will always remain young and fresh, as fresh as a rose bloom. Because this is a spirit resurrection. It's a spirit resurrection into 5D. 
You will always be a child and innocent. Refocus your attention. Live in the present moment. Learn to let go of the past. As you know how to let go of the past, you will be able to live each moment fully and pure. The past simply means that you are clinging to something that no longer exists while avoiding the present. You know deep down that it is no longer there, that it has passed. Huh. Oops, excuse me. See, I missed something from the page before, I think. That it is no longer there, that it has passed away, <coughs> and that the new has arrived. Yet you still want to act as as though it is still there. You deceive yourself with a comfort zone. Yet such deceit simply eliminates and chances of being joyous, living and entering into the present moment. This causes a lot of anxiety and a lot of division. Get rid of the past. Allowing it to interfere with your present is not a smart option. Allow it to be no longer there once you have worked through it. Don't cling to the past. It is now past. Don't go into the future. It has not yet arrived. You are now here in this moment, in this space. This is where you exist. Be here now. Ignore the past. Make a conscious effort to raise your awareness to the now moment. Your past is filled with darkness. Bring yourself into the light of the present moment. At this present moment, you are at a point where you can either ascend to the fifth dimension or descend into the third. It lies in your hands. We are here to remind you that you are not what you perceive yourself to be. We are here to help you open your hearts, your minds, and your souls to the experience of wholehearted living. We welcome you to the fifth dimension. You are about to embark on an adventure that will take you into higher consciousness and assist you in connecting with your true self. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. Aurora Ray. As ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And so it is. Rama, what do you say? Got about um, a minute or two. Oh. <laughs> I can just say that what all these folks, Johnny Enoch, Aurora Ray are talking about is that things are going to get very interesting as we move into Aquarius and like he said it's not about the accumulation and acquisition of wealth it is about compassion and kindness and love and when you're dealing with beings that are, um, let's say, the mechanics of the universe 
where they know the calibrations for stargates and the exact uh, calculations to get from here to the Sagittarius galaxy. Just like in Stargate SG-1, you put in the symbols and you push the center button and you know, the gate opens and you walk through. I've done it. It's real. I just have to say, all this stuff that's coming out now is like this angel, Archangel Ariel, that came into the form of a fairy to tell us about how the story began and things got a little weird along the way because it's, <clears throat> it's about love. It's not about greed or hate or war or the idea because I have golden skin and you have white skin. I'm better than you. <laughs> it don't work. Well, I know what works is to take a break right now. <laughs> yeah. And we will be back with uh, music of the spheres and a look at the stars with our brother Richard and then Tanya Gabrielle and Kate Pacha. And with all the curiosity as well as inquisitiveness that we as children at a new beginning point letting go of all of the past we take we take heart and aloha for now we'll see you soon just a little while 10 or 15 namaste that's the talking stick to you Richard okay Good evening, everybody. March the 4th. Yeah, things are turning spring-like in the south. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, lots of flowers uh, popping up here. Uh, Some flowering trees and everything. When I went to town the other day... Okay, uh, the sun's at 15 Pisces tonight, right smack in the middle of the sign. And it's in conjunct the moon at 18 Leo. And so we're at the beginning of the full moon, the five day full moon influence in, in, this thing here going on here. Uh, let's see now. Jupiter is conjunct Chiron is conjunct Venus at thirteen, fifteen, and sixteen in Aries. All right. So we talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, that's big changes on the uh, in the realm of personal. Healing and transformation. Uh, Jupiter and Venus is like a super good thing, except it's in Aries. 
and that can be that can be handled that can be interpreted in several different ways right uh, everything from uh, increased lightning storms and electrical phenomena they say the aurora, the aurora borealis has been extra extra bright this winter Neptune's at 25, Saturn is still at 30 Aquarius, and Mercury is moved, is now up to 4 Pisces. Uranus still at 16, Mars is up to 20. Now, we got this thing going on here where Mars is moving almost a half a degree a day. Mercury is really moving fast at a minute and 44 minutes a day. Venus a minute and 13, a degree and 13 minutes a day. And the sun is just one degree, zero minutes and seven seconds a day. And the moon is moving slow, less than 12 degrees a day. I think that's why the... uh, the full moon is not going to be until Monday, but I'll, I'll figure out exactly when that happens happens here. But anyway, so that's what's going on here at the moment. Uh, Chiron's at 15. Uh, all right. Mars at 20. So the sun's going to square Mars this week. So in in five days, the sun will be at 20 Pisces, and the Mars will be at 21 Pisces. So we got sun, sun square Mars this week. Uh, Saturn is the moon is going to uh, Mars is approaching. A trine to Saturn, because Saturn's at 30 Aquarius. Okay. And Sun is sextile Uranus tonight. And uh, that would be positive change. Sun sextile Uranus. So it's really kind of mixed up. So let's see what Kaipacha's got on his mind. And then while he's doing that, I'll figure out exactly when the the full moon is. All right. So back to you, Rama. Okay, here we go. It's Kai Pacha, and we made it to March 1st. <laughs> 2023, here we come. Come on. Whoa. I got to go faster because the wind is so amazing here. Reminds me of that Jimi Hendrix song, The Wind Cries Mary. Anyway, 
here it comes. It seems to come in great big breaths. Yeah, look at this landscape here, a little different than Cape Town. I uh, made it up here to North Carolina. This is Eagle Rock. Made it up for my daughter's wedding. Just got married. And it's a big time of change here going on. Last week there weren't so many major aspects building up to this week. So hold on to your hats. Boys and girls, moms and dads, Venus is conjunct Jupiter today. The moon is in Cancer. Feel those feelings. Trining the sun up there in Pisces. Not only that, but then by tomorrow, Mercury is exactly conjunct Saturn at that last, last anorectic degree of Aquarius. Mercury goes into Pisces then. On uh, right after it conjuncts Saturn, Mercury goes into Pisces, sextiles the moon, and then Saturn goes into Pisces next Tuesday. So we're going to have what Neptune, Sun, Saturn, Mercury all in Pisces by the next Pele report. I'm going to be talking about that. And as you can see, what I did for the chart, if you pause it at the chart, it was an exact. Venus Jupiter Chiron conjunction within one degree. I captured it while Venus was exactly conjunct Jupiter. Well, not exactly, a couple minutes off, but right in between Jupiter and Chiron. So she conjuncts uh, Jupiter today and then conjuncts Chiron on Friday. Yeah. It's at the same time that Mercury is conjunct Saturn. That's what I'm going to be talking about today, along with some other bigger picture stuff, because this all kind of ties into big stuff. So let's uh, let me find a place on the to talk to you and uh, get into the astrology of it all. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I love being up here with the uh, birds again. You're going to see some turkey vultures. Maybe flying right behind me on the top of the mountain. But bad kaipacha, bad kaipacha. I didn't go into the moon. The moon is waxing. Not only does she uh, move through cancer, but uh, by Friday, then she opposes Pluto right at the end of Capricorn. Pluto is going into Aquarius this month, March 23rd. Big deal. Okay, Saturn and Pluto both changing signs in the same month. This is a big month. Lots to talk about. Too much to talk about. So much to talk about that I am uploading an hour and a half talk that I gave about what the bleep is going on. Uh, I did it down in Cape Town a couple weeks ago, and I just uploaded it. There's a link for it in the YouTube, right below in the YouTube uh, description for the Pele Report. You can click on that link. You can click on all kinds of links that are to my website. Uh, This week's song, Purple Rain. was just really feeling listening into the long version. There's a 16-minute version of Prince's Purple Rain, and he felt 
his feelings. You talk about this moon moving through cancer, feeling our feelings. Chiron is our soul deepest wounded feelings, and it's got Jupiter like big magnifying glass on our wounded feelings and soul nature. And then Venus comes along bringing in the heart. That's what this mantra is, uh, this week's mantra is all about. But in addition to that, <laughs> wow, you know, Mercury conjunct Saturn has to do with, you know, depression, has to do with serious, sober thoughts, thinking, analysis, kind of the glass is half empty and I see what's missing and, oh, it's, it's a pretty, I want to uh, talk to you about how to manage, how to deal, how to grow, how to, you know, work with uh, the energies that are happening now, particularly as then, yeah, the moon then moves into Leo, like I said, on Friday for the weekend. By Sunday, what? Opposite Saturn. <laughs> 29 Leo to 29 Aquarius. Moon opposite Saturn before she bumps into Virgo and comes around to the full moon. Sun at 16 degrees, 40 minutes of Pisces. Moon. At 16 degrees, 40 minutes of Virgo. What's the Sabian symbol for that full moon? A volcanic eruption. Oh. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> when it rains, it pours around here on planet Earth. Dang it. Ow! Man, oh man. So I'm going to be reading the Sabian symbol for the 17th degree of Virgo, and we'll look further into that. But, yeah, I want to uh, talk about a couple of different things, where to begin, where to start. Uh, let's let's start with this Venus-Jupiter-Chiron, um, because you would think, it's like, Venus conjunct Jupiter? Wow! Uh, let's have a party. Like, how exciting. I mean, if anything, it's too much sugar or too much fun or overspending or just like having a ball, especially in the fire sign of Aries. You know, like, yeah, impulsively, instinctively, spontaneously go for it. Indulge. <laughs> have, you know, pleasure yourself. <laughs> you know, I mean, but. Huge difference with Chiron present. Yeah. I mean, Chiron, you know, it goes on every 51 years. Jupiter is only every 12. Venus is every year. So even though Chiron is smaller physically than Jupiter, it has a longer orbit. And it was also just found more recently Okay, in 1977, it was discovered it's actually a little bigger than Pluto. Yeah, Chiron. So, anyway, I think. No, I was looking into Eris. I think Eris is a tiny bit bigger than Pluto. But anyway, looking at this, this is really uh, looking at, and it was very powerful for me to be down in South Africa. Africa is the heart of the planet and that heart is wounded. Planet Earth is wounded. Our hearts are wounded. Our 
uh, aspirations, our idealism. I mean, we have to really consider, you know, the sun moving through Pisces. I mean, look around here. This is the time of year in the northern hemisphere when the Greeks, you know, really, you know, went into the mythology of this time. It's the end, Pisces, the last sign of the zodiac. Ending, finishing, closing, completing. I've, I've always looked at, I mean, it's so gray around here. Not just the rocks are gray, but all these dead trees. <laughs> I know they're not dead. That's what everybody always tells me. They just look dead. <laughs> They're dormant, and they will sprout again. They will bud again. This is where Pisces has to do with faith, faith, hope, trust in some great spirit, some cyclical divine intelligence that rebirths and grows and Blossoms and fruits and harvests and ages and dies. Only to come back again. And this is very important when it comes to this Venus, Jupiter, Chiron. That has been the inspiration for this week's mantra. Obviously, the first line of, of the mantra, okay, you know, that has to do with this sober situation mercury conjunct saturn in the last degree of aquarius and then they both move into pisces yeah mercury for a month saturn for three years and it is saturn is sober saturn is reflection saturn is maturity patience perseverance, responsibility, really objectively with Mercury analyzing the whole situation, Aquarius, the global situation, and the situation of our lives, where we've come from and where we're going. And Aquarius has to do with this rebellion. Let's look at, you know, Pluto also moving into Aquarius. Uh, we've, we've, I've got a couple of uh, dates here. We have to understand that the last time Saturn went into uh, Pisces, Saturn was in Pisces in the in 1990s, yeah, uh, from January of 94 until uh, April of 96. So it's been, yeah. You know, 28, 29 years since Saturn has been at this, at this same degree, moving into closing. So we are closing, you know, this cycle that began in 96. And there's a lot of water under the bridge. There's a lot of experiences. There's a lot of gains. There's a lot of losses. I want to be dealing with the losses today because the water signs have to do with loss. Yes, cancer, the moon in cancer, and particularly the south node of the moon. Still in Scorpio, let's not forget, until July, 
This is loss. This is things being removed, lives being removed, relationships being removed, businesses, money, future goals, ideals being removed. If they're not in alignment with furthering or nurturing your soul's evolution, Here's where astrology comes in very handy. It helps us to get in touch with our unconscious, infinite reincarnating soul intentions. Because our ego comes up with others. <laughs> and our sexual desires and our emotional attachments and our mental, uh, you know, uh, ideas. And, yeah, we latch on to people, places, things, relationships, every, we latch on to things here on this planet. And the ego wants to gain some kind of security through holding on to things. But this is a time of letting go. And we're going to be letting go big time, my feeling is. And I talk about it. Like I say, uh, I'm uploading that other video because it's too much to go into in a little Pele report. But, you know, um, I think that what we want to understand is that, you know, Pisces and Scorpio and Cancer all have to do with releasing and feeling the loss, feeling the change, feeling the emotion, feeling the grief that naturally follows these losses that are, some of them are seen, some of them are unforeseen, some of them are, are sudden and traumatic, some of them are kind of just like, oh, you know, like taking a, a getting your tooth pulled and it takes a, you know, <laughs> too long. <laughs> of course, there's so many drugs now, you don't even feel people with a dentist pulling out your teeth anymore. Pisces has to do with that too. Drugs, alcohol, escapism, numbing out to avoid the feelings. It's too hard to feel these feelings. It's too scary to go down in this underworld of Scorpio and out into the world of the ethers and Pisces and let go and surrender and just like, ah, and this, that's why I'm saying, you know, this, 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 this process of Venus, Jupiter, Chiron, this is opening the heart. And it hurts. It's like a stretch. Okay, and, or it's like getting yanked, and, and sometimes it is grief and sorrow and, uh, you know, trauma, you know, whether it's wars or earthquakes or breakups or divorces or, you know, any kind of situation where there is a loss, even like my daughter getting married, is the loss of being single. It's like one end. Every beginning is the end of something else. So here's Jupiter, uh, you know, Venus, Chiron in Aries, new beginnings. But there's also, you know, even as we make these new beginnings, we're letting go of something else. The seed must die that the plant grows out of it. It's all this energy changing form, transmutation, transformation. But the part that I want to focus on is the beauty of it all. 
the beauty of it all and and what these feelings can bring in to me is just how delicate life is just how mysterious life is just how precious life is every moment every relationship and rather than focusing on the loss or something that's moving away and i don't want to say rather than i want to say um you know along with opening that heart and feeling into the grief and feeling into okay yeah and and it doesn't always have to be grief either it can be a longing yeah to fill that void or that emptiness within you know this desire to just i want more of that and i can't have more of that maybe something's not necessarily going away but there's also this you know pisces is the dream and the fantasy and and yeah and it's like yes i i dreamt that we're together or i dreamt that you know and, and i really want i imagine and i envision us you know, <laughs> to get, I envision winning the lottery. Okay. I envision peace on earth. I envision all this stuff and it doesn't always happen. So there can also be disappointment. It doesn't have to be necessarily just, you know, loss and death over. There's also, okay, this not enough <laughs> or, you know, slipping, you know, water through my fingers. I can't, but I can't hold on to as much as I would like to hold on to. I'm, I'm trying to drink this water <laughs> and you got to drink it fast before it slips through your fingers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So these feelings are very tender and. And I also want to just like get into this uh, sense and, and this is where the, the mantra also really comes in. New feelings that I have not yet felt. There is such a wide rainbow, such a broad spectrum, so many zillions of different layers of feeling. That you can, there's always a new angle. There's always a new feeling. This morning, I had a new feeling. I'm 65, you know, and, I, and I'm like, you know what? I have never felt this way before. <laughs> I've never felt this feeling before. After Through all these years and all these experiences and all these relationships and all this everything, here is a new feeling. You know, it's different. Yes, you know, if you lose a job, that's a different feeling than losing your mother. Yeah. That's a different feeling than losing your spouse. That's a different feeling than, than breaking up. That's a different feeling than, you know, uh, losing your health. Yeah, or it's you know. So even within this spectrum of, you could say, oh, you know, feel the loss. Okay, well, you know, you can even go into each one of these little catacombs or closets or passageways into other areas of the heart. Oh, there and open up that that 
chamber of feeling that has been closed. And, and realize how vulnerable we really are. Oh my God, are we vulnerable? You know, everything can go like that. A drop of the hat. I got my, you know, I got my, <laughs> my day of the dead bracelet that I got down there in Mexico is that day of the dead. Anything can go. At any time, you can die at a moment just like this. So it's precious. And, yeah, being in that place of gratitude is beautiful. Now, I also want to get into, okay, well, I mean, whatever, man. The volcanic eruption, oh, my God, this full moon. Okay, uh, it's happening when? On uh, I think it's next Tuesday. Yeah, next Tuesday. The explosive energy of long repressed contents of the subconscious. <laughs> Just what we need. <laughs> we are dealing here with the dramatic release of energies which have been kept in check. By the outer shell of the ego-controlled consciousness. It may be a spectacular catharsis, but it often takes paths of destruction. Yet unless some form of purification by fire is experienced, the inner pressure of the karmic past or of more recent frustrations would shake up perhaps even more destructively the very foundations of the personality. It's like, that's a full moon. Interesting that they talk about a purification by fire. It's in, it's in Virgo. So look out, Virgo. <laughs> look out, Pisces, Gemini, and Sag. This full moon is going to be a knocker. Yeah? I mean, everything must be released from the psyche, seeking to attain the transfigured state. The soul must become empty, the mind translucent. The key word is explosion. And like that's saying, the more we suppress our feelings, the more we deny our feelings, the more we control our feelings, the more we want to show up and look good and smile and get the job and have people like us and de- deny, deny, deny. Blah, blah, blah. Stuff doesn't disappear and go away, baby. <laughs> uh-uh. No, it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And then you have a kabbalue. You have war. I mean, on a global level, if we look at the global consciousness, we got the Palestinians, we got the Ukrainians, we got everybody. I mean, there's, you know, people going on all over the place, which brings me uh, further on to, yeah, Pluto coming into Aquarius. 
in this whole really big time period, you know, that Pluto was last in Aquarius when, hello, 1777 was the last time Pluto entered Aquarius. And that, my friends, was what? The American Revolutionary War of Independence was from 1775 to 1883 or so. Smack dab in the middle. You know, we're really at a a brink. We're at a threshold. We're at a big shift right now. And so many things are changing in our world and in our lives that what we really want to hold on to is our heart, our humanness, to have a sense of belonging, have an emotional connection, gathering together with communities, with groups, with the beloveds, with, you know, even our dogs and cats and hamsters and (laughs) I don't know about fish. (laughs) That's a a little tough, but... (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes, you know, grief, sorrow, and suffering brings people together and it also brings out the hero and the heroine in each one of us. Yeah. Because we help each other and we support each other and we nurture each other and we sympathize with each other and it brings us together and unites us. And let's hope that out of the destruction or the end or the explosions of what is going on, that we emerge out of this tighter, more unified, more together, more loving, gentle, kind to each other and with each other. So, yeah, I want to just encourage you to feel those feelings and then, like I say, there is... Chiron is a healing crisis. So this is a healing crisis. The crisis leads to catharsis and leads to change. And we want to just really... Well, that's the last part of the mantra that I want to... You know, I can go on forever, but, you know... The last part of the mantra is, change the course of my life. Yes. Very often, you know, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Wolf Green, my teacher, he said, all pain is the result of a resistance to evolution. It's a resistance to change. It's a resistance. I don't want to graduate. I don't want to move on. I don't want to step up. I don't want to grow. I don't want to evolve. I want to just like... Hang out right here where I'm comfortable, familiar, secure. But no, life just doesn't do that. No. And your soul doesn't do that. And so, you know, it's when we hold on and we cling too long to something, it gets yanked away. And, and the idea is you have to change the course of your life. That's what I mean. Embrace change. Big change can be really called for here. It's the big let go, the big faith hope, the big leap yeah, of faith into the unknown. Trusting, and here's the good part, right? This Venus, Jupiter, and Aries is, I trust my instinct. I am optimistic. I am going to leap 
and I'm going to land on my feet like a cat. Moon going through Leo this weekend. It's going to be a good, you can have a good weekend with all this. <laughs> get that Mercury's, uh, Mercury Saturn past and uh, get that Mercury uh, into, you know, into Pisces where the imagination and the downloads are going to start flowing a little more openly. So, you know, it's just like every bottleneck. We're going into an hourglass. And just like breathing, there's a time to contract. Contract. It's all right. You will open up and expand again. Just like the hourglass, just like the sine wave. We go down, but we will come back up. So, yeah, as we, you know, as we do the flow, baby. (laughs) Purple rain. You know, feel the purple, feel the blues. You know, go down, in, and feel, knowing that, yeah, there's a rainbow. There's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Mm-hmm. When it's raining is when the rainbows come out, yeah? So, I know that usually my mantras are pretty positive, and usually they, you know, they, they, they say, okay, we'll do this. Okay, well, this one is a little different, isn't it, right? Um, it's more like feel this. It's not about doing. It's about feeling. It's not about yang, masculine, act. It's about feminine, inner, feel, be. So, yeah, maybe this weekend, you know, this week is a time. Mercury and Saturn go into Pisces to just be, be with it all, be with it all. You don't have to always control it. Be with it. Be with yourself. And be more fully present with others. This sober situation is breaking my heart open wide. Giving me feelings I've not felt before. And changing the course of my life. Yeah. Just... uh Look at it like I look at things as a, it's a spiritual setup. Yeah? Our souls, our unconscious spirit, great spirit, sets us up to feel this at this age, at this time, with this person. <laughs> it's all a big setup. It's how you manage the, the setup, you know? It's like, yeah, events happen. Events happen. How you interpret, judge, uh, you know, accept or deny or uh, it's, it's how we, you know, it, it beginner's mind, right? Going, going into life with this beginner's mind is, you know, is really a great way. Mindfulness is another great way, but, you know, really being able to, you know, with, without, what do we call that? Non-attachment is being able to like being fully in the game. Riding the white water rafting river at full speed, you know, crashing up against the rocks and, you know, maybe dying or something. It's like being fully in the river of life and above it, outside it, observing ourselves, witnessing ourselves, and thereby evolving through every experience. So, 
It's not a good time to change the course of your life if you've been thinking of it. <laughs> yeah. And it just sometimes takes a little longer to close and finish and resolve the old before we start the new. It's, it's, it's nice to just like jump into the new. But we still got, you know, kind of the, you know, three weeks of Sun in Pisces, uh, three years of Saturn in Pisces. So it's going to be kind of, you know, uh, resolving, finishing, completing a lot of things before this new beginning happens. Yeah. So one more time. And that is what this sober situation is breaking my heart open wide. Giving me feelings I've not felt before and changing the course of my life. May your life change course for the better. Changing course, I mean, I think of sailing, you know, it's like, you know, if you're if you're sailing and you want to go into the wind or something, you have to tack, right? You can't go straight for the goal. No, you gotta sail over, you gotta, you gotta follow the wind a little bit, right? And then you gotta tack, you gotta come back the other way, right? Then you gotta turn, you gotta come back the other way. So yeah, change course. Even if you still have that, you know, that eye on the translucent mind, your goal may be the translucent mind, but getting there, <laughs> it's a snaky windy road, baby. Namaste, aloha, so much love.
so that's not comfortable. Mutable <laughs> T-square. Uh, and Mercury will be at 8 Pisces. All right. And uh, Pluto, Pluto will be up there in the uh, mid-morning sky. And uh, Saturn and Mercury just above the horizon. And along with that, a double or a triple in conjunct between the moon at 17 and Jupiter at 14, Chiron at 15, and Venus at 17 or 19. So those those five guys, three guys, Jupiter, Chiron, and Venus, they're within five degrees of each other. So that's quite a tight combined frequency dance. So, uh, and then of course, it's exactly 30 degrees, you know, to the Taurus side. Uranus will be at 16. That's 30 degrees, uh, middle of Taurus, middle of Aries, middle of Pisces, and that's what you got. So, a, still a very lopsided chart. All right. Let's go on and check with Tanya. Okay. Oh, yeah, there's also, uh, the moon will also be trying Uranus at the new moon, and Uranus will be sextile the sun at the new moon, and... Neptune will be sextile Pluto. So uh, there's a lot of different energies going on there. But it's all, you know, all basically between uh, one degree Pisces with Saturn and uh, Mars over there at 22 Gemini. All right. I'm done for now. Okay. Here we go. Gabrielle, Wealth Astrometrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, the podcast where we look at an upcoming event and navigate it with a lot more positivity and goodness and wisdom as a result. And in this case, it is a very big event indeed. In fact, it really ties into the beginning of this decade and so much more. And that is that both Saturn and Pluto, slow moving planets, are changing signs within two weeks of each other. Now, it takes Pluto between 10 and 20 years or so, sometimes even longer, to navigate through a sign in the zodiac because the cycle for Pluto is about 248 years around all 12 signs. Now, Saturn, it takes around 29 or so years, between 28 and 30, so still very slow moving. So when these two planets change signs at the same time, they're both at 29 degrees, at the same time, and they're both at zero degrees, which is the next new sign. 
at the same time. And in this case, the 29 degrees activation, which is the, always the final degree of any sign, because every sign has 30 degrees, 30 times 12 equals 360 degrees, which is the circle. So 29 degrees is always the critical final degree. They will both be at their respective 29 degree positions from February 26th, 27th, depending on where you live, through March 7th, when Saturn changes signs from Aquarius to Pisces. And then Pluto continues the 29 degrees placement until March 23rd. So let's look at, first of all, the last really big event between these two planets, which was the conjunction on January 12th, 2020. If you remember, the big stellium with Pluto, Saturn, Sun, and Mercury happened right as we began the decade and, of course, changed everything. We all know that. So that was a little over three years ago. And that stellium between these planets had not happened in Capricorns in 500 years. So Saturn and Pluto coming together at the beginning of this decade was a major, major push again for all of us to find out where are we being pushed to our limits and feel limited, right? So now, since Pluto is leaving Capricorn and Saturn rules Capricorn, and Capricorn was the sign where originally this stellium took place in 2020 between these two planets, this is a really big deal. So where's Pluto moving? Into Aquarius. And Aquarius is the sign of freedom. Where is Saturn currently? In Aquarius until March 7th. So Saturn is leaving Aquarius and Pluto's coming right back in. So that means Aquarius is a sign that needs to really be on the forefront. What is Aquarius rule? Community, the collective, what you feel about how you want to live in the future. So everything to do with your dreams and aspirations. It has to do with freedom, with breaking up, breaking away creating breakthroughs. So it is truly a sign of awakening. And Aquarius governs astrology and numerology. It governs the esoteric arts in many ways because Aquarius is connected to codes, to genius, to frequency, and looking at going beyond our limited mind and being unlimited. And so now we've reached a point where we are getting our bearings and we're realizing, okay, what can I rely on? I can only rely on how I feel in the midst of all this change. And with Pluto and Saturn, what it really is about is your power to determine your own reality. Saturn is about reality. Pluto is about power. So if you can remember that, that this is truly about your power to determine your reality. That is the biggest takeaway. So this is about, first of all, your reality. Where are you being authentic? What is your authentic self? That means addressing both your fears and your dreams, not leaving one out, right? You need experience of both in order to create a sense of, This is what I want to walk towards and this is what I want to relinquish from my life. So 
the only way to choose is to have experience with both your shadow and your light. So now you know you have the power to determine where you want to go energetically. And you have the patience to nurture and watch your intentions grow. So if you liken it to a garden and you are planting seeds, you don't immediately see the plants, the the little shoots come out of the ground. You have to water, you have to nurture, there needs to be sun. It takes time. And Saturn governs timing. Saturn governs patience. And Saturn is time. Saturn is Kronos. So Saturn in Pisces, moving into Pisces on March 7th, puts your focus on divine timing. That there are auspicious times to plant seeds, like the beginning of spring or right before spring begins. And then there are times not to plant. And if you jump the gun and ignore the natural flow, the divine timing, the natural timing, you miss the best and most opportune opening for your intentions, your dreams to flower, just like with gardening. So your garden thrives when you listen to the natural rhythms of nature, of the divine. So your garden outside thrives when you listen to the natural rhythms of nature and your inner garden thrives when you listen to the natural rhythms of divine. So the divine is literally part of this important moment because everything that you see now is literally going to flower. You will see the results. You have dreams, you have visions. These are very important. And divine timing now is giving you the tools and the patience and the resources to nurture those dreams and visions. And that is how you sustain your sanity, your joy, your love, just like the sun and rain and love and nurturing of nature sustains our plants and wildlife. So keep in mind that you do attract energies that match your intentions. So be aware of what you are sending out in terms of what your intentions are. This is really the key because when you are not aware of what you're focusing on, it will still manifest. It'll actualize. And so it's very important to be very aware. Now, let's look at Pluto for a moment, because when we are out of sync, what we tend to do is either give our power away or want power out of over others to be in the flow, to to be immersed in goodness, to have a good time doesn't mean you have to have power over others. It just means you need to feel the courage within your heart. There's a big difference. And Pluto going into Aquarius is going to set you free from those old stagnant habits of thinking that you need to know before you act, that you cannot just intuit and trust to move forward. Pluto is the truth. And when Pluto moves into Aquarius, Aquarius is about being inspired. When Pluto moves into Aquarius, you are going to receive the truth in unexpected ways. It will come from many different angles. And 
if you choose to avoid the truth, which will be both shadow and light, and you choose to avoid the shadow, then you will feel disempowered or you will disempower others. Because that energy of Pluto has to go somewhere. It's being freed up now. Pluto and Capricorn was all about tearing down the major structures that we have put all our trust in and forgotten that we need to put the trust here in our heart. And now that Pluto's moving into Aquarius, the water bearer, we're being shown the wisdom that's within us through inspiration and intuition that leads us to a place of empowerment. So be open. Growth always involves change. And Aquarius is an air sign. It is very fast moving and very much about accepting change. So there's going to be excitement. And when you are dealing with what needs to be extricated, you have to be clear on how it got there, that it was some kind of programming previously in your life or lifetimes. So anytime you're focused on lack, where you don't have something, you don't have enough, you don't have what you want, or separation, where you don't feel connected or in the flow or loved, or you feel like you're in a place of limitation where you feel inadequate and unprepared. Those are your signs that you're in your old programming and in a place of fear. So it's very hard to move forward. In fact, it's really impossible when you're in fear to be present and inspired and heart-centered. So those fear programs, they don't exist in your heart. Courage comes when you turn to your heart. Cur in French means heart. So heart-centered awareness brings the courage to break free. And Aquarius, the sign that Saturn is leaving and Pluto is entering, is really going to be ramped up in the years that Pluto is in Aquarius, which will be through 2024, 2044. Your intuition, your inner guidance, your connectivity to the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of the cosmos, these are going to grow greatly. And this is also due to Saturn in Pisces. Why? Because Pisces represents the mysteries. Pisces is unconditional love. It represents everything. It represents the cosmos, the universe, the God mind. And Saturn and Pisces will make that real because Saturn makes everything real. And the timing of Saturn moving into Pisces while Pluto is cleaning up lack of sense of freedom and making us realize we're sovereign and can totally fly and go on an adventure and experiencing that excitement of being in the moment. That combo of Saturn and Pisces making the unseen mysteries real, the mysteries of the universe real, and Pluto and Aquarius is absolutely amazing. Remember, they both joined together at the beginning of this decade. And Pisces is all about heart. Pisces is about unconditional love. And Saturn and Pisces will instill that courage, that trust, to be open to guidance, to try new things, to be unique. 
And when you live in your heart where none of those fear programs are running, you have the courage to take steps, to move forward, to explore, to not be swayed or confused or distracted by different thoughts, different approaches, different opinions that are swirling around everywhere right now. You won't be taken off guard. You won't get upset when people think differently, act differently, speak differently, look differently. You don't want to suppress who you are, right? That isn't you and you will be okay with that and you will trust what comes through your heart. And then you will see and this is where Pluto comes in, you will see what you are hiding, what you are keeping from yourself, this glorious expression of love and joy that is there at all times. You know, Pluto at the end of Capricorn is asking you to look where you feel small or when you do something that you don't enjoy, that's disempowering. Remember, Pluto is about power. So look at those habits now that are keeping you from feeling more passion. Pluto is very, very passionate, and so is Pisces, where Saturn's moving in. Passion comes from your heart. It does not come from your head. If you're in your head, you're in your fear programming. You're not experiencing a lot of passion. So it's very important that you know that what you heal within your heart is sending ripple effects. And that ripple effect is going to be very much enhanced with Saturn and Pisces because Pisces is the sign that encompasses everything. The water sign that Neptune rules, that is about everything. All is experienced in the sign of Pisces because we are all one. And so it's time, Saturn is saying, Saturn and Pisces, it's time that you understand that you are one with everything and everything is one with you and the ripple effects will impact everyone. So being in a place of goodness and immersing yourself in infinite possibilities and your infinite inner resources and trusting your feelings and knowing that they give you an indication of energy at all times, being in a place where you do that will help you innately connect to your inner goodness and not be reactionary. And at the same time, you don't want to abdicate reason. Saturn in Pisces is saying, okay, let's not get into the dream where we don't, where it's just nebulous, which is the shadow side of Pisces. We want to make this real. We want to be clear. And that means reason will be accompanying you at the same time as inspiration. So you want to wonder, you want to imagine, you want to picture the stars, you want to feel the energy of the cosmos in your heart. And you want to also imagine that you're always in the right place at the right time and that everything is just as it's meant to be that your pains can be regenerated, that you can be healed because life is energy and you can receive, you can transmit, you can choose the reality that is pristine. You can create a pristine environment. This is all in your hands. This is the cleansing. This is the healing. So the world is alive. It is pulsing 
and it is interacting with you at every given moment and it is calling to you to rise to new heights of aspiration. What do you aspire to? The world is constantly showing you how to succeed and and the mirror coming back to you is showing you to that you, you must understand how powerful conscious awareness is. This is very important. The Aquarius theme of awakening is awakening to the fact that you're constantly being shown how to succeed by understanding how powerful your conscious awareness is. Your conscious awareness is the key to your heart, the key to living a life of joy. And being so present that nothing phases you. So here's the thing. Peace of mind, greater abundance, healing. Those are all intentions. Friends, support, community, understanding, anything to do with clarity. Right now, make those clear intentions for what you'd like to experience. If you'd like to experience prosperity, set that intention. But be clear about how you feel. It's not a headspace decision. It is about you and your gratitude and your trust in your inner gifts. Remember to always give thanks. Remember that you are the most amazing being of light. And if you want to know how truly empowering you can be on the spiritual realms of conscious awareness go to my free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com it will show you the secret to spiritual mastery it will truly point you in the direction of your heart and allow you to instantly connect with spirit so enjoy that free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com have an incredible week And stay tuned to your heart at all times. Have the courage. Lots of love. I'll see you next week.
and that that's this is not that far ahead. But at this time, Pluto will be in one Aquarius, opposite Mars in 30 degrees of Cancer, with a T-square of Jupiter at one degree of Taurus, conjunct the North Node. So you've got... Pluto opposite Mars, square in Jupiter, and the north node will be at 4 degrees Taurus. Mercury will be at 7 degrees Taurus. And the new, the new moon will be at 29 degrees Taurus. So, and then there's a, there's a, there's this weird thing. Mars, Mars trine Neptune, Neptune sextile the new moon, and then the new moon sextile Mars. Pluto trine the new moon, sextile Neptune, sextile Pluto. So you've got you've got half of a hexagon that goes Pluto, Neptune, Sun and Moon, and Mars. Alright? And then you got the the cross trines, Mars, Neptune, and Sun Pluto. And in the and in the middle of all that is uh, North Node and Jupiter, and the potential for explosive activity in this condition. If 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 the squares and oppositions rule, you get major chaos because Pluto and Jupiter and Mars are involved. Alright. Or you could get stability with the sextiles and the trines. Now I'm going to do something. While we've got a minute here, I'm going to try something else here. I'm going to go back and I'm going to take that one and take that and edit that and I'm going to go back to the next new moon should be April, let's say around April the 5th, let's try that. Let's try April the 4th, just, just to get close. See what we got here. Okay, on, on April the 4th, okay, we looking at, oh, that's interesting, but not what I want. <laughs> Let's see, I want to go from one degree, I want to, I want the full 
moon in April. I gotta go ahead. Let's go. Let's go ahead. top of the next hour for BBS radio station two today <laughs> okay so we'll see you on the Congress and we'll say join us and invite others uh, we're in very interesting times uh, so 
I appreciate all the all the collaborating I think that we can do together at now. Yes. Magic is afoot. God is is alive. See you on the conference, everyone. Now all right, everyone. Now we're gonna settle down for the last round here. Okay. Um This is um, Regina Meredith and her guest, Susie Miller. And the title of this conversation is Beyond the Autism Spectrum. And most alternative-minded people have autism. And because the autism is a place where there's a reaction to the status quo because it's not working anymore. And they're picking up on the new energy. So how to manage that is, well, we're going to find out. Let's see here. How do we reach beyond the confines of the autistic spectrum to understand what individuals are experiencing on a multidimensional level. In other words, that's a question. Is that the way? Integration specialist Susie Miller has been working with clients on the autistic spectrum for over 20 years, going outside typical treatments and perspectives, examining the very nature of being in terms of of frequency spectrums that might not align person to person, we explore alternative theories and research to learn more about growing yet misunderstood phenomena. I was just going to say, the places where I learned the most were the places where a person, whether it was in the system or not, had created uh, something with their own um, inner experience and shared it. And I think that's much of what's going to be happening more of when they say that um, reaching beyond the confines of the autistic spectrum. And AD and ADD, ADD and ADHD and autism, they're all related. And the new heaven and the new earth comes together and doesn't, doesn't shield people out. That's an, uh, uh, an experience of expanding right now. So this is 48 minutes. We're going to start now. Here we go. Many kids on the spectrum are so adept at seeing into us 
that very often they see things within us that we have so long ago buried. The frequency of emotion is, you might say, subtle enough for them to connect to. It's a frequency mismatch. That kid is banging his head up against the wall. I always ask parents, I mean, it seems so simple, but how is it that we might be banging our heads up against the wall? Seeing is not just seeing. Hearing is not just hearing. Touch is not just touch. It's so much more than that for them because every way in which they're using those senses, they are gleaning additional information. Right. They are not only hearing um, the loudness or quietness of an experience, but they are also hearing all kinds of other information. Children diagnosed with autism hear what you don't say. Susie Miller has spent the past 20 years working with and learning from autistic children. She's been telling us that what we see on the outside is not what's going on inside their minds and that many have come to earth from times far past. Since the numbers of people on the spectrum has been rising by the year, we're going to take a deeper look into these beings in all the iterations. Thank you so much for coming back. It's been a few years since we've been together here. Lots happened in that time. Absolutely. And the sheer numbers statistically of people being born that are termed on the spectrum, which is almost becoming kind of a garbage bucket diagnosis. Totally. Honestly, it's Mm -hmm. like a few other things that you don't know where to put it. So what else are you going to say? But in reality, there's a very wide array of beings. So before we go into all of that, let's talk about that part itself. Just get some defining factors here about the different kinds of autism and on the spectrum people that you're working with and you're seeing. Yeah. So the kids that I work with um, or the parents that find me are typically the parents of children who are those higher dimensional beings. And they are looking very specifically to come in and um, integrate, you and know, would, to would be called more high function. No, not necessarily. No, not necessarily. I think it has a lot more to do with when they've come in, like the the timing that they came in. So a lot of children who maybe came in 25, 30 years ago that were diagnosed with autism did not have the vibrational support in order to fully embody all that they are. But that doesn't mean that in the realms and realities that they hang out that they aren't very proficient right. in higher states of consciousness. Right. So I have a tendency to have all kinds of different kids come to me. Some of them, you know, are considered vaccine injured. Some of them are called considered low functioning or high functioning. But honestly, they're they all have a common denominator and that common denominator is the I'd say the vibrational information that they've come with. And their attempts to get their parents and the people, the adults around them to really kind of take a, might say, a bit of a quantum leap into into those higher states of consciousness. So that's what they're here for and what it's all about. Yeah. Okay. So for those who haven't seen our previous interviews, Mm -hmm. because it's been a little while, Mm -hmm. let's talk about how you began and how you began noticing these real differences in the internal kind of consciousness wiring of the people coming before you. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, my story is, you know, pediatric speech language pathologist to multidimensional communicator. And so um, it was, yeah, and a rocky journey sometimes yeah. in yeah. there as well. But nevertheless, I mean, at the hands of one of these children, I was opened up to my own multidimensional sight and capacity. And with that capacity, he then asked me to help him integrate his light body back into the physical body. And every client I've worked with, every child I've worked with in the last 25 years has been the same. So there, and for whatever reason, they have been kind of stuck in between worlds, you might say. Mm -hmm. But that's not unlike us. You know, each one of us is kind of stuck in between worlds as well. There's that part of us that is that higher dimensional consciousness, that the essence of who we are. And then there's the human conditioned part. And so we're all dancing between these two worlds. And as far as I'm concerned, the vast majority of these kids have come so that they can, in some ways, show us what doesn't work for humanity anymore, what's not in our highest and best interests, how we need to move out of um, our kind of limited perception of who we are. And they're constantly inviting us to more. That's well, yeah. we're going to get to a point in the conversation. We're going to talk about some mm-hmm. of those things that aren't working that are really going to have to change because yeah. of their presence on earth. Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about what happens when a being who's considered on the spectrum is born mm-hmm. with a very different emotional structure than their family. Well, there's a there's a couple different pieces here. From my vantage point, they are born at a completely different um, frequency band, you might say. Mm-hmm. Completely different vibration. They have completely different um, levels of information that they have access to than what their parents have access to. So one of the very first places where these kids are able to interface with their parents is at the emotional body level. So, and I'm not talking just about emotions as, you know, feelings, emotions, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the frequency of emotion. So the frequency of emotion is, you might say, subtle enough for them to connect to, but complicated enough that when they do connect with that level of experience, sometimes they're repelled by it. So mm-hmm. let's imagine if you have a child who comes in kind of like, a, I always say it's like having an angel show up in that frequency and there is challenge in the household or there's anger, frustration, irritation, whatever might be going on in the household. That's a frequency mismatch, right? And so the children are constantly, when that happens, the kids are constantly attempting to get their parents or other adults in their environment to actually see where that's going on, what's going on for them within well, their own emotional how that body. Would work. Yep. So an example of that would be, let's say a kid is who might be considered low functioning by medical, you know, allopathic kind of more medical Western medical standards. That kid is banging his head up against the wall, literally. And I always ask parents, I mean, it seems so simple, but 
how is it that we might be banging our heads up against the wall? How is it that we might be frustrated? How is it that we might be, you know, just not able to literally um, express something and share something? And so it literally has driven us to the place where we feel like we're banging our heads up against the wall. And as soon as we can direct the parent to that and they start looking at that, oh, my gosh, yes, this is how I feel. The minute they understand how they feel and they start processing some of that energy, their children very frequently stop the behaviors that they were reflecting back. And they're not reflecting these behaviors back to tell the parents that they're wrong or bad or, you know, don't they're have it together. An, almost an unconscious messenger of it. They're, in they're an unconscious mirror, mirror. of what mm-hmm. hasn't been yet integrated, yeah. not just within the parents, but within the whole lineage. Mm-hmm. Many kids on the spectrum are so adept at seeing into us that very often they see things within us that we have so long ago buried that we don't even know are there. So we kind of skim an example of a couple of those. Well, I'll give you an example, a personal one. You know, even back when I was a speech pathologist and still and just developing some of this skill set, I would go in to see this kid and he would he was semi-verbal and he would he would come in and he would say sad, sad, sad. And I was like, and at first I was like, are you sad? What's going on? No, he was talking about the sadness that was still unintegrated within me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but the minute I figured that out, that went away. Right. And mm-hmm. I've seen so many times where parents will have certain experiences like they have. I had one parent a long time ago who she was a very A type personality. So she was a lot of list and get everything mm-hmm. done and that kind of thing. And she was always talking to herself in her head. Her son was a teenager. Um, and he was, he was just verbally communicating all the time, asking her questions, asking her questions, asking her questions. And we were kind of having a conversation about this. And all of a sudden I was like, what kind of questions are you asking yourself? You know, what kind of, lists are you making in your head and he used to literally walk around with a paper and pencil here's my list here's my list she woke up one morning and she went oh my gosh it's my list he's mimicking her he's mimicking <laughs> my my need yeah. for information yeah. my need to know in order to feel comfortable and as soon as she got it he literally put the list down on the bed and walked away amazing so um so so many people talk about this population as not being mm, very connected emotionally, but I think it's exactly the opposite of that. I think they are so connected emotionally that they don't have any other option other than to act out what they're seeing because a lot of times they don't have verbal communication. Mm -hmm. A lot of times their parents are not yet telepathic. Mm-hmm. Or there is not that that ability to connect in that way. So the only way they have of demonstrating to the parents what is yet to be integrated within them and thus help the kids integrate is to act, act it out. out. And, yeah, yeah, act out. Act in some it way. out. Yeah. So 
they're, as you're saying, super connected mm-hmm. on levels we don't understand, but have no means of dealing and sorting through mm-hmm. and expressing the emotions except through perhaps extreme measures. Yeah. Um, they're also often generally very, have very heightened senses, sensory perception. Yeah. Which now that starts interfacing with coming into a world like this. Right. Coming into a household. Let's talk about that. So if you consider that, let's say their information field allows them um, to use all their senses to perceive at a multidimensional level. So, for instance, hearing to us, you know, is hearing, right? And sometimes things are too loud. Sometimes they're too quiet. Sometimes for a child diagnosed with autism, they are not only hearing um the loudness or quietness of an experience, but they are also hearing all kinds of other information within that. So children diagnosed with autism hear what you don't say as much as they hear what you do say. So you're talking about telepathy. Well, I'm not only talking about telepathy because that is just a innate capacity of theirs. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's one of the reasons why that was one of the first things that opened up for me, mm-hmm. but it's, It's not just that, it's the telepathy is there, but this capacity to read an information field and more multidimensional, reaching into multidimensional streams of information. Absolutely. And so, you know, we have this physical, mental, emotional body Mm -hmm. that makes up our human experience, but there are all kinds of different levels of information that are within those fields. Mm -hmm. And so something as simple as You know, a child walking up to somebody who is not yet um, visibly pregnant, Mm -hmm. but absolutely knows that that individual is pregnant because of the information that's in that field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And very often we'll say something like that. This is really common. And a lot of parents of kids on the spectrum will say, my kid reads my mind. You know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, that if my emotions are off, their emotions are off. And this is because of that multidimensional capacity. So, you know, um, seeing is not just seeing. Mm-hmm. Hearing is not just hearing. Touch is not just touch. It's so much more than that for them because every way in which they're using those senses, they are gleaming additional information. Right. And so is, it's almost an is, overload. Them. Well, it it absolutely mm-hmm. can be an overload mm-hmm. until we know what they're doing and we start communicating that to them. Because quite frankly, this is where we're all going. We are all going to be reading and experiencing all kinds of different information fields. Yes, that is our future. That is our, well, it's it's, it's, our, beginning. it's our beginning and it's yeah. our future. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So if you're a family... And you have a, you have a newborn and you start realizing this newborn is uber sensitive and start having these traits. How do you, besides what you talked about, about once you reflect on your own out of balance portions, it'll often correct a behavior in a child. Beyond that, how do you create an environment? Right. So that the child can thrive and be able to hear themselves. This is a trick right now, I will say. And the reason it's a trick is because we have been so conditioned as a humanity to 
our perceived limitations. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we don't see ourselves as gods and goddesses. We don't see ourselves as the multidimensional beings that we actually are. And so typically when we see a child who's showing up differently, you know, uniquely, seeing things in the room that nobody else sees or talking to things that nobody else is talking to, we have a tendency to put them in the in the category of disordered, mm-hmm. right? And this is where education is really important now because we are at a time in human history where we absolutely have to begin to perceive ourselves as energy first. Mm-hmm. So when I work with people, the very first thing that we go to is this is what your child is doing. This is why they're doing it. This is where they're doing it from. And the first thing that we want to do is we want to start talking to that child about what they're actually doing, not what we perceive that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So that kind of honoring of what's going on. Inside. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So something as simple as, wow, I notice that you see something in the room that I don't see. Right. I notice that you really like to snuggle up against my neck and, and, you know, rub up against my neck and, I wonder if you're getting information that way. I wonder if there's a reason why certain foods that you won't eat are the ones that you won't eat. What information? We want to look at everything so as curious about. Yeah. 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 Curiosity. But what sure. about the actual environment itself? Because you often hear my neighbor, for example, is a doctor. Mm-hmm. A wonderful woman. She's a, she's an angel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think she really is. Mm-hmm. And she has two autistic sons, mm-hmm. one quite severe, the other not as severe in terms of um, the disruptive behaviors in the household. Yeah. But it turns out she's also on the spectrum, yeah, right? It's very common. Yeah. yeah. And so for her, you know, you can learn how to adjust around that. I mm-hmm. just said, do not go out with those people anymore to that restaurant because mm-hmm. I can watch her yeah. just shutting down. It almost seems like she can't hear. Right. Yeah, and she's just like a yeah, yeah. deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. And I've just watched her over a period of time. She never said anything. Mm-hmm. And then she'll just very sweetly get up and say, well, this has been nice and leave. Gotta go. So how how do we start helping? Because this is not only of the people in our lives. This is us. This is us in the future, if not now. Yeah. How do we create environments right. that are more conducive to peace? Well, we become it. You know, and again, this is where education really comes into play. And um, I know we'll talk about the WISH unit Mm -hmm. in a bit, too, um, a device that can help with that as well. But this is the thing. It's like the kids have always said, we can't be here until here is the frequency of love. Mm -hmm. We can't fully embody here until here is love. And so this is where we're in a transition We've had all of these kids show up that on the one hand are holding this higher vibration, this higher frequency, and on the other hand are really challenging everybody in their midst because they are holding that vibration. Mm -hmm. So this is where we really are invited to find that peace within ourselves. And this is no small feat for a parent of a child diagnosed with autism. Right. But when we really begin to understand that, you know, for like your friend, where is her peace? 
where does she find peace? She finds peace in being in that environment for a small period of time and then leaving and going to where it feels a little bit more sacred to her. These ideas, these opportunities to literally create sacred spaces. That's what it seems to me is, is really is huge. Yeah. It's yeah. hugely important. And this is also why this population is demonstrating to us everything that does not work for evolving humanity, like education, public, uh, public That's education, what we're going public to get schools. Into. Yes. You know, when you, when you're in an environment where everything is about, um, where everything is about getting something done mm-hmm. and not anything about the being, mm-hmm. right? That it's not going to work for us anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work for an evolving humanity. So we really are looking at creating these spaces. And for those of us who have this kind of information, helping in every way we can to create them everywhere, because it's not just about lowering the volume at a movie theater or creating a um, creating a school or a center where it's sensory, mm-hmm. you know, appropriate for this population. Those are all wonderful steps. But if we're really talking about the future of humanity and where these kids are attempting to take us, then we really, we really need to go inward. We really need to understand that by creating these spaces within ourselves, we begin to create that field. Mm-hmm. And the more we create that field, the more the kids show up. Mm-hmm. So when, before we came on here, when we were in the green room, um, I sent you this little thing. I just felt inclined to send you that uh, I'm sitting down to read a book and boom, this message starts coming through. So I just dict- I just took mm-hmm. dictation and I felt compelled to share it with you. Mm-hmm. You were reading and you said, this is what the kids are saying. Mm-hmm. And this has to do with the absolute necessity that we in every moment, in every way possible, start connecting to the frequency of love. Yeah. If it's an appreciation for your little mm-hmm. puppy, it doesn't matter what it is. Absolutely. It's, it's anything that, anything that puts us right in the world, anything that puts us Mm -hmm. right with ourselves in Mm -hmm. the world, you know, and again, you know, that's on, on the one hand, that's not an easy task right now because there's so much going on in the world. But again, I tell parents all the time, turn it all off because you are attempting to create an environment that is literally sacred for you and your kids. And I have a couple that I'm working with right now that I absolutely adore. They're an Indian couple. And because of their culture and because of the background, they have practices that they do that have really enhanced that experience for them. The, the, the truth of who they are is, mm-hmm. is being more embodied. And as the truth of who they are is being more embodied, of course, their son looks at them through those multidimensional eyes and through that multidimensional sight and is noticing what's working for them in order to come in. Mm-hmm. And he tracks them right in. He follows them right in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Now, what happens when we're talking kind of environmental, situational when um, these kids interface a lot with technology? It can, it depends, can, honestly. Is it grounding or is it disorienting or is it individual? It's, in some ways it's individual, but I think with all the kids that I've seen over the years, what I will say is 
The technology in some ways is multi-layered, multi-dimensional as well. The way technology is set up now, uh-huh. um, and I'm not a tech person, but what I notice is there's an interest in that technology because it is multi-layered, multi um It has all faceted. those algorithms running yes, behind the yes. scenes. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's short and sweet and to the point, mm-hmm. and it just keeps moving, which is very similar to the kids. The challenge becomes when that technology is um, really wrapped up in violence and or aggression and or anything that really is not in alignment with the yeah. souls of these kids seeking to come into the frequency that's what, of love. That's what the, my neighbor um, said she's concerned about because yeah. her younger son uh, has become addicted to um his technological devices, but he is doing violent games. Yes. And she's yes. seeing big yes. changes in his behavior. He's not even trying at school now. Yeah. He doesn't want to anymore. Well, even I would say over the last you know few years mm-hmm. now, it's like I've had more parents contacting me saying that, you know, they've kids are literally throwing computers, you yeah. know, yeah. or phones exactly. or um, I did have a mom the other day on the integration series that I teach him. She was saying, you know, my child is definitely giving me a message, but he's picking up my cell phone and tossing it. And um, and it was great. I was like, would you consider that maybe, you know, we are so into this technology right now. It literally is taking us away from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of that time could be spent internally, you know, really kind of getting to know you know, who we are. And he's just he literally is tossing it like, yeah. you know, it's like that needs to go so that we can be more present. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So one of the things you and I talked about um, a few weeks ago when we decided to do this interview mm-hmm. is I had interviewed um, Dr. Linda Backman, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so many of the beings, uh, people coming for regression now mm-hmm. are finding they're not from here. Yeah. Also a big increase relatively of the instance of people on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So coming in from other places and you said yes. And so let's talk about that. And then I want to go to ancient times past, but let's talk first about beings who are telling you, letting you know they've come from somewhere else with something specific and maybe wired entirely differently. Absolutely. So when I very first started working with the kids, I used to ask all the time, it's like, Okay, clearly you're not from here. You know, where are you? You right. know, and, and at the time I kind of understood that the earth had 12 dimensions, you know, yeah. it's, and so. You assumed it's a dimension of earth? I assumed initially. that it was one of those. Yeah. Yes. And, um, but what was great is like, and I, quite honestly, I wasn't at the time I wasn't looking into dimensions. I didn't know what the different dimensions right. actually really meant. But when I would ask, the kids would say over and over again, you know, I, where are you from? 19, 20, 32. What it was like, okay. And what do your bodies look like if you're in those spaces? Sometimes those bodies were light. Sometimes those bodies were more like a consciousness. Sometimes those bodies were in a physical form, but the whole, um, the whole expression of that body was very different. 
And they kept taking me back to one of the very first experiences I had after I met the kid that changed my life. And I went from being speech pathologist to multidimensional communicator. People used to come to my office and they would lay down on the, you know, table and I would do energy work with them. And when I would close my eyes, I would see their bodies as their galactic self. Mm-hmm. Right. So what kind of bodies have you seen? All kinds of bodies. <laughs> there are as many bodies as there are that you can conceive of. But what I also realized is, especially with this population, if you have a body in a higher dimensional state that is not in alignment with this human physical body, this human physical body is going to have all kinds of challenges, mm-hmm. right? And so again, how do we integrate those two realities? It's like trying to put two mainframes of a computer together and have them work as one unit, mm-hmm. right? So, but this is something that we need to address because quite frankly, every single one of us is attempting to go through this same integration process. We're attempting to bring the capacity that we actually are in these other worlds and realms and realities into the human experience so that we can gift back to humanity what we are in truth. And the earth herself is going through these vibratory changes. Absolutely. Refining herself. And the only way to stay with a a body of any kind, a planet or whatnot, is Mm -hmm. you have to keep pace with the available frequencies to incarnate into. Absolutely. If you if yeah. you can't raise your frequencies over time here, yes. you really can't incarnate to Earth or this iteration of Earth, maybe to another dimension of it, but not right. this iteration yeah. that we're all yeah. sitting in together. Well, and I see I see it as going both ways. I mean, it's like that Earth Mother is a consciousness of her mm-hmm. own, right? And Vast. so, and so, to me, this population is. Not just this population, but all the new populations coming in are, mm, there's an exchange, there's a vibrational exchange going on between the earth and this consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because as much as, you know, I, there are all kinds of beings that we can interact with and there's all kinds of information that we can, um, be privy to as we open to these different realms of ourselves. I think the way that that humanity actually changes is by giving birth, by literally physically giving birth to a child that holds a higher vibrational field mm-hmm. than what has been here before. It and makes with, total sense. It's evolution. It's evolution. And with one in 43 kids diagnosed on the spectrum, I mean, it's like we're now, kind when of... when you started this... One in 10,000. One in 10,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one in 43, and that number is going to continue reducing. Yes. Well, and what's interesting, too, is that when you look at some of the kids that were born like 25, 30 years ago, like we were talking, they did not have the vibrational field to step into, uh-huh. right? It was very challenging and, and for very, them to be present Yeah, here. a lot of upheaval for the families and oh, the beings. Terrible. Yeah. And And there was also this energy of, you know, there were very few of those kids that were able to really fully embody. Mm -hmm. And by fully embody, I don't mean that they 
end up looking just like us. What I mean is they fully embody that frequency that they are and they express it and act from that. Yeah. The kids that are coming in now hold a, have the benefit of those that have come before them. Mm -hmm. And because humanity as a whole is starting to wake up and evolve, um, express differently than we have, they're having a much easier time. That's why I love getting families who have young kids on the spectrum because you know that you can completely reorient, um, you know, yes. how that experience is going to be for them. Um, yeah. And I'm in media has been taking it on. Yes. You yeah. have in all different kinds of shows. Someone on the spectrum yeah. now is very common. Yes. Even in the world of cartoons. Yes. They'll have someone who's on the spectrum amidst them is yeah. screaming because it's too loud or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. they'll say, I'm just, it's just that I'm sensitive and this sound feels different to me. And so the educational process is becoming almost ubiquitous through entertainment and media. Right. Right. And, and I love seeing all of that shift and me being a little bit of a futurist myself. Yes. I still, I, I would love this information to um, expand into we are energy. Right. It's not there yet. I know. It's not I know. Physical. It's just accepting people who exactly. are different at this, yeah. which is yeah. further along than we were 10 or 15 years ago, oh, for sure. Oh, light years it's ahead. A, it's a start. Right. So one of the things that you talk about, too, is that aside from many of the beings having totally different cosmic bodies because mm-hmm. they're from other places mm-hmm. and who've come for task, for purpose, to teach, to yeah help lift the frequencies, is also those who are coming back after a long break from Mm -hmm. Lemurian times. And a lot of our viewers will find this interesting Mm -hmm. because many of them have past life recall from Lemurian times and know a bit about their own history. Let's talk about the significance of that. So I kept hearing from kids that they were from Lemuria over and over and over again. And I got in a little trouble, actually, because I made a blanket statement at one point and said, you know, autistic individuals across the board are from Lemuria. I don't know if that's the case. Mm -hmm. The ones that come to me have a tendency to have started there, you might say. So at the time of Lemuria, we were in bodies of light. And the body frequency and the consciousness were much more... um, able to interface, right? And so a lot of those children, literally the last time they were here, when I first started working in 99, the the last time these kids had been here was at the time of Lemuria. And it just blew me away that these children, these souls could come into form holding that kind of frequency and yet be in the density of of a 3D body. So if you put those two things together, you, it's like no wonder that they have such a challenge being yeah. in form. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I reflect back to my own spirit, my mm-hmm. spiritual group, my guides, talking to me about what it was like in the beginning here, which when everything was coming into formation, before it was dense, mm-hmm. before it had dropped into this frequency, this density, but the template was there, the beings were there. Mm-hmm. And it does make sense that those who did not choose to make that leap to incarnate once we densified, so yes, to speak. Exactly. Um, and we're what we pretty much what we see now, 
it makes sense that, well, I know many did not choose to incarnate during those times Mm -hmm. because it was too painful and it was the merging wasn't going well. Mm -hmm. But like you say, the earth herself, Mm -hmm. cosmically, Mm -hmm. the frequencies are lifting. So it makes sense that the beings, just by virtue of the lift in vibration, would be able to now start contemplating coming into a physical body, but it's still awfully dense compared to what was in that pre-third-dimensional phase on Earth. The kids had said at one point that there was a harmonic convergence or something along those lines, like in 1986, Mm -hmm. I think. That seemed to be a huge portal to start letting some of these souls come in. Interesting. And, you know, some came in beforehand, but they started coming in in mass, you might say. Then it started to, to, yeah, just create a portal, I guess, to really start opening them up to come in and show up. And then I also heard that in 1995, a lot of the souls that started coming in at that time of the harmonic convergence, they started getting stuck, is what the kids would say. And when I asked about what that was about, that's where we got into the whole thing about um, vaccinations and things like that, because in 1995 is where the American Medical Association went from 12 to 36, tripled it. Yeah. Yeah. And there are many people who make that argument. Yeah. Many. Yeah. Uh, you can certainly go to Children's Health Defense to look into that. Totally. Further. Yeah. Um, so here we're talking about, we brought it up earlier, the educational system. Mm-hmm. How in the world, and I want to save a little mm-hmm. time for WISH yeah. and the technology. How in the world are we going to work this now? This, the, it, what, what when we get to, uh, we're in what, one in 43, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a leap at all before it's one in 10. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our educational systems are completely outdated for the new being. What are we going to do? How's this going to go? Yeah. Well, I think that part of this last few years have been really helpful, too, because so many parents have had to pull their kids out of school. Because COVID. Yeah. Right. And it may not have been something that they would have ever considered doing before. Mm -hmm. But when for I would say not all of them, but for many of them, they began to see that their children functioned differently because they were pulled from those situations. Right. And again, I'm not saying that every school is, you know. No, it's just a system that was created just, out of past needs. Absolutely. Not current and right. future needs. And I think that that's an important word to use is the system mm-hmm. is not a vibrational match to who these kids right. are. Some of the individuals in those sure. systems are absolutely and some a schools vibrational are more, match. Yeah. Right. But what's fascinating to me is that, you know, as people, as parents have been pulling their kids home and have had to seek other opportunities, they're seeing that their children are more comfortable or are, um, you know, less aggressive or they're this, you know, mm-hmm. something's changing behaviorally. And for a parent of the kid on the spectrum, let me tell you, if they start seeing that shift, they also then are starting to make these shifts. Mm-hmm. And so parents that would never have considered homeschooling or doing other things along those lines, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden are, oh, something vibrationally has changed. Something energetically is different. So let's keep going down this road. I honestly think we're just going to keep going down that line, you know, and different people are coming together now to 
literally create sacred spaces. They're literally coming together to speak to who these children are in truth Mm -hmm. and address them from that vantage point. Well, so many more people are able to also communicate telepathically than in the future. I mean, than in the past. That is our future. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the kids are, as the kids are working with their parents and they're working with people like us who can access them, what ends up happening is they give us little glimpses into their worlds. I mean, I had a, a kid few years ago that literally just grabbed my hand. I was sitting on a park bench and he grabbed my hand. And the next thing I know, I'm in a completely different reality with him. He's completely verbal in that reality. Hmm. He's in his art studio. He's telling me why he does art. He also does art in the physical, in this world, right? And he's explaining all of this information to me. So what we really want to begin to understand is that they're trying to access us. Mm-hmm. And as we'll be curious, like you said, as we'll start um, asking more questions than thinking that we have the answers, right. they begin to open us up to our own multidimensional capacity, just like they did for me. If they mm-hmm. can do it for me, they can do it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Anywhere. Um, yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah. So I was just saying that it, this is the, this is the gift. And as they start connecting with us, we can start hearing directly from them what is required for the next education system, what is required for the next medical systems. And we can co-create it. And we can co-create it. Yeah. Meanwhile, sometimes technology can give a little lift. A little and so I want to save yes. just a yeah, few yeah. minutes for, so this, tell us about the wish technology. Yeah. How, and we only have about five minutes. How okay. it came about? What is being used for now? Yeah. So the wish technology stands for world integrity space harmonizing uh-huh. harmonizer. And this is something that, um, has a fifth dimensional background. Um, so it has a, different state of consciousness that this was created from. And from me, for me, I'm always looking for things that can create a higher symmetry state. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for for opportunities coherence, to create symmetry, co- so forth. Exactly. Yeah. And create sacred space, yeah. basically, whether coherent space. So this technology was created um, really to do just that so that when somebody has this unit in their home, it actually starts to, you would, might say, um, clear the fields, clear mm-hmm. the information fields in the house, clear the energy of the land. And then by connecting up with the unit yourself, it starts to clear each individual in the household. So what happened when you started playing with this mm-hmm. with some of your autistic clients? What happened, we had one one experience in particular that really struck me because when I first started working with this, I'm somebody who wants to know that something's going to do what it's going to do in order to bring it to my population. And so I was going to visit some friends and have some body work. And I took my unit with me. And they also have a friend who's a client of mine who was doing, um, was visiting at the same time. So I gave them my unit. They had just moved into a new house and so that they could clear out the space. And they kept talking about the fact that this little girl 
diagnosed on the spectrum, was doing so well in this new house. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't paying much attention to it because I was there for body work, right? Mm-hmm. So, but on one day in particular, we were all eating and the little girl started becoming very aggressive and she just got very anxious and her mom was trying to support her and that wasn't really working. And my friend came down the stairs and I said, is the wish unit on? And he said, no, I just turned it off. Mm. And I said, go turn it back on. So he turned it back on, took three minutes for this child to regulate. And I asked her mom, I said, how long would this have taken if you were at home under regular circumstances? She goes, an hour, an hour and a half, and I would have just been pinched and kicked and hit and kind of bruised up in the meantime, you know, as I tried to support her as moving through this. Yeah. So it was exactly what I was asking for, you know, because we didn't set it up as an experiment. I needed to have objective truth. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So, so people now they use it to help with their kids and soothe them. And it's not, it, when I first heard about it, it reminded me a little bit of FLFE, the focused life force energy. Are they similar or do they have slightly different functions? They both bring up frequencies in in a space. This, as I have worked with this, this is a consciousness. Mm -hmm. So the consciousness has one intention and one intention only. And that is for the highest and best for mm-hmm. each individual in the space. So does it permeate a small space or? 3,000 square feet. 3,000 square feet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It can also be connected to each person in the household. So for a child diagnosed on the spectrum, let's say they're requiring a little different um, vibrational space, you might say, than maybe the, the mother or the parents mm-hmm. who are attempting to, you know, maybe work through some of their own emotional stress Mm. of having a child diagnosed with autism. So it does different things for different people because it's a consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I've had some really fun experiences with it myself. Mm -hmm. So I just, yeah, so I know that it's... No, did did this come about when William Tiller... Yes. Yeah. So famous, wonderful I Dr. Know. William Tiller, who's no longer with us, the man who said love is the universal solvent. He was so right, and the kids would and all applaud him and over yes. and over. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he um, the I worked with Bill Tiller to do the autism intention experiment. Right. And in that experiment, we used something called the intention host device. And the intention host device was brilliant um, because Bill Tiller in that heart energy that yes. he was, was imprinting that intention and broadcasting it. Um, and that intention was coming directly from the collective consciousness mm-hmm. of the children. And then with his heart energy, it, we had some really lovely success yeah. with that. This is kind of what I would consider like the next generation yeah. of the intention host device. Mm-hmm. And um, the consciousness here is also love-based. Yes. Um, love-based consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Susie, thank you for all your work in this field thank and you. for coming and helping us understand this in more depth so we can embrace this in our own families, our own lives, and in ourselves. Yeah. Thank you very well. much. Thank you. Yeah. 
If you have someone in your life that has been diagnosed as on the spectrum, please feel free to reach out to Susie to learn more about how you can each gain the most out of your relationship. You can go to SusieMiller.com and that's Susie with a Z, S-U-Z-Y, Miller.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. That was lovely. That was great. Uh, in real time, it's, I've worked with children in the autism spectrum. Not to mention that we all got a bit of this. Uh, and, uh, yes, group work is fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Requires more than one person to work with the group. And that's kind of what what the whole world's going through a really bad case of autism because <laughs> mm. world group service has to do with a, a freedom that the system here has attempted for many generations to suppress so mm. take our time go slowly do a few things and do them well mm. and uh, this one uh, this is with George Nury, and he's has a gentleman. His guest is Sir Charles Schultz, S H U L T S, the third. Rise so, of neurotechnology and the future of AI. How should we approach the inevitable rise of artificial intelligence? and transhumanism. Sir Charles Schultz III is an aerospace engineer who was knighted for his research in robotics and AI. In addition to previous work developing nuclear fusion systems, he discusses the ethics and implications of the transhumanist movement. Elon Musk's Neuralink, and the mysteries of extraterrestrial life in the universe. The discussion um, culminates with an assessment of whether these advancements will prove that we live in a simulated dream world or a truly organic reality. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of blurry lines in that question so let's see where we where we find ourselves listening to um, George Nury with Sir Charles Schultz the third this mm. is 47 minutes and so this will start now here we go mm. Mm. what's in a person's mind is through what they write or speak or do. That's all about the change. Neuralink is one of the new channels that will allow us to interface directly with the brain. One of the things you can do with a Neuralink interface or any sort of computer interface is learn how to remotely operate heavy equipment, a machine, as if you're putting on a robot body. Are you scared about artificial intelligence? I have a very cautionary feeling about it. 
We are now at the point where the growth of information and knowledge is outstripping our ability to appreciate and understand it. Should we stop doing what we're doing? You can't. The genie's out of the bottle. It is. The problem, in my estimation, is that we don't teach people ethics along with technology. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Sir Charles Schultz III worked at Martin Marietta Aerospace for 10 years on weapon systems and computer-based automated test equipment. Now, he wrote the nuclear EMP test software and many other notable military aerospace projects. He has been knighted and is currently working on research in robotics and artificial intelligence. Sir Charles, always great to talk to you. Thank you, George. It's a real pleasure to be here. We finally meet after all these years. It's taken huh? 18 years. <laughs> How did you get involved in all of this? You know, I've always been fascinated by science, and I always wanted to understand how everything worked. When I was a child, I figured I'd be living and working in space, so I'd better learn everything I possibly could just to make myself capable of supporting that sort of a lifestyle. You love space, too. I absolutely I mean, love so it. You're so excited yeah. about Mars and those anomalies you found and stuff like that. Absolutely, and it's something I feel people should know about. You have dealt with something that is coming across this planet in record numbers. And that is the Neuralink system. I'm Absolutely. going to have you explain that. Hardly a night doesn't go by on my radio show where somebody calls in and says, George, there are 25 UFOs up there. It's the Neuralink satellite system. What is it? <laughs> well, Neuralink doesn't have anything to do with satellites, of course. It's actually based on a very simple premise. Through all of history, the human brain has been an isolated item. And the only way you know what's in a person's mind is through what they write or speak or do. That's all about the change. Neuralink is one of the new channels that will allow us to interface directly with the brain. And there are two of those types of channels that exist right now. One of them is functional MRI. You know, we have people who are comatose and unresponsive and unable to communicate. Right. Well, we have a means of seeing what's in their mind now. We literally can get a picture of what they're imagining in their heads. And so they've found anywhere from one out of three to one out of six of these people are fully aware but unable to say anything. And so they'll say, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions, yes or no questions. And if the answer is yes, think of a green square. If the answer is no, think of a red triangle. And then they talk to them. And looking at the monitor, they can see what that person is visualizing in the head, and they've established communications with them. Well, now this is amazing. We can see locked-in people actually are many times aware. Well, now Neuralink gives us a direct channel. I don't know if you're aware of the experiments that were done by Elon Musk's group to teach a monkey to play a video game such yes, as Pong. Amazing. And so they plant a chip about the size of a postage stamp with thousands of tiny electrodes like needles into the tissue of the brain in an area where there's a map of your body called the homunculus. And when you think of moving, there's a certain firing pattern of neurons. So they collect that firing pattern through Bluetooth to a program that analyzes it. And the program figures out predictively where you're going to move. And so the monkey used a joystick. And the program figured out what his moves were going to be before he did it. Before he did it. Then they disconnect the joystick and the monkey's playing the game. But the actual link is through the neural link to the game. Then they remove the joystick. And the monkey sees the game and thinks about the movements he would make. And the computer sends those codes to the program and plays the game. Now, why is this important? There are many people who are paralyzed, whether paraplegic or quadriplegic or worse. 
and they don't have a means of communicating. So this gives them the ability to interface an artificial nerve system or actually augment their own so they can regain control. They could even add limbs that are missing, such as prosthetics, and control them directly by thinking. So this is one of the many things you could do with Neuralink. There would be chips in your head. Absolutely. And in most cases, they're about the size of a postage stamp. Uh, There's a company called Synchron that's making them about an inch and a half long. And they're one of the major competitors with Elon Musk's company, Neuralink. Uh, one of the things they discovered... He's the one putting up the satellites. Well, yes, he's putting up satellites, but they're for Starlink, Internet communication. And actually, it works pretty well. Uh, it depends on the area you're in. Uh, and it's so popular, I think they're running out of channels. <laughs> really? Well, I would get it myself, but it's not available in the area where I'm moving. Would you get a chip in your brain if you needed it? I don't think that I would at this time. I feel that the you never buy the earliest version of the technology. And that's one of the reasons I put forward. I would wait until it was more developed. With anything? With anything, sure. With anything. What are the benefits of the, doing this long range, though? Okay, so imagine you have to work in an extremely dangerous environment. You'd rather have a robot in that environment than a human being who could die. Okay. And so one of the things you can do with a Neuralink interface or any sort of computer interface is learn how to remotely operate heavy equipment, a machine, as if you're putting on a robot body. You can work in areas where there are pressures or temperatures or radiation that would kill you instantly by using a proxy, an avatar, if you will. Interesting take. Science is moving way too fast sometimes, Sir Charles. Well, it would seem in times past when our technology wasn't as advanced, we had time to see the ramifications of things that we were doing. Today, that's not necessarily the case. Within a month or two or three or a year, they want to go to the next stage without fully analyzing what the repercussions might be. Is there a downside to this? Well, there can be. Um, the same sort of technology that can plug into your brain could also be used to write memories or erase memories or alter your personality. And I understand from, let's say, a psychotherapy standpoint, this might be helpful. But you don't want it to be something against a person's will, and you don't want to do something that's going to violate their their personal sovereignty, in a manner of speaking. Could they turn you into a Manchurian candidate? Well, there's no doubt that that could be done. I mean, that's been done with psychological and drug programming in the past. Absolutely. So there's that possibility. On the other end of this uh, spectrum, there are, well, there are very good things you can do as well. Restoring damaged memory, um, possibly augmenting parts of the brain that have been damaged by tumors or illnesses or cancer. You can do a lot of things with this sort of technology, including saving memories and experiences that otherwise would be lost. There's an old African proverb that says, when an old man dies, a library burns to the ground. What if you could save all of your experience and the knowledge that you would otherwise lose at death? It's like the Truman Show. Well, in some ways it is. And I think that a lot of people are unaware of how deeply this could lead. If you can implant sensory inputs into the mind, you could create a false world around somebody and they could live in basically a sandbox universe uh, of their making or of or not of their making. So it's something to consider that it's possible that this could be an invasive project that literally leads to living in a dream world. Are they doing this to us now, Sir Charles? I would doubt that. There are certain things that would seem to be consistent in reality. And if you were making a false reality, it would be too easy to slip up somewhere. I know a lot of people might point to things like what they feel are glitches in the matrix, as you've heard of these events. 
three fellows with the same shirt on a bus in a row. How did that happen? But I don't think that we ourselves are in a reality of mankind's making. Um, some would argue that our whole world is a simulation, and that's hard to prove or disprove, but it's a possibility. Artificial intelligence, is it going too far too fast? I think that one of the things people fail to recognize is about 90% of the funding for the development of artificial intelligence comes from military or financial projects. And that isn't a good sign. Um, we often talk about the lone inventor or the military team programming an AI. And you have to wonder if such a thing they create would actually be sane by our standards. And that's a real worry. Good point. Tell us about singularity. What is that? Ah, uh, the singularity. If we look at the growth of human knowledge, we know that it isn't linear. If we take the number of facts we had at year one and compare it to the number of facts we had at year 1000 of the Middle Ages, we can see that the amount of single uh, of knowledge about doubled in humanity. In another 500 years, it doubled again. In another quarter of a millennium, it doubled again. We are now at the point where the growth of information and knowledge is outstripping our ability to appreciate and understand it. And the singularity occurs when it is no longer possible to predict what happens next on a daily basis. Let's look at Gaia's Deep Space, William Henry, talking about singularity. Certainly. The singularity brings with it the good, the bad, and the ugly. It can bring, bring dramatic changes in problem solving for humanity in terms of economics, physics, chemistry, medicine. We're talking about miraculous new discoveries and solutions to very human problems. The bad is that it's going to cost us millions upon millions of jobs. As much as 90% of the human population will be unemployed when the singularity takes place. That leads to the ugly. The potential for anarchy is absolutely astounding. And nobody seems to be talking about that potential of unleashing the power of artificial intelligence. Take a look around your life, your daily life. You go into a coffee shop, you go to the dry cleaner, you see a policeman, you see a, a taxi driver. Any and all of those jobs will be eliminated from a human perspective and replaced by artificially intelligent robots within 10 years. When we're talking about the singularity eliminating jobs, we're talking about almost any job that involves any kind of routine. Doctors, lawyers, eliminated, replaced by AI robots. Menial jobs, however, street sweepers and construction workers, this is the type of job that is very difficult for machines to do. Anything that we can do with our human hands and involves movement in our feet are jobs that will ultimately be secure. Thinking jobs, however, are going to be eliminated on a human basis and will be replaced by machines. One of the advantages of, of achieving the singularity is that it unites human intelligence with machine intelligence to solve human problems. Problems with the environment, problems with biology, problems in medicine. If we can solve these problems, we're talking about miraculous cures for diseases. We're talking about a new way of living. But the cost is unparalleled and beyond our comprehension. Artificial intelligence can have a revolutionary impact on our politics, on medicine, on our environment, on biology, because it's of its ability to access massive amounts of data and, and perceive patterns that would take perhaps a human years to be able to perceive. So it has some pluses and minuses, obviously. Certainly. Well, one of the things here is, as was pointed out, many of the intellectual jobs can be automated. Once you have a, an algorithm for doing things properly, that generally becomes a solution. 
But when we talk about loss of employment, there are a lot of things to consider. In the year 1200, how many people were employed? Everybody was. I mean, they worked at the business of staying alive. That's right. When we look at how we live in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, there was a survey done that said in order to provide the level of service that we experience in our life due to simple devices like refrigeration and vehicles, it would take about 86 slaves equivalent of effort to give us that level of uh, living, that standard of living. Now we're in a position where it's hard to gauge that because a lot of what we do is based on information. So I think the big flaw in this reasoning is that you must be gainfully employed in the system that runs the economy in order to be a positive asset to humanity. I think that a lot of people could live off grid and quite successfully on their own without any bad effects on the rest of us. So, Charles, are we going to have robocops like William Henry predicted? There's no doubt of that. You may remember the big dog by Boston Dynamics, the four-legged runaround yeah, pack yeah. carrier robot. They have smaller versions now, and they have recently appeared armed. And it's been said that they'll be used on front lines and patrolling military borders and this sort of wow. thing. But the suggestion has also been made that they could be placed in areas of town where there are a lot of crime or rioting. And that's a slippery slope because then just a few steps further and pretty soon machines could be patrolling the city streets. And so we don't shooting at will. And that's the problem. We don't want to see this sort of thing happen. The question is, how do we circumvent this development from becoming a standard fixture in our lives? The problem in my estimation is that we don't teach people ethics along with technology. And we need to focus on ethics. What makes us human? Well, then you can't program ethics, can you? I would say you could. I mean, consider that if you can create a machine that has a self-image and has an understanding of rules and law, perhaps you can take it to the next step and give it a sense of morality and ethics. Even if it doesn't feel emotionally, it could still evaluate at some level what would be the ethical choice minimal to no harm. You see where I'm going. Isn't this violating all of Isaac Asimov's rules of robots? Ah, uh, well, that, see, this is a very good, uh, a very good point. Asimov's fictional robotic laws were really sort of a benchmark because for the very first time, somebody had quantified exactly or codified perhaps what it would take to create robots that can work within a human civilization. Mm-hmm. The first law You can't uh, harm a human uh, unless, you know, something horrible happens that forces you to. Second law, you can't disobey humans' instructions unless it violates the first law, and so on. But it was found that the laws were inconsistent because a machine could decide that there's an overriding law that you must do everything you can to prevent any harm to humans. Well, that would end up being a dictatorship. So we would lose all choice. Right. So while in concept it's a great idea – it doesn't really hold logically. Nevertheless, you and I have the ability to figure out what's right in a society. You're free to do anything you choose to do. You have free will, but at the same time, you have an obligation not to do any harm. Fascinating. But it could backfire. <laughs> well, it can. Um, many times people will say, well, we're doing this for your own good. And that typically is a false face for the desire to control. And I think that the desire for one person to to control the lives of another is probably a mental illness. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Charles, what is mind uploading? 
Ah, this actually takes off directly from what we're seeing in the Neuralink. The possibility of taking the elements of your memory, your personality, everything that makes you you, and uploading a copy into the computer and then activating it. And so there's two types of memories that would have to be uploaded. One is, of course, all of your experiences and memories and things that you've done. But the other one is the procedures, the decisions you make and how you go about it. Your sense of ethics and morality and operational rules. Once you get an image like that in the computer and you activate it, there's a very good chance that if the simulated world in the computer that it inhabits is realistic enough, it would feel very much like it is you. And so imagine going into a studio, sitting down, having some sort of a scanning procedure performed. And at the end of that scan, either one of two things is going to happen. You're going to stand up and go home, or you're going to realize you're not where you were, which would be a good indication that you're the copy. You may be the copy, the <laughs> you digital the copy. version. Now, there can be some advantages to this. Uh, if the body is killed, the mind could live on. And effectively, you could be immortal. One of the things to consider is that you don't know who might edit or alter who and what you are. And we tend to do things like that. They talk about us living in a digital universe. Well, absolutely. If that's the case, who's controlling it? And that's the thing. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, we often think that people will develop the elements independently. But as has usually been the case, we learn a lot from nature and the world and organisms around us. And so it may well be that uploaded mind sections will be analyzed and pressed into service to become true AIs, sentient machines in the near future. Sandbox scenario, what is that? So a sandbox is basically a safe place to do something. And when you create a sandbox world, think of it as being a digital copy or model of our world, something that an artificial organism or an uploaded mind could inhabit. And what you want to do if you create, let's say, an AI or a world of AIs, you want to put them in an isolated computer system that isn't networked to anything else to provide a safety barrier between the external world Mm -hmm. and the sandbox world. And so this would allow them to live in this simulation. You could present them with problems or scenarios and see them work out the results in a logical or useful manner. And then you can harvest that information and apply it to the real world. One of the things to consider is a sandbox can run 10, 100, 1,000 times faster than reality. So for every second that the sandbox is running, the mind in the sandbox would experience about 16 minutes and 40 seconds. Are are you scared about artificial intelligence? I have a very cautionary feeling about it. I mean, I've had a lot of experience in the research and the operation, and I can see that there are definite, definite possible problems. The sandbox scenario is one way of isolating those problems if you're very, very careful. You can never allow the sandbox world to be interfaced to the real world any more than face-to-face conversation. You don't want any digital input or output to the rest of the world because there could be hazards. Do you have uh, hope for the future with AI looming out there? Absolutely, I do, because there are many things that an artificial intelligence running at a higher level of intellectual capacity than a human could solve. There are a lot of issues that we need solving in the world, and that could be a benefit. They can also run much faster and devote more time to that problem in a short period compared to us. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of benefit to be seen from AI. It can do a lot of the drudgery. It solved the uh, protein-solving problem and another of other things. But, yeah, there are hazards. We have to be very, very cautious because 
And AI on the loose could literally displace uh, human thinking, human the human world. In every aspect. Pretty much, yes. And a lot of it, it would find it didn't need, living on electrical power and computing space, it wouldn't need any of the resources That's we do. Right. Our dear friend William Henry, again on Gaia's Deep Space, talks about the possible ramifications of AI. Certainly. Dr. Ray Kurzweil envisions a day when you will go to an electronic store and you will have the the lens of your eye removed and it will be replaced with a, a liquid that's packed with electronics and a camera and a radio. And you will be given then supervision. You'll be able to see in the dark. You'll have infrared vision. and You'll be able to be wired to the Internet 24-7. Well, with this supervision comes supervision. And that's the problem. And when that happens, we're talking about a different form of human. They, they refer to these as humanity 2.0 or transhumans. And what people don't realize is that the, the singularity and the skingularity when this technology is enmeshed with our body are not only running parallel, they're actually the same thing. And the only way humans are going to be able to survive in the new artificial intelligence environment of the singularity is if we ourselves become machines. It's interesting to talk about the phrase singularity in this context. So AI people call this the singularity for a very definite reason. They liken it to the physics of a black hole. At the center of a black hole, you have the singularity, essentially a point of virtual infinite density and infinite gravitational power. And in that type of crazy physics, all of the physics that we have don't seem to apply. They, we don't know how to predict things at the singularity. And this is what AI theorists are saying. When computing intelligence exceeds our own, we human beings will not have the ability to predict the trajectory of our civilization. We're basically going to be losing control over this car that we think we're driving. And it's now the dominant intelligence be beyond us and what will that dominant intelligence do will it, will it merge with us as Kurzweil thinks a combination of human machine hybrid intelligence where we'll be some freakish bunch of creatures living for 500 years in an IQs of a thousand totally unlike what we are or will the computers think humanity let's pull a terminator on them we have no idea we don't know or will they be our our willing slaves and make our world a paradise who knows that's why it's a singularity. We can't really predict any of this. That's Richard Dolan talking about that. What do you think of that? Well, he's absolutely right. That's one of the problems. For all of human history, we've been the top dog. We've been the only game in town. Absolutely. And now that we're developing systems that can compete with us or even exceed our capacities, we've, we raise a lot of questions and we raise a lot of dangers. It's often been stated even biblically that even a human being has no 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 uh, ability to guide his own life properly. And and if you think about it, we are animals in a technical world who try to develop a sense of responsibility and morality and understanding. If you have a machine that is dispassionate and smarter and more capable, where do we stand? We We don't want to become a part of the machine because you lose something essential about yourself. If you're no longer in control of yourself, who are you? Should we stop doing what we're doing? You can't. The genie's out of the bottle. It is. It's so easy that even people at home are working on AI projects. I mean, people are creating things unheard of before with all the new technologies. What we have to do is learn how to draw the line between how we connect ourselves to the machinery. Transhumanism is wonderful and all, 
And it promises a lot, like potential immortality, the ability to add new limbs and senses if it works well. If it works well. But the problem is it's all being designed by human beings who are fallible. And if we pass the torch to something smarter, how do we know that it's in our own interests? That's one of the issues. We must be very, very cautious, and we must confront it. Keep thinking of the computer HAL in Space Odyssey. Yes. Who basically turned... On his team, didn't he? He did. But if you read the next book in the series, you discover the reason Hal turned was because he was being given conflicting sets of information. True. Hal himself actually seemed to be a very moral computer in the, in the context of the story. So we have to understand we ourselves would be the ones that destroy a perfectly workable system by doing things such as lying, deception, and improperly formatting commands or trying to make it do things that conflict we ourselves reach a state of confusion when we're giving conflicted uh, sorts of goals or orders. What was the astronaut's name? Dave? Yes, it was. Dave Bowman. Was Dave. Yes, That's right. Hello, Dave. <laughs> yep. Enrico, take, a, from, take a stress pill, Dave. <laughs> Enrico Fermi was a physicist. Yes. And a darn good one. And lots of things have surrounded his career. But what is the Fermi paradox? Okay, so this is the issue. Fermi and a number of his uh, friends who were working on nuclear weaponry and research at the time often said, said the universe is ripe for life to exist everywhere and there should be civilizations everywhere. And we don't seem to hear any signs of them. And so one day Fermi, without saying anything really technical, just blurted out. So where the heck are they? And so he's right. He's right. The Fermi paradox got named that because of his very simple question. Where are they? And so I recently taught a six-part course on the Fermi Paradox. And this is something interesting. We have radio telescopes, uh, SETI, you know, the search for extraterrestrial yeah. intelligence, scanning the skies for years. And they get some tantalizing signals, but they discard them because they don't repeat. And then it goes away. And, well, I mean, if you're on a planet that has 17-hour day and we have a 24-hour day and those two don't sync up again the next day. You'll never get You'll it. never get that second signal again. And that's one of the easy ways of dismissing. The other one is they're all looking at what they call the waterhole frequencies, the hydroxyl frequencies. But we have laws that allow us that don't allow us to broadcast on those frequencies. Well, what if they use the same logic? They wouldn't be broadcasting on them and the sky would be silent there. True. But nevertheless, the the issue is this. We should have, it's been estimated, roughly three million civilizations in this galaxy right now, and we don't hear from them. So there's two things to consider. If they're living in the grassy plains or building mud huts or carving stone and don't have any electronics, we're not going to see laser light or hear radio signals. They could be as smart as they could be in the Victorian era, the steam era. The other thing to consider is this. There is a natural force in our galaxy that can easily wipe out civilizations. We normally see about 50 supernovas per year in our galaxy alone. And a supernova has an explosion radius. Uh, if one were nearby us, it could wipe out all our technology or destroy life on Earth, depending on how close it was. So if you take a radius of about 50 light years as being your blast radius of effect, a sphere with 50 light year radius contains about 2,000 stars. So when a supernova goes off, it, it irradiates roughly 2,000 stars. 50 supernovas means 100,000 stars in our galaxy per year get the effects of radiation. Which is just a blip. From just a blip, right. So in a millennium, you're thinking, well, that's a thousand times more than that. 
you you would be having a billion stars irradiated in 10,000 years. Uh, since the last ice age, we'd have a, an immense number, billions of stars being wiped out by supernova explosions. And all it takes is enough radiation to disrupt their electronics or turn part of their atmosphere to ozone or wipe out all life on their planet. And they're all toast. And they're toast or they're back in the Stone Age. I mean, where would we be with one major solar coronal mass ejection right now? Big trouble. Yes. I've been talking Generous. about that on the radio show for years. <laughs> That's we correct. We need to protect our power grid. Well, and it's not happening. And you know what the easiest way to protect the power grid is? Don't have one. Well, Everything should be distributed. A distributed system has independent multiple nodes instead of a domino. Instead of one gigantic antenna that's ready to get killed in one hit. Good point. <laughs> Good point. What about ET life? What's out there? All right. So we know that the stuff of life is everywhere in the universe. And it's called tholin. And it forms just from radiation from stars, ultraviolet light, heat, many different forces. And we also see clouds of these molecules in space. So we know it's likely that the most common life in space would probably be bacteria, simple, hardy organisms that eat this stuff. Okay. But every now and then you're going to have a planet that lives well enough, long enough in benign environmental conditions that things will develop. And we see good signs of that sort of stuff. Even on Mars, there appear to be fossil remains, although they don't talk about it. But we do know that bacteria should be everywhere and given enough time and benign conditions, it's quite likely that there's every sort of organism you can imagine living somewhere in space. And also consider what we think of as life supporting conditions on Earth. We're very human centric. We think of conditions like this much oxygen, temperature, pressure. But there are conditions that would kill us instantly that would support a lot of other life forms quite well. So you can expect billions of worlds with life that we wouldn't be able to step foot on without dying. It's the Drake equation. Well, it is the Drake equation. And we have to recognize that the parameters for the existence of life are much broader than the parameters that exist for human life. Absolutely. Now, how do we determine where these signals are coming from out there? Uh, Well, there are a number of things we can do. And one of them is you set up a number of radio telescopes or a number of infrared telescopes and you use what's known as very long baseline interferometry. So the signals from all of them are synchronized to extract as much data as you can, and it effectively gives you a lens the size of the Earth. And with that sort of resolution, we should be able to identify components in the atmospheres of planets that look like the exhaust of biology, like excess oxygen or certain gases that might exist only from organisms' operation. Right. Uh, And so we could find signals that way. But here's another one. One of the things we don't have around our planet is orbital power stations that harvest the sunlight, turn it into microwaves, and beam it to the Beams ground. Right, down right, orbital power. Well, if a civilization used orbital power, you can expect that an array of satellites orbiting their planet would have enough leakage or side lobes that we should be able to detect a fairly strong synchronized signal even from here. Good point. So some things we could look for. 4,000 light years away, there was a strange radio signal emanating from it. Let's check. Okay. Scientists have detected a radio signal from somewhere out in deep space, some 4,000 light years away. 
The signal pulsed every 18 minutes and 18 seconds, every time. 18 minutes and 18 seconds. It did this for three months. Then it stopped. Scientists assume it was a naturally occurring rotating object that like a lighthouse shining its beacon will send what appears to be a repeating signal. But Natasha Hurley Walker, whose study into this repeating signal was recently published in the journal Nature, told Vice, quote, there are no models that produce such bright radio emission from two objects in orbit with each other with such precision and any that would produce any kind of radio waves would also produce X-ray emission, which we don't see. Some think this might be coming from a highly magnetized star called a magnetar. So what does this all mean? Astronomer and Gaia News contributor, Mark D'Antonio. Maybe this strange signal is some weird kind of magnetar that is rotating, but we're not used to seeing it rotate 18 every 18 minutes that means a rather slow rotation so this is kind of weird it's something that doesn't match any model that we know and i think that it takes us down a new research path to try and figure out just what it is we're looking at if this signal is not from some type of dead star what else could it be there is a remote chance is the remote one the far remote one that it's a techno signature maybe Okay, now, what's a techno-signature? It's a signature from something intelligent that's beeping out something. Now, you know, repeating bursts like this, we always err on the side of caution and say, well, the universe rotates, everything rotates, so therefore it could be something rotating and flashing a hot side toward toward us that has this, this, this signal in it, like a hot spot. So it could either be something that's a techno signature that's intelligent, or it could be a naturally occurring strange kind of exotic star or magnetar, something along those lines. What in the world could it be? <laughs> what out of the world? <laughs> That's right. Well, there are a number of things that could produce a signal like that, and it's very easy to go right to an intelligent source. And that's not out of the question. It's just so distant, and we have so little information, it's hard to say. But if you had a cloud of gas, for, in- for instance, orbiting the star, and a beam of um, energy coming from the star and exciting it, obviously, it could produce radio waves. We've seen things similar to that. But the statement about it probably also producing X-rays, in most cases, that would be true. So it could be a new phenomenon, something we're not familiar with. It could be a technical signature. It could be something very prosaic and we're missing something. Um, I won't discount intelligence because, in my mind, there has to be a lot of intelligence in the universe. When you and I first met on the radio, we talked about Mars anomalies. Yes. What's your take on Mars these days? To me, it's very obvious. Earth and Mars both form from the same materials in the same solar system at the same same time. time. And you would expect that many of the conditions would be the same. They're both terrestrial worlds. And the formation of atmospheres, water, petroleum, those processes occur in the molten magma in the planet and then exit to the surface of the planet. That's where our oceans and petroleum all came from. Mm-hmm. Similar processes should have happened on Abiotic Mars. Abiotic oil. Absolutely. And actually, some of the subsurface radar scans appear to indicate occlusions underground that might be salt domes. That would be very consistent with the ocean oceanic environment being generated by chemistry in magma. We also do know 
The whole North Pole of the planet was covered in an ocean at one, pot, at one time, and there were oceans all over Mars, and they dried up quite a while ago. Most people, particularly in higher research organizations, say the water went away 4 billion or 2 billion years ago and wasn't chance for anything to grow there or live there. I think that's wrong that the planet is presently in an ice age, and we see signs of that from the Mars polar lander. It found ice only a couple of inches under the soil, and we often see slope streaks forming in craters where this ice is apparently melting and flowing as water. So it's very clear to me Mars was a smaller world than the Earth, less gravity, less mm-hmm. volcanism. It couldn't regenerate its atmosphere the way our volcanoes on Earth regenerate our own. And being in an ice age with the oceans frozen, well, the air gets lost. It gets very thin. But one thing stands in its favor. What's that? Organisms can live in water, even in a near vacuum. Absolutely. And so the water acts as a surrogate atmosphere. We were involved in some of the research done on samples back from the moon. And the Johnson Space Flight Center many years ago did research. And they took small cold-blooded animals and dropped them down to a tenth of an atmosphere, 1.5 pounds of pressure. And they survived after adapting quite well. So there were fish and reptiles and Mm -hmm. other things that lived in just a tenth of the atmosphere our planet has. They were able to adapt and thrive. Let's look at some of these Mars images. Absolutely. That's what we're looking at, Sir Charles. Here's our first one. Okay, so what I'd like to show you in figure one. We'll start up there in the corner. Absolutely. So figure one shows what is clearly dry sand. You can see a print made by the Mossbauer spectrometer on the left. And then the next day, you see that it has worn away. This is uh, day-by-day erosion that we have a track of. Pretty fast. It is. And you see they take numerous frames of the same area over many days on Mars, or sols as they're called. And we can see the rate that change is occurring. In figure two, you see a stretch of mud before and after the moss bower head was pressed into it. You see that ring-shaped print. The close-up in figure four shows a trail in the mud, and it does appear to be mud on the left. On the right, that trail has altered as if some water or some liquid has flowed over it in the course of the night. Now, when you say mud, we're talking about wet, soggy mud. Wet, soggy mud. So look at the ring print. If you look at the figure five, I've colorized an outline to show that it is exactly the same area. The patterns in the sphere rules prove that it is the same area just from two different photos. In figure six at the bottom, you see a dark area in the ring. That is where the mud that's, that's stuck that to the enhanced, moss bower. Right? Yes. Figure six is five. Enhanced. Okay. Uh, yep. So figure six shows you where the mud bulges. It doesn't flow like sand in figure one. Figure seven shows where the mud is sticking on the instrument. My contention is very simple. Dry sand does not stick to a plate of dry aluminum. That's right. And that print is an exact mirror image of the mud that peeled out of that print. This shows water had to flow within a 24-hour period in order to make that change in the mud. And it also shows that it must indeed be wet because the bulging you see there is totally different from the print in the sand. Now, this is the most important part about these images. We know that these features are being eroded on a day-by-day basis. So these features must not be new. They had to be created recently. Which means the planet is alive. It is wet. And wet. That's correct. And so there are many, many, there are thousands of images showing what appears to be the change from liquid water in the course of two to five days. Um, And NASA does not 
embrace this or even discuss this, which is amazing to me because the signs of the physics and the chemistry are very, very consistent with one thing, and that's liquid water. You have spotted fossils on Mars. Indeed. Indeed. It's fascinating. Well, and here's the thing. If you find one anomalous thing that looks like a shell or an urchin or a trilobite, you think, well, maybe random erosion produced an odd feature once. But when you find... Which happens. Right. But if you find five or 30 or a thousand of them, you know that erosion is a random force. Scattered all over the place. Exactly. You're literally crunching on them under your feet. And I had uh, one fellow from NASA who objected and says, there's no place in the world here on Earth where there's life that you'd walk around and crunch on fossils everywhere. And I, I objected. I said, no, I live in Florida and there's limestone everywhere. And everywhere you walk, you're crunching. And if you pick up off the ground, you pick up a crinoid stem or a sea biscuit or a shell. It's no different on Mars. In these areas they landed, they're all dried saline environments, oceans and lakes. Let's talk about the possibility of life on Mars. Let's sure. look at a report from Gaia News. Okay. The final transmission from the Mars Pathfinder was on September 27, 1997. But the data it provided helped scientists to conclude Mars was once wet and warm, and rounded rocks on the surface indicate they may have been worn down by running water. And if there was water, there could have been life. Flash forward to today, NASA's Perseverance rover on the red planet since February of 2021 is tasked with finding past or present life and seeing if humans could one day explore or colonize Mars. Perseverance is collecting samples to determine if they contain any fossils of ancient Martians. But a new study led by Alexander Pavlov, a space scientist at NASA, says they might have to dig a lot deeper. Pavlov argues that amino acids could be the best evidence of any past life on Mars. But after millions of years of radiation, all those amino acids on the surface would have been destroyed. Writing, quote, our experimental results suggest serious challenges for the search of ancient amino acids and other potential organic biosignatures in the top two meters of the Martian surface. Two meters, or roughly seven feet, but Perseverance can only dig a few inches. However, Pavlov told vicenews.com, quote, microcraters are common on Mars. Small impactors can excavate rocks from several meters of depth. Cosmic rays are significantly reduced by two meter depth into a rock and do not penetrate at all below four meters. Therefore, an ejecta from such depths would have small exposure time to cosmic rays and thus, may contain the primordial, unaltered amino acids from billions of years ago. 25 years of humans studying the surface of Mars, and we have learned so much. But as Pavlov concluded in his study, we have only scratched the surface of this problem. But with every problem comes the opportunity to figure out a solution. And perhaps this will help us find life on Mars. What amazing technology, Sir Charles. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me a lot. They have a lot more techniques and hardware at their disposal to do the analysis. But one of the things that stands clearly in my mind is that it was about 46 years ago, the last time we sent a, uh, a biological detection package to Mars. Right. And in all that time, and there's two of them on Viking 1 and 2, Ever since then, we have never yet sent another biological detection package. So why not? For me, 
that says they're not looking very seriously. Um, and one of the major assumptions they always seem to make is they would only be looking for microbes. And yet they're dismissing some pretty glaring examples of what appears to be macro-sized fossils. Fish? Well, I haven't seen any evidence of, you know, serious evidence of fish. But things such as echinoderms, uh, sea urchins, sand dollars, uh, crinoids. Life. Uh, shell, well, definitely life. Primitive marine life. The same sorts of things that were in the oceans of Earth 200 million years ago. But it also extends the hope that we might find some existing samples deep underground. They are found a number of caves and a number of subsurface lakes. And so some of those things would still be alive today, which also brings us to a cautionary note. We know that they're planning to send human astronauts to Mars at some point in the very near future. We have to be cautious because if there are any organisms surviving on the planet at all, it could provide a real biological threat to any people who arrive there. We would have absolutely no resistance to any alien organism particularly if the biochemistry is different. And they could bring it back here. Well, and that's the other thing. The talk about bringing samples back, I think, is one of the greatest foolish things we've ever discussed because it's kind of like putting polio blankets in a medical ward. You're, you're not going to get any benefit out of this if right. something gets out of the lab. Scary times. It is indeed. So I would say that the best thing for us to do in analyzing this is to send life-detecting packages before we send any human life there and do not bring the samples back because we really don't have secure confinement for them. So, Charles, thank you for being on Beyond Belief. It's been a real pleasure, George. Thank you for inviting me. What is your website? SchultzLaboratories.com. Spell that out. Um, S-H-U-L-T-S-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-I-E-S.com. Thank you again. You're very welcome. Fascinating. I've known Sir Charles Schultz III for a number of years, and every time I talk to him, it gets more and more interesting and exciting. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. All right. Okay, well, we shall proceed. That was very interesting. Um... All right, we're going to listen to Mr. Emery Smith, and he's uh, with the tactical advisor, Richard Doty, again. The title here is Pyramids and Time Displacement. All right, so what is the function of the pyramids, and who built them? You've heard a couple of opinions, so lately we're going to just See what this one has to say. Mm -hmm. Join retired AFOSI Air Force Office of Security Intelligence, I think, Agent Richard Doty, and Tim Tactical Advisor for a discussion on the frequencies and anomalies of pyramids from time displacement to radioactivity. Explore the excavations, evidence, and architecture potentially linking extraterrestrials with pyramids. All right, we got this one for 38 minutes. Here we go.
Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we're with Richard Doty, a retired counterintelligence agent who served in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Also joining us is Tim, a tactical advisor to covert analysts trying to understand the missions and strategies of non-human intelligences on our planet. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. The pyramids have been the world's greatest mysteries. Can you talk about any military or agencies that have obtained information or artifacts from them? Yes. Recently, I had access to information pertaining to the exploration of the pyramids by the United States government uh, as far back as the 1930s. Uh, we gained access to some information from some source in the 1930s. And back in those days, very little was known about the pyramids. The Egyptians knew uh, what they were, obviously, and they'd done their own exploration, but not as detailed as we did. We sent a secret team in to the pyramid area, the area of Giza and, and the other pyramids in Egypt to explore them. We knew they were something special back then. We did a little bit of it at a time. We went back some years later, a few years later, and explored more. Then, unfortunately, World War II occurred, and we had to stop that. Now, take over the Germans. The Germans were highly interested in the pyramids. They sent a number of expeditions down there. Some uh, we can read about today and some that are pr probably still hidden away in the archives. Indiana Jones uh, supposedly is based on an actual incident involving U.S. intelligence interfering with uh, the German intelligence during the early days of World War II. Right, I remember. Yeah. I'd like to hear from Tim on that. Uh, what we know is that um, the Germans at that time were pretty interested in not only pyramids, but um, mostly every kind of um, mysterious uh, fact of history uh, on the earth. And um, the Germans, Hitler sent troops to Egypt. They had rumors about a um, certain civilization that could have used and built the uh, pyramids way back. Um, and also they had this kind of mystical thinking that they wanted to do research on. What they basically uh, found that um, these pyramids either could have been used or have been used as power plants or power devices. So this is something uh, the Germans became aware of. And we can see this is the time when Nikola Tesla already had done extensive research on um, high-frequency uh, energetic power, and the physics were ready for that. So the Germans at that time basically had a loose, already loose idea about what they were going to find there. After World War II, uh, once the Central Intelligence Agency were, was formed in 1947, uh, in the early 50s, uh, the CIA sent a team back to the uh, pyramids. Uh, this time they, they spent a lot of time on the Sphinx and another pyramid. They found that if they placed a signal collector, now back in those days, a signal generator wasn't, wasn't found yet. And that's something that generated frequencies or gathering them, but they had something crude and they were finding that there were frequencies coming out of these pyramids and they couldn't figure out why. 
they first thought there was some type of maybe a radio station or something that was interfering with him. But they didn't have the technical equipment mm-hmm. during that time period to analyze the, the, those signals. Later on in, in 1959, they went back with a really detailed, uh, well-manned team of scientists, even some Egyptians. And they went into the, the first time they actually entered these pyramids. They found a way to enter them. And in the pyramids, they detected hundreds and hundreds of signals being generated. They couldn't understand where they were coming from, thinking that maybe there was some sort of transmitter inside these, these pyramids, but they couldn't find it. They didn't know how that, how it worked. And of course, our technology back in late fifties wasn't advanced as it is today. Mm So later on in 1967, they went back with other equipment and he detected unique frequencies. The thing about that, the unique frequency coming out of these two main pyramids that they were looking at and also the Sphinx was that they were the exact same frequencies that they found coming out of a pyramid in southern Mexico. So how can that be? And how can there be? the same frequencies and how are they being generated? That's something that uh, mm. they've later uh, determined. But uh, Tim, do you know, you know about this, these frequencies that are being generated out of these pyramids? Yes, indeed. So um, we did some um, studies on the pyramids uh, quite recently, a um, few years back. We found that, by the way it has been built, that they um, naturally attract certain uh, ions from the atmosphere. Because what we know is that um, the planet itself has certain layers where you have more and more f- frequential, uh, you know, I- ions that are positively and negatively charged. And you have a lot of voltage, uh, so to speak, going on there. So uh, the way the pyramids are built, um, up to the material they are using, uh, they create a natural flow um, uh, from this, uh, from the top to the bottom. Um, you have different materials at different stages of the pyramid, and it kind of guides these natural occurring uh, energies um, pretty much down this machine. So. Yes, there seems to be a natural current that comes from these pyramids, but through somebody having destroyed the outer cover, which used to be around the, the pyramid, um, the ions that are getting charged cannot be held inside of the pyramid, which is the actual functional mechanism the pyramids need in order to fully function. Someone has broken uh, the um, this cover, and due to that, um, they are out of out of power and they do not work anymore because the ions just get loose. That coincides with what some of the top scientists who were working for the Central Intelligence Agency and, and other agencies found when they went to uh, the pyramids back in the 80s. Uh, now, over the years, the U.S. government has conducted a, a number of secret programs and I don't, I don't know if the Egyptians uh, were aware of these. I'm, pro- I'm sure they probably have uh, now, but where they went in and, and collected artifacts inside these uh, pyramids. 
I mean, there's a, like 118, I believe, pyramids in Egypt, and they found uh, some of the pyramids to be uh, built with a, as Tim says, a sheath that maintained or collected energy inside. And then there was some way that that energy was then dispersed. They found that when they went inside these these pyramids, some of the most remote pyramids that few people know about, and some that have been damaged over the years, uh, the thousands of years, uh, they found really unique things about these these damaged pyramids where uh, the team uh, would go in and they would lose time. They would go in and they'd, they'd go in at a, and they after a while they would time there'd be a clipboard with somebody would right would, yeah. and they would put a, a tag on the back of that person. Okay, you went in at mm-hmm. at, at, at thirteen hundred hours uh, using military time, and then they time that person and that person would keep his watch. Well, then next thing you know, this person will come out six hours later and thought it was they were only in there for twenty minutes. Well, how did that happen? How, how, how did they, how did they miss time inside? Not the pyramids that were not damaged, but the ones that had been damaged. So scientists studied that phenomenon for, for many, many, many years, writing all sorts of different, uh, uh, papers on, on trying to understand frequencies. Yeah. Scientists, theoretical physicists, even Institute for Advanced Studies, where I worked with Dr. Putoff. Mm-hmm. They studied that phenomenon, trying to understand why time displacement, why there was time displacement. And you would talk to these people when they come mm-hmm. out sure. and they'd say and, and they would say, yeah, OK, I went in. It's it's, mm-hmm. you know, one fourteen hundred hours an hour later. And the monitor the outside and they've been in there six hours. How can I how can they be? So is there some kind of a time warp? Is there some kind of a stargate? Is, did they go in through a portal where they went not in this dimension, but in, a, in another dimension? Did it disrupt their thinking and their ability to rationalize time? These are all questions that scientists are trying to answer answer today. Richard, do we know what those frequencies are and could they be measured? Yeah, they were measured and we know what they are. Uh, some of the information is probably still classified, mm-hmm. but they're up in the, in the gigahertz range of frequencies. And, uh, I'm not a frequency expert, but I know gigahertz is somewhere around satellite frequencies that they use to communicate with satellites. So they're in a wavelength that didn't exist or we didn't know existed, uh, you know, thousands of years ago during the Egyptian period and when these things were built. Uh, you know, 5,000 years ago, there was nothing known about frequencies, obviously. And over the years, we're still learning about frequencies. Now we're talking about a terahertz, uh, frequencies. It's, it's beyond the gigahertz frequencies. So we know what the frequencies are and that's how we measure them, comparing them, uh, the frequencies coming out of the Egyptian pyramids to the ones that are coming out of the Mexico pyramids. Now, I'm sure they measured the, the pyramids in other locations in, mm-hmm. in Central America. I know they did an expedition to Belize to measure that pyramid, but I, I don't know about Peru, and I, I, I don't have any information on that. But they know what the frequencies are, and they're studying them. Did we learn anything from Iba 1 about the pyramids? Yes, we did. During the time Iba was here, and after we were able to, to implant something in his, uh, his throat in order for, right. for him to speak, he quickly, of course, learned English, 
Uh, it was crude, but we could understand him. What he told us after he learned what our physics were crudely in our times periods, he explained that there were uh, structures. He didn't call them pyramids, but he called them structures around the world that were built by a cooperation between humans and the ETs, mm. which we would call pyramids all over the world. He didn't know our geography, but he refers when we showed him maps, mm. uh, when his handler showed him maps, he quickly grasped the, the locations and said, yes, we assisted in the construction of some of these what you call pyramids. Mm. And he said there were navigational beacons. There mm. were how we navigated. And it wasn't just Earth. Other planets they visited, they built some kind of a structure where they, were, where they could navigate. Now, it might be crude to us, but if it was as sophisticated uh, 5,000 years ago, uh, it, it was something that their technology that had developed then. Is it navigation, uh, Richard, amongst the stars or navigation around the planet? It was a navigation around the planet. It's mm-hmm. for other, uh, other spacecrafts visiting Earth to hone in on such as the Middle East. Now, one of the things that uh, even later on, before he passed away, told us was they were very interested in the Middle East. That Now, they didn't name countries or anything mm-hmm. like that. But on the map, on our map, once he figured out where he was and, and, and so forth, the navigational system, they were very interested mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Why was it so special to him? Uh, there's some sort of healing powers that he was mm-hmm. trying to explain to us. Uh, that, uh, that could occur in the sand, really sandy areas such as the Middle East. And I don't know that we fully understood and I don't know mm-hmm. that what he was telling us or that he fully understood what we were trying to get out of him, but there were healing powers that were, that were present in the Middle East mm-hmm. that wasn't present at other locations. And the Middle East, of course, occur, uh, uh, included, uh, Egypt. Oh, I see. Have you heard of healing powers from the pyramids uh, and through your connections with extraterrestrials? Yes. So basically what we found out through um, extensive uh, extensive communication with um, non-terrestrial com- um, intelligence is that the very first pyramid, which was uh, the one in Giza, the great one, um, was mostly built outside of Time. So this is something that uh, defies, so to speak, reality in in a way that there's an equivalent outside of time, um, uh, which is like a pyramid um, like a turnover, right. right? But we then quickly learned that the pyramid itself not only functions, not only had one function or two or three, but a multitude of functions. It's a super clever design, which is, uh, in fact, um, made by an intelligence that has no representation in 3D. It's, it's something that is outside of reality uh, and enables reality the way we perceive it now. But they told us it stabilizes the way the planet works. It indeed has healing capabilities. Um, it had enhancing meditative um, powers which can be used in order to gain access uh, back and forth um, with source itself 
It also functions as a power supply system that uh, has been that connects all these different structures around the planet. There was more than one function, uh, and we got our hands on certain plants um, where you can see that there are more than those chambers uh, that we officially know of. Right. Uh, one of the things that we found. Um, the, the U.S. government found in some of the artifacts, our government thinks that some of these artifacts that we found inside these pyramids were used to facilitate healing. Uh, without that particular device, uh, there wouldn't be any healing. I think mm. uh, uh, a person well-known to Gaia, Johnny Enoch, talked about this, that these 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 devices, these sticks, these, these cones, these things that were found inside the pyramid, deep inside the pyramid in some secret chambers for some kind of healing powers. But if you take these outside at the pyramid, they they didn't do anything. And and the same way with the, the frequency generation. If you took some of these artifacts outside and took them to another country, brought them back to the United States or, or some laboratory right. in Egypt, Nothing. they didn't generate any frequencies. Mm. Only inside the pyramid somehow – and I, I don't know. It's how. charging them somehow, huh? Exactly. There have been experiments on, mm. uh, you know, years ago where they placed batteries in, mm. in the pyramid and they charged <laughs> and other things have charged. So it has some kind of healing uh, a generation of energy powers as, as Tim talked about. You mentioned sand contributes to healing in the Middle East. Could you explain that? Well, even didn't fully explain that to us, but okay. he was fascinated with uh, us knowing about the pyramids and the questions that, that we were asking him, but he centered his his attention on the Middle East and telling us that the sand. And once he explained what it was, we knew exactly what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. It contained some kind of healing powers. And like I said earlier, I don't know that we fully understood what he how he was explaining it. And uh, so. There's some type type of healing powers. Now I know they brought him sand, but that was my next being, question. <laughs> being in Los Alamos, the sand came from probably white sand yeah, white in Mexico. Right. Uh, and I don't know. I I don't have any information. I never read any of the detailed uh, mm-hmm. detailed debriefings about wh- whether that sand helped or not. But he specifically told the handler, uh, the captain that was his handler that the Middle East are showing us where the Middle East was, the sand there generated healing powers for them, for the Ebens. Must be a frequency-based uh, you know, reflection or something that the sand is giving off. What do you think, Tim? What we do know is that um, the materials that have been used in order to build these structures uh, are specifically chosen. It's not randomly chosen, but they are specifically chosen. So from the top, the permedion, uh, until uh, the the ground um, itself, they all conduct uh, a certain movement of electricity. Later on, they even put gold uh, onto the top of the pyramid, but science made it pretty clear that this wasn't even uh, necessary at all because the the material that already was there uh, already done the job. You mentioned earlier about the artifacts that were found inside the pyramid during these expeditions. Could you tell us more about these artifacts? And also, did you find any bodies 
No, we didn't. That, I've never read anything about bodies being found in there uh, or mummy, mumf, mummified remains or anything like that. I think that they weren't – they were looking for that, those. Uh, these artifacts were uh, wands, uh, swords, um, just other uh, chalices, um, uh, aluminum uh, material – uh, that were left in there for some particular reason, whether it was there for the mummified remains or with, whether the ETs or somebody else left them there. I don't, I, I've never read anything about all of them. They, 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 they talk about the, the artifacts. They talk about what was, what was found in there. Um, and there's pictures of, of artifacts that were taken out of the, uh, the, the pyramids, um, all over and, and Johnny Enoch has a whole, whole presentation about some of the some of these uh artifacts i don't know everything about the artifacts nor do i know everything that's made the only thing i know and i read was those artifacts they believe our scientists believe that they were for healing only inside the pyramids if you take them out they didn't generate energy or frequencies to do any healing this this uh, story and that's circulating in our group um which said that the Americans were on a mission in the 1990s around the pyramids and that they opened uh, an underground chamber and found uh, found a still living uh, ET being that was down there and left left over from whoever inhabited that um, that area at that time. I don't know if it's true because again this is um, referring to the United States Army. But um, the, the story itself was quite fascinating because they always were speaking about uh, that this be being in particular was kind of a guardian and was in this chamber and was super old. And so people were uh, at least assuming that it's, uh, it's this life form itself was there about 5,000 years ago living in this chamber which was totally completely sealed so there was no circulation of air there was no f nutrition no food no water um and this was basically the story so people were chatting about and wondering how this uh, this life form which they even described with the tail which was down there how it could survive that long what did it look like Well, they, so the story, and again, I'm, I'm not sure if this is official or not, but it's just, um, you know, something that circulated in, in the group was, um, that it's, uh, it's, it's less humanoid. It had some kind of darkish, uh, very, you know, um, dark gray skin, a weird, more or less triangular, um, head and a long tail. And they were assuming that it's a um, it's a god uh, to this chamber. Sure. And from what I've heard, it was at least 5,000 years old. Oh, amazing! I don't know if you know. Yeah, about this. I, that's that's a story that uh, actually we uh, at the Institute for Advanced Studies got hold of that, and I think that was they came out sometime in the early 90s or mid 90s or something. That a team from NATO that went there, and I I don't know if any of this is true or not but the story we got was similar to what he said was that uh, a team went in there and i i i wasn't i i didn't hear there was just an american team i think it was a joint team but anyways a team went in 
and this one chamber and found this live uh, being in this chamber. And according to what I'd read, it had a headdress similar to what a Egyptian would hit, would be wearing 5,000 years ago. And now that's somewhat of a triangle. I guess you could compare that to a triangle. Had very strange hands and arms. It was uh, somewhat lethargic when it, they found the team found him. That's they saw after 5,000 years. <laughs> and, and I think they figured that it was surviving on energy. Right. It was as some type of a, a being that was uh, that could gain strength or or maintain its health through energy from the, the pyramids. That's that's the story we got. Unfortunately, we did a lot of investigations on that, and we confirmed that there was a team that went there. And one of the commanders of the team, I don't remember his rank, and uh, I believe it was United States Army, uh, told this story. Mm. And then, of course, it wasn't the internet back in those days, so it got through. And I think it was in a uh, some kind of a, a magazine. Mm-hmm. And then it was connected to a science fiction book some oh, uh, years okay. ago uh, that somebody wrote. So um, I've heard it all, and Tim had a good description of what he remembers, and I have mine. Now, whether that actually happened, or of course, my question was, and our question. What we wanted to know was what happened to the ET. You know, right. if you found an ET in there, where, where is he in Area 51, uh, or or where did they go? Or is he in Egypt? Is Egypt keeping him? Hmm. That's that's the question. Have either one of you heard in the last decade about a joint American expedition to Giza where they actually snaked like a thousand foot fiber optic camera down in there and they saw underneath the pyramid a huge city like the size of like rome you know with uh statues and uh rock floors and uh, i know i did see parts of that video um but i don't know if it's real have you heard about this what i think i remember from the documents and the research been done on the pyramid is that um, not only below the pyramid in Egypt, but also um, below the pyramid in Mexico, Mexico right. mm-hmm. um, you find uh, a reservoir of water, which um, adds to the um, the currency flow, uh, the electrical charge of the pyramid, and is um, kind of necessary for the whole design of the pyramid as well. I can't actually believe that there's a um, city below that, but um, uh, there is indeed a reservoir of water, used to be. Were any of the artifacts discovered clearly non-terrestrial? Yes. Some of the artifacts that were taken back and studied at uh, some laboratories like Sandia National Laboratories and Los Alamos National Laboratories uh, where they can go down to the molecular structure of, of these artifacts to determine what they're made of. And they found that some of them contained uh, materials that clearly didn't come from this planet. And some of the materials that we could identify were fused in such a way that we didn't have a method on Earth, even then, even in the 90s or the 2000s, right. uh, that could make it, make these things, fusing Things like zinc and, and other, other things together, especially 5,000 years ago. I mean, these artifacts are carbon dated. Mm-hmm. Some of them are carbon dated to, to five or 6,000 years ago. 
So we knew they were old. And who made them? They couldn't have been made by any of Earth civilizations that long ago. And some of the material, I think two or three different elements of the material, was found in such minute quantities on Earth. But we know, we knew then, uh, that they were, that this material is found in space and other planets. So who made them? They would have had to been an extraterrestrial race that created these things and gave them maybe as a gift to the occupants of the, of the pyramid or, or, or the sure, occupants right. of that area of Giza. What else in the excavations that were, that was discovered that may point to non-human life? Well, in one of the damaged uh, pyramids in the southern part, uh, south of the other, south of Giza, uh, one that was heavily damaged, I don't recall the name of that one, uh, they did find an exoskeleton of it, of an ET. And we know it was because we had, we had that material, we had that skeletal structure of that ET in our laboratory that we had recovered in a prior crash uh, some years ago in the, probably in the sixties or seventies. Mm-hmm. So we knew that skeletal structure right. was that of an ET. And we found that, uh, the, the exploration team found that in one of those damaged, uh, uh, pyramids. What did that skeleton look like? Was it, did it look like human? Um, do, do they know that race already? You said, because it's familiar looking. Yeah, it was, it was a, definitely an ET. And I said, they compared that skeletal structure with what they've already had. Mm-hmm. And it was a small, uh, four foot, uh, a, a being of the skeletal structure. And I don't know. I'm not a, a medical specialist and I had never seen a autopsy of one, but a, the skeletal structure of an Eben or the smaller grays are distinct. Uh, they're totally different than that of a human. We, I know that. I mean, I've, I've had discussions with Dr. Kit Green about this. They don't look like it. So if you find something, you're going to recognize it as something as, as extraterrestrial. And maybe you know something more about the skeletal structure of the greys. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, um, medical professional as well, but, um, so the greys use a fiber printed material, um, uh, which enables them to be doing all these missions that they do on this planet. I think that the Ebens have indeed a, um, skeleton s- structure because they are, um, well, biological uh, life forms in that way, but I didn't do an autopsy on them. So were the pyramids uh, developed by humans pre-flood or extraterrestrials? We've received by fact a timeline from being six uh, about this question. So what they told us is that the very first pyramid, which was the Great Pyramid in Giza, was built outside of time, but means um, it also created um, the observable time that we have on this planet. So um, there is a non-reality uh, aspect to this pyramid. Uh, all the other pyramids that came later on were a combined uh, effort between certain ET races who gave the technology as a gift and um, the humans uh, that were inhabiting that space at that time. 
Do the pyramids resonate in another dimension at the same time as this dimension? Yes, 100 percent. What they say, and it's kind of hard to grasp, um, what they have told us being six is that outside of time, the universe itself is projecting its its awareness out into the wild, extensive fields of probabilities, and it's looking for paradoxes, um, which they explain us as kind of a cloud, clouds of um, controversial ideas that need decisions. Otherwise, they keep on being... Uh, undefined and undefined spots in the universe that cry, so to speak, for definition in some way. So what the universe then has done is creating these pyramidal structures that kind of resemble this tetrahedron geometry. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's the one you see on Gaia that's, (laughs) you know, moving (laughs) along. It seems as if the polygons that create this reality, this perceivable reality, um, are structured in a similar geometry. Mm -hmm. And through imitating this inside of and outside of time, um, the universe itself has a way to perceive itself in time. And it's not a, you know, by chance that uh, the, the pyramid itself um, has certain algorithms that um, resonate with the speed of light as well. Absolutely. Tim, are the pyramids here on planet Earth also connected to pyramids on other planets? A hundred percent, yes. That is actually what Being Six told us, that any other planet has its own pyramids. They have this very first pyramid as much as uh, the Earth ha- has it, and it's meant to be placed there in order to perceive um, time uh, and time reality. Well, actually, it's light and time. So the the uh, relationship between time and uh, and light. Uh, and that's the reason um, why they put it there. And this, this is also the reason uh, why you find this eye, you know, the mm. eye everywhere in yes. Egypt. Right. It indicates... It's the universe that is observing itself in that moment. Is there a way to use the pyramid um, to accelerate ourselves out of this third density? Great question. Uh, yes, a hundred percent. This is actually what being six described. Uh, it it functions the other way around as well, and it's been done many times with the humans at that time. Um, they entered certain chambers and their consciousness went back to this wild field uh, where it's not observing time. And basically, uh, these strange effects uh, are reported throughout history. Um, for example, Napoleon, who, you know, slept there one night, he mentioned these kind of reality bending effects on his consciousness. But yes, 100%. They are exits as well. Weren't they being used by the pharaohs and the, um, I'll say the medical uh, witch doctors back in that time to, if you could go in there and spend one night without, you know, killing yourself or leaving, then you have obtained a higher um, level of consciousness. 
Yes, that's what happens later on in history. So being six, when they gave us this timeline of, of incidents mm-hmm. that happened, uh, they described that later on, um, those early cultures, um, pretty much evolved their society around the pyramids. And, um, indeed there was a class of priests that, um, mm-hmm. We're doing all these, mm. you know, meditative experiments right. in the in the pyramids, and and you're absolutely right. The uh, difference that being six described was that Egypt um, was built for a one man experience, right? Uh, yeah. And the one in um, in uh, Mexico that pretty much does the same function or has the fu- same function, does the same thing. It was a communal effect. Well, that's some great information, guys. I really appreciate you. Thanks, Rick, for being on the show. Thank you. And Tim, it's always a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Emory. I'm Emory Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. We, United States government, knew uh, early in the 60s, uh, people had special abilities to foresee things. They tapped into all these uh, non-terrestrial intelligences and perceived a lot of information from them through remote viewing. He described the interior of the craft, the number of the ETs in the craft, where they were sitting at councils. So that's the, the perfection of remote viewing. Okay, one more, everybody. Mm. One more. Okay, this is uh, the crew, you might say. Mm. Daryl Anka, Helene Mm. Wabe, uh, Doctor of Naturopathy. Um, I'm not sure what MCR is. Aaron Abdke, Matthias De Stefano. Kadrick Olson, Shaman Durek, Jude Currivan, PhD, uh, Sheila Gillette, Marguerite Rigolioso, PhD. All right. And this is called Channeling a Bridge to the Beyond. Mm-hmm. Are channelers making contact with ET entities? And if so, can they choose or even refuse contact? Explore the infinite possibilities beyond Earth. As experts and experiencers chronicle the law of one, the raw material, and other experts, uh, excuse me, and other galactic connections with Bashar and also Pleiadians. From free will to off-world allies, learn how miracles are already taking place among the stars and at home. All right, this one is a mere 29 minutes. (laughs) And so, let's start now. Start now, right now. Mm -hmm.
1969, people all around the world were staring at the television to see if man would actually walk on the surface of the moon. <laughs> the floodgates opened for science fiction fantasies, and more humans started to believe that life out there was actually possible. The search for any evidence of life beyond Earth began growing rapidly. UFO sightings were becoming more common, and mysterious government programs were being created to study the unidentified flying objects seen by so many. Along with these strange events in the sky, more channels began opening, bringing powerful messages from other star systems. As the first contact specialist, one of the techniques that is common to my kind is to always experience a life in the civilization we are eventually going to contact so we will understand it. That's the only way we would be able to have a translation that makes sense to you. It's got to come through someone in your civilization that is a representation of some extension of our oversoul so that we can draw upon that information and those experiences to allow our information to make sense to you. Otherwise, we would be too alien to each other. When someone begins to learn to channel in the way that I do, I'm not really sure it's all that important to differentiate who it is you're connecting to. As long as you are staying in a positive state, you know you're bringing something through to help people, what difference does it really make at first? It could be a spirit guide. It could be another dimensional being. It could be your own higher mind. It could be another aspect of your own consciousness. The point is not really so much to focus on who it is, but what's coming through. Is what's coming through positive, constructive, helpful? You know, or is it controlling, ego-driven, or something like that, which is usually the channel's own issues, getting in the way and filtering the information. But that's okay. It takes practice to learn the difference and that's actually the way it kind of unfolds is when you get more practiced at it, if it's important for you to know where that's coming from, you will usually figure it out or it will tell you. When you look at channelers from around the world and even in our study, many of them believe that the sources are not from Earth, that they're what they call off-world ally or extraterrestrial intelligences. And the story is that these beings are beneficent beings who really want to help humanity in this incredibly pivotal transitional time and that what we're going through right now is actually this push to awakening and enlightenment for humanity and you see this over and over again and when you're in these sessions hearing all this information all this content about these off-world allies i think it's very arrogant to think that we're alone in this universe. And so personally, I leave space for the reality that that could be true. And I don't think that a spaceship is going to show up on the White House lawn and shake hands with the president. If there are off-world allies really out there that they're smart enough to know that that would create a crazy frenzy. And yet you hear 
many, many anecdotes about people who are having contact experiences in a variety of different ways around the planet. And maybe if it is going to happen, it will be this bottom up grassroots wave of transformation where people just then accept, okay, we're not alone. And here's how it's showing up for us. In the 1960s, while attending the University of Louisville in Kentucky, Carla L. Rucker joined an experimental channeling group that was being led by physics professor and paranormal researcher Don Elkins. In the early 1970s, she partnered with Don to form LL Company, which eventually became LL Research, dedicated to further their studies into paranormal activity. In December of 1980, researcher Jim McCarty joined forces with Carla and Don. Three weeks later, the raw contact began. I am raw. I have not spoken through this instrument. We had to wait until she was precisely ten. As we send a narrow band vibration, we greet you in the love and in the light of our infinite creator. The Law of One, or the raw material, is a channel text that came through in the early 1980s from a group of UFO researchers who had been spending the better part of over a decade researching the phenomenon of UFOs and extraterrestrials, which at that time was was very active. And this group of about 12 people somehow came to the conclusion very rightly that if we want to really know or understand these beings that are appearing on our planet, we need to be more interested in their philosophy and their spirituality than their science and their technology. And so Don Elkins came up with the idea of using the art of channeling as a means of communication. That these beings, whatever they are, they must be able to communicate through thought. And it was many, many years later after working with Don Elkins and Jim McCarty in this group that she was actually trying to help uh, teach a student how to channel one evening. And while she was teaching how to get into the channeling state, a contact came through. And it identified itself as a being named Ra of a six density social memory complex to which they didn't really have an understanding of what that meant at the time. I greet you in the love and the light of our infinite creator i am with this mind body spirit complex which has offered itself for a channel i communicate with you so over the course of the next four years from 1981 to 1984 they began doing um, 106 sessions over that time period 
of the raw material, channeling this entity named Ra in a sort of question and answer format. And this was one of the imperatives of this channeling work was that this entity said, we are beings who honor free will. So we're not here to just preach to you and just give you information, but we want to have a dialogue with you. So you can question us. And if we deem it's not a violation of your free will to know something, we'll give you our answer. But we're not going to speak with you in any other format. And this was a really important part of the law of one material because Don essentially takes raw through a series of over 2000 question and answer of what is the nature of the universe? What is the nature of the soul's evolution, reincarnation, the metaphysics of energy and so forth? And raw gives the most profound answers that I believe has ever come through a channeled work before. And so that's really what allows, I think, the law of one to stand apart from all other channel texts is that it was done in this group format that Ross says also just having other people there also brought in more strength for the contact itself to come through. The reception of our being is a somewhat more advanced feat than some of the more broad vibration channels opened by other members for more introductory and intermediate work. When we get into channeling beings of higher densities, the process of channeling becomes very nuanced and delicate because depending on the level of density of the entity we're contacting, it requires different degrees of lucidity or trance perhaps. So for example, Beings of higher densities like sixth density require a very narrow band of channeling that requires one to really be in a trance state. And this is the state Carla had to be in for the law of one sessions. Whereas a lower density being like a fourth density entity, which is, you know, people who can channel while they're on stage giving a a talk, they can connect with those beings because really in a non-trance state, we're receiving information intuitively feeling impressions and um, information that we can condense through our own language. So there's kind of a relationship between the, the entity being channeled and the channeler in that the entity is allowing the channeler to sort of paraphrase for them what they're the essence of what they're trying to say. But it isn't necessarily a word for word communication. My whole body behaves like if I am the same vibration, the same frequency. Feels like I am a radio that can change the frequencies and choose which uh, frequency to, to expand. Sometimes they really are inside and it feels really different and it's really tiring when that happens because it takes a lot of strength for you to use in your chakras and you have to relocate all the energy of yourself with other one. So that's very tiring and, and exhausting. But most of the times it's just like frequencies. So it's not tiring. It's just like letting go through. In the early 1990s, Barbara Marciniak released her powerful book, Bringers of the Dawn. This incredible work 
was compiled using our channeled messages from a group of beings known as the Pleiadians. I think most important, and this is what the Pleiadians have taught me over the years, and the Pleiadians are, of course, the entities or energies that I channel, that we have to really make peace with ourselves, our physical form, uh, and the consciousness that occupies that physical form. So bottom line, they always say, number one, in order to go forward, you have to love yourself. I think Barbara Marciniak is one of our premier oracles on the planet, and thank goddess for her. Her work, Bringers of the Dawn, meant so much to people and that concept that pleiadian concept of the earth as the living library of dna and beings and uh is precious so i'm very grateful for her and as the pleiadians would say you know you're really here to enjoy the body create an experience you know love that's they say that's we all come for we come for love and we come to contribute you know, to the creativity of each of our perceptions and what we make, we add to the, the, the creativity of the multiverse. And we're really here to heal. This is what this time is about. We're healing ourselves, we're healing our ancestors. And by healing and eradicating this unnecessary fear, I feel personally that it qualifies us then to meet other beings. Is that until any initiation, you meet your fear. And you can't get to the other side, to those higher frequencies, until you move through your fear. In this influential book, the Pleiadians refer to the Earth as a living library in a free will zone. But what does free will actually mean? It is part of our training as first contact specialists that we do not intervene or interfere in certain aspects of other civilizations, but must let them have the free will to discover things in their own timing. We cannot intervene or interfere with something that is a part of your path that it is not appropriate for us to do. So we scan the collective energy, not only of you as a person or whoever we are talking with, but of the collective consciousness as well simultaneously to find out what parts of information you seek can be delivered to you by us, what parts may need to come from other sources as a more appropriate delivery system, what parts are not appropriate in timing for you to know right now, according to your own choices? In other words, not spoiling your surprises, not opening your Christmas presents for you, so to speak. So the idea is a multitasking, multidimensional awareness of what is and isn't appropriate for the timing of the conversation to deliver to any particular individual. We tend to think free will is our egoic day-to-day self saying, yes, I want to do this. No, I don't want to do that. But a free will also extends to our energetic levels and our energetic states. So sometimes we don't know that we are being open to, let's say, attack or attachment because it is still our free will to say, I need this. Like if you're working with entities that have like addictive traits, addictive qualities to you, they'll kind of whisper into your mind. For want of a better word, it's not necessarily words, but it's nudges, it's urges. They'll whisper this little poke into you saying, hey, isn't it a good idea to go do that? And then your free will could say, yes, sure, why not? Because it feels right or it feels good. And again, that's your free will. But that moment when you feel something has crossed that line, crossed that boundary, you could say, no, we're not working together anymore. No matter what kind of being you're working with, a lower level entity, higher level being, they can actually never violate your free will. Free will means that every time you open your mouth, you are casting a spell. Words, 
and your thoughts and your reactions are deciding where energy goes. So if I say, I really feel like life is really difficult for me, then that energy belongs to a spirit who's here to suppress. So that spirit will come and then support me in my free will by the words that I've said and start suppressing me and making whatever I say real. Because the purpose of creation is to be able to experience all levels of creation. That means that there is no good or bad, I prefer to say. It is based on how can we serve you? But then you say, I changed my mind. Life isn't hard. Life is getting better for me. And my ancestors are supporting me. Then the ancestors come in and they start supporting you. Then you say, I really am afraid of what I'm stepping into. Now a spirit of fear comes and starts supporting you. And that's why I always tell people like, um, so you think free will means that you can go and buy an ice cream cone or you can go and run down the street naked or you can do whatever it is that you want to do. That's just your choice to do it. That's not free will. Free will means that whatever you do, spirit supports. We would not usurp the free will of the human experience. Because every human has a soul. And the soul has the power. That's why we say in the asking it is given. For when you ask, you're ready to hear the information asked for. Or there would not be an asking. So the only rules come from you, the soul. And we share information when you're ready for it. Free will and destiny are side by side. You could say that destiny is simply the free will of the spirit that chose a certain theme of exploration, that chose to experience itself as the unique you that you are as a personality. Free will comes into place in the physical reality in terms of how you explore what it is you chose from the spirit level. So you could say that the destiny is the hallway that you as a spirit chose to explore. Free will in physical terms is how you choose to explore that hallway. You can run, you can walk, you can jump, you can fly, you can go forwards, backwards, side to side, happy, sad, look in every door down the hallway or ignore them all. But walk down that hallway, you will, because you are the hallway. You are a unique path a unique reflection of all that is, that is your destiny, is to be you. How you be you is up to your free will. There are a few take-homes from the Mount Shasta channeling study. One was this process of doing channeling in a group, which I think is incredibly valuable. And as a science institution, we don't come out and say, hey, 21 different beings were channeled through these channelers and this is true and this is what they said. You know, we really try to have a neutral sense of equanimity about the results that we're presenting and allow people to make their own decision about whether it's real or not real. The subjective phenomenon of these channelers bringing this information forth is incredibly real to them. It is tangibly different. It's visually different. The piece that we can't be definitive about is whether that being really is a being from the Pleiades or from Sirius or 
from wherever they say or an ascended master or an archangel or whoever the being says they are. We can't prove that through our science. If you ask the channelers, they say, yeah, of course it is. And here's how it works and et cetera, et cetera. And I value their belief and worldview around that. But from a science scientific perspective, we can't we can't show that. I can't wait until we can. It's not important at all for people to believe that I'm channeling an alien being. It could be an aspect of my own consciousness. I have no way of proving that Bashar is real. So the message is far more important than the messenger. And Bashar knows that. It's one of the reasons why he has said they stay in the background. They don't want people to necessarily focus on, oh, this is an alien. It's an ET. Because we tend to think of that as greater than ourselves. And he's saying it's not. So it's really more about what does the information do to improve our lives, to help us understand more of who we are. That's really the point of it. And to grow in that knowledge without really focusing on the idea of exactly where it's coming from. Because if you know that something positive is happening, at the beginning at least, that's enough. Over my life, you know, I've communicated with, received guidance from, wisdom teachings from, much love from so many multidimensional intelligences. And I've had many experiences, actually, of, of communicating with extraterrestrial intelligences. So the question was, do those extraterrestrials who are communicating with us or potentially communicating with us have anything to, to, to share with us how they might have gone that path themselves and survived it? And immediately that inner question was asked. I received back this message. We came to understand, experience and embody unity awareness. In other words, they were able somehow to remember wholeness, to remember the nature of reality as being inseparable of its unity expressed its diversity rather than as separate. They remembered the reality of love. Right now, our planet is in a very critical place of our evolution, that we are clearly being visited by beings from other worlds. And we see them in our skies on a daily basis. And it's at the point now where even the government has acknowledged that this phenomenon is true. But the question is, why aren't they landing on the front lawn of the White House and speaking to all of us openly? And this really gets into the aspect of free will, that beings of the positive polarity are not going to come down here and interact with us and communicate with us until we of our own free will collectively acknowledge them and say, we're not afraid of you. We know you're here to be of service to us and we want to have a relationship with you. And then and only then will they honor that free will and have communication with us openly. So I think channeling is this amazing way that humanity can begin reaching out to the cosmos and exercising our free will to usher in this new age of extraterrestrial communication. I think that as more people develop the ability to channel and to bring in uh, higher consciousness to the planet, we will see more texts like the Law of One that are undeniably profound and undeniably authentic and perhaps even pockets of society, um, different areas who come together and say, we believe 
in this phenomenon. We believe in extraterrestrials. We're going to start contacting on behalf of the human race. And so I believe that we'll see these groups appearing on the planet who are starting to deliver these incredibly profound texts and information <laughs> that starts to wake other people up and get the attention of the world and say something truly remarkable is happening over here. And the more interest is gained by people in this phenomenon of channeling, the more that is in and of itself an act of our free will to acknowledge and invite in this kind of contact. And then and only then, I think, will extraterrestrials actually begin to interact with us physically and walk among us. At this point, I think there's too much fear around extraterrestrials. What are their intentions? Where do they come from? Why are they here? And channeling texts like the Law of One can answer those questions in ways that truly give peace to humankind, that these beings are not here with any ill intentions, but in fact, quite the opposite. They are here to usher us into the next age of our evolution. If there are other energies permeating your space on Earth, they have the wisdom and ability to be here from other universes, other planets, however it's perceived, the aliens, if you would. They're not here to be malevolent. They're here in the same assistance and desire for expansion for you as a species and all the species on this planet. It is not required that every single human existing on your planet now needs to be the kind of person who is available for open contact. We will only be making open contact with the versions of Earth that are amenable to it. There may be many versions of Earth that are not, and we will not be making contact with those. So the idea now is to navigate toward the version that you prefer that might have open contact by following the formulas that we share with all of you. This is what it's designed to do. Not only open up your own lives, but also make it more probable that you match our frequency more closely in order to make it probable for you to have open contact with us and other extraterrestrial civilization. There will always be a need for first contact with other civilizations. I have what you might call job security. There are millions of untapped civilizations out there. I'm not going to run out anytime soon. As more and more messages arrive from those out there, the stars shine brightly in our night sky to remind us that we have several neighbors nestled in this majestic galaxy named Milky Way. But as the sun rises and the blue sky returns to this beautiful living library, we are physically reminded of a unifying message delivered throughout the ages that our thoughts, decisions, and actions have the power to create miracles. You make thousands of decisions every day. Albeit small ones, but they're all decisions, aren't they? It's just the bigger ones you lament over and question rather than paying attention to what the soul says, 
You have evidence in your life of that being true. All do. When a decision has made, been made without doubt a must in your life, not knowing how, when, or where, but it must happen. And then out of the blue, everything works out. It's a miracle. Yes? You made a miracle by decision. And allowed the energy of the quantum field to do its work. Out of the blue. We always like that terminology. Where do you think blue is? It's all around you. Round table, friends. Caroline Oceana Ryan, a message to light bringers. March 3rd, 2023. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth, Elements, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings, known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are, as always, very pleased to have a moment to speak with you today. And today, our writer has a question, which perhaps many of you are asking now. My friends, are we already moving into the fifth dimensional life on this planet? It just isn't very obvious yet. We are waiting and calling in different forms of disclosure of the dark actions of the crime syndicates that have long run this planet, of the ET presence of free energy devices, of the secret space program, and of long appreciated, long suppressed advanced healing technologies. At this moment, amid ongoing wars and other conflicts, the and Earth reacting to the powerful solar light waves with extreme weather and earthquakes, it feels as though we will never get there. And due to this powerful light coming in, we are all dealing with old traumas coming up from this and other Earth lives. So it can feel as though we are further away from the new earth now, rather than closer. Your input and energetic support is very much appreciated. And the collective responds. We are aware, perhaps even more than most humans now, of the internal conflict and upset that humanity is feeling now. It is particularly difficult and demanding for those who came came in to hold, um, transmit, and become the light. You have all long sought to reflect and represent the higher realms to a dark and often desperate earth. We would say that what you experience now with the shocks, jolts of a fast-shifting world is not only due to the solar light waves, rather to your own decisions to bring Earth back into the Galactic Federation and the Intergalactic Confederation of Worlds. Most of you are expert at various forms of either commanding a ship on an intergalactic mission or at fulfilling various powerful, powerful roles within a command. Those roles may be dedicating to healing or technology or an ambassadorial role, 
or to scientific or artistic exploration, teaching, or beyond all of these. Pure spiritual pursuits that require higher levels of wisdom and integration of one's own consciousness with pure source. This is your earth mission, and you are all involved in it, though without much conscious awareness of such in your waking state. Great is the confusion of energies within you now, yet in your sleep state, as we have noted many times, you are never confused or overwhelmed. Your actions, while in the etheric, and this is your true self, are that of very old souls with a vital role predetermined by you that you are living out powerfully without the hesitance of waiting for any outer situation to improve before you realize your full empowerment. You have accepted that dealing with the issues you name is your empowerment demonstrated within your daily earth life. We say this, realizing that in your waking hours you are still in a place high of high vulnerability, often in feelings of unsureness, loss, high stress, and emotional confusion. The highs that is very cute. There's a kitty there. She's sitting there looking right in your eyes, and she's got one paw across the other in front, like very dignified. <laughs> the, the highs that some are experiencing brought on by the powerful solar winds and healing plasma light particles flowing to earth now are often accompanied by laws that are painful enough at times to make one wish that one had never come to earth to begin with. Yet we ask two things, that you allow yourselves your sadness and struggle, blessing it and moving through it with emotional honesty, allowing yourselves to cry and release where needed, and that you more more follow up the more difficult thoughts with any affirmation that can assist you in that ongoing healing and dissolving of old earth patterns. Some will affirm, I can do all things through divine love who strengthens me. Others will remind themselves, I am the light, and I allow these moments as they reveal what must be transformed. Remember that you are not alone in this. We are here with you, many of us on the ground, and that as you travel through difficult moments, uh, emotionally and mentally, know that in those times your spirit is taking on new forms of self-realization that it could never come to otherwise. While on While on the ships in your etheric body, a projection of your consciousness through time-space, an element that cannot confine you now, you meet often with your guides and mentors who are now advising you on new and far higher levels. Your questions to them are far more complex than in the past, and your realization of the depths of your and your soul family's earth mission Goals, I'm just going to read to the end of this last part. Goals well beyond anything you have grasped before. More is being revealed to you on Earth's journey than you have ever seen. 
and your learning abilities and insights will further down the timeline come to exceed even what was accomplished in Atlantis and Lemuria and the other great civilizations. Yet in this particular Earth journey, you chose to return to those heights via the exploration experience, then release of a darker, lower dimensional Earth life. This is ascension in its truest form. You have been to the depths, both in terms of dark dimensional levels and in terms of Earth experiences. The challenge is now to recover lost aspects of your own spirit essence, lost during one trauma or conflict or another, and to heal your consciousness, not only of that fragmentation, rather of all the losses it has experienced. Ascension into a higher vibrational spirit form Mm. from that level of experience will indeed feel hard to, to impossible some days. And yet, Remember always, dear ones, you are never alone. Your soul, your soul family, the higher realms, the earth family, your earth, and your earth will never abandon you. Your Lady Gaia is throwing off the toxicity of eons as she ensures that certain forms of life, that how to, that, that bow to the orders of the dark realms, find it harder and even harder to live on her surface or below it. She is deliberately increasing her vibration to where the dark ones continue to be rounded up, one way or another, as their frequency increasingly clashes with her own. This is a new reality being formed, and they and human subjugation and suffering have no place in it. Your son, likewise, is cognizant of your struggles and emits only those rays which will assist, not impede your journey upward, though it may feel otherwise at times. And we will put this up on our website, won't we, Rama? Mm. So someone can read the rest of it. Mm. And I think we have some words of wisdom from our sister Rainbird to hear about here as we are on the final stroke of the hour. And Sister Rainbird, with all the angels, fairies, and feathers, rainbows, and crystals, and little and big one people, and Enahunis, and all the other elves and fairies are with us all. And I pass this talking stick. It's all on there. Excalibur's there, and Clexacol, too. Here it comes. Okay. I see them. They're all there. Thank you. <laughs> And thank you for tonight, yes. It's been a busy weekend, and we did it all. I think we covered the territory in a few universes. So that's good. We're getting there, (laughs) wherever that is. (laughs) Thank you. They're passing the talking stick to us. Lord have mercy. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Anyway, so Rama, here comes this talking stick. Have you got something for us tonight? See you in your dreams on the bridge and come join us with Cheryl Croce tomorrow and Monday. 
It's around 7 o'clock Mountain Time, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, and everything in the middle. And I'll give you the numbers here. Four two five four three six six two six two six zero. I'll send four three four two five four three six six two six zero. And the pin is nine four six seven four four one pound. So we'll see you there tomorrow and Monday. And until we meet again. Uh, aloha. Much love. Namaste, everybody.